This is Audible. Hachette Audio presents Living with the Monks: What Turning Off My Phone Taught Me About Happiness, Gratitude, and Focus. Written and read by Jesse Itzler. This book is dedicated to my grandma Sylvia and grandma Fanny. Wish we could have one meal together. Author's note: I lived at a monastery and kept a detailed diary of my time there. The experience greatly impacted many areas of my life in a positive way. Some people who read my first book, Living with the Seal, emailed me to say they wanted to do my next adventure with me. I would have loved to. But this was a personal journey. I had to do it alone. Plus, I don't expect anyone to leave their families, their daily lives, and go live with monks. And now you don't have to. I did it for you. Removing yourself from the overstimulated world we live in can be difficult. So you must consider the withdrawal symptoms that may occur. Like any activity involving deep thought and introspection, some of the events in living with the monks may cause side effects like calmness, being present. And feeling super alive, and those side effects can become addictive. So all readers should take full responsibility when living a more vibrant life. Some of the events in this book have been recalled from memory, and in some cases may have been compressed to convey the substance of what occurred or was said. Some of the dialogue might not be verbatim, and I tried to keep the time sequence of my events in order. That said, it's possible things occurred either earlier or later in reality than they do in the story. Roger that. Scratch that. Namaste. At the one hundred mile man. He that is taught only by himself has a fool for a master. Ben Johnson. Part one. In the beginning. Ding beep buzz. Ding. A text alert goes off. I open my eyes. And with a glance, I check to make sure my wife Sarah is still sleeping. Check. It's still dark out, and the only illumination in our bedroom is my glowing phone. Carefully, I roll over to my side and reach toward the nightstand to find it. I need two tickets to the Hawks game tonight. The text says, "I got you." I text back. As I sink back into bed, I pull the covers over my head to eliminate the brightness of my phone. I don't want to wake Sarah. I quickly refresh my email to see what's come in my inbox during the five hours I was sleeping. Too many. I swipe it away. I check the time. It's 4:53 a.m. I have to get up because I have a workout appointment in seven minutes. Seal, the man who kicked my ass and lived with my family for 31 days, is at my house. And the rule is, if Seal is at my home, we're working out. Two minutes later, I check my email again. Nothing new. I swing my legs off the bed and quietly place both of my feet on the rug. My wife's still sleeping. I slip my phone into the pocket of my shorts and throw on the t-shirt that's balled up on the floor. I tiptoe out of our bedroom into the long hallway. All four of my children are fast asleep as I pass each of their bedrooms. When I reach the top of the stairs, I hear another ding. I manage to respond to the text as I walk down the steps and simultaneously fire off two emails before getting to the bottom of the stairs. 
I enter the living room and have one eye on my phone and the other on something Seal is doing. He's fussing with the remote trying to turn the television off. He can't figure out which button to press. He's mad at the remote and looking at it like it's a Rubik's Cube. I fire off one more email as he spots me. It's 4.58 a.m., so I'm early. What the fuck is that, Seal asks, staring at my hand. This? Oh, it's a phone. Seal takes one more glance at the remote and now decides he's no longer pissed at the controller. He's now pissed at me. I can tell he's getting annoyed, very annoyed. He's staring at me stone-faced. He's not moving, like, at all. For a second, I think he's playing some whacked-out version of freeze tag in his head. He's as still as a statue. After about 30 seconds of just staring at me, he snaps out of it. It's like he was never still. Oh, it's a phone, he mimics like a three-year-old teasing his big brother. Oh, it's a phone. He inches closer to me, in my face. I'm not sure why he's so livid. What did I do? It is, in fact, a phone, right? You don't think I know what a phone is, Jesse? I use phones, motherfucker. I just used one yesterday. I know a phone when I see one. Oh, it's a phone, he says a third time as he bends down to lace up his running sneakers. I'm very sorry, I say, trying to make peace. I just thought, I know what a phone is, Jesse. I try to craft an apology in my head. I'm not sure why, but I feel like I truly owe him one. Sorry, I say again. I just thought you asked me what's in my head. Jesse, are you committed? I'm confused. I'm not sure where he's going with this. Let me save you some time, motherfucker, he says. You're not. Huh? I'm sorry, comes out of my mouth a third time. You and that damn phone, he says. You need to clear your mind, Jesse, to be committed. He's so angry that one can mistake his committed to mean sending me off to a mental institution. But I'm pretty sure he's talking about making a commitment to myself. And maybe he's right. I do need to unplug, but unplugging is only half of a fix. I need to plug into something else, something bigger than myself, a 180, to get uncomfortable again, a self-imposed timeout and find a growth opportunity. Seal helped me get physically fit and sharpen my mental toughness, but now I need something that'll help me quiet my mind and create a new kind of edge. I look back, and Seal is already holding the front door open for me. Let's go for a run, Seal says. I'm not sure what happened, but it's like someone flipped a switch and he's fine again, not mad. It's like I never even had a phone. As I follow him out the door, I fight an urge to check my phone one last time. A few days later. I click on a link that a friend sent to me, a picture of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist super monk, pops up on my computer screen. The photo is, well, I don't know, likable? But it's not so much how he looks, which is a pleasant face with protruding ears and a balding head, but the way he looks. It appears like he's operating on a higher plane. This is what I'm searching for. I need to figure out how to spend a few weeks in his shadow. I want to live on his monastery. My wife always tells me I'm too impulsive, that I don't think things through before taking action. And it gets me in over my head sometimes, maybe. But I like to go with my gut, 
and my gut is telling me that he's my guy. I start reading the article. It turns out the holy monk, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name, Tick, not Han, maybe? We'll call him Tick for short, lives on the Plum Village Mindfulness Practice Center in the Dordogne region in the south of France. He's a master of spirituality and mindfulness. He trains people to become fully present, which sounds fantastic, except you have to commit to the place for five years, freeze all of your bank accounts, and you're not allowed to see your family during the first two years of monkism. I may be able to get over the five-year commitment, but not seeing my family is a non-starter. Okay, so his isn't a shadow I'll be walking in anytime soon. Although living with Tick might have been a tad aggressive, I'm not ready to give up my spiritual quest. My life is abundant, but sometimes I feel overwhelmed. On top of electronic and social media accessibility 24-7, there are my four kids and their schedules, to-do lists, business appointments, charity events, workouts, and running routines. And somehow, amid all of that, I have to find time for my loving relationship with my wife. I shouldn't say I have to, I want to. But above all, I want to learn something new. I start imagining how much I could accomplish if I blocked out all of the noise in my head, prioritized my time, and learned to be truly present in the moment. I need a plan B. I pick up my phone and speed dial my literary agent, Lisa Leshny. Hi, Jesse, Lisa says after one ring. I hear wind whipping against her phone. She's probably walking her dog, Luna, somewhere in Riverside Park on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Because just as she says hello to me, I hear her tell someone that Luna's a rescue dog. I want to live on a monastery, I say. Uh, okay, she responds. But don't you mean at a monastery? Either way, I just want to go live with monks. Any particular reason why? I did the physical part. I want to explore the spiritual side. I want better focus, stronger mindset. Aren't there podcasts for that? Perhaps, but I need to immerse myself just like I did with Seal. And that's when the idea hits her. She tells me to hold and then patches me in with the editor from my book, Living with a Seal, Kate Hartson. When Kate answers, Lisa tells her I'm on the call. I hope you're ready for this one. Jesse wants to go live with a monk, Lisa says, or multiple monks. And I believe you know some monks who might fit the bill. There's nothing but silence on the line. Kate must think it's a terrible idea, but my mind is already made up. I want to do this. I'm waiting to hear her reaction, but it doesn't matter what she says. I don't need her to sign a permission slip. I'm locked in. I actually know of a monastery where you can go, Kate finally says. You do? Would they freeze my assets and tell me I can't see my family for two years? Excuse me? Are they in the south of France? Well, no. The monastery is in upstate New York. Upstate New York? That sounds perfect. Can I go for a couple of weeks? I'm pretty sure they'd be happy to have you. Okay, book it. Two weeks or so for some personal development. Some me time. Don't you want to know more about them, Kate asks? Are they monks? Well, yes. That's all I really need to know. If my wife was with me and she's not, she'd shake her head and say something like, 
See what I mean about not thinking things through? Okay, Kate says in a tone that sounds like she thinks I'm a little chemically imbalanced, but they're called the monks of Nooski just in case you get lost. An hour later. I pick up my phone and dial my wife. Sweetie, uh, can we talk for a second? Sure, my love, she says. What's up? I'm going to live in a monastery. I'm hoping it was fast. Fast enough she only half hears me, except my wife doesn't have half hearing. She has whole hearing, and she heard me perfectly clear. A monastery? As in monks? Yes, as in silence, meditation, and monks. I can tell from the long pause that Sarah is processing the information. That's what Sarah does. She's a processor. She thinks things through before making a decision. I, on the other hand, am a reactor. I hear the word challenge and immediately react with, I'm in. And in this case, Sarah taking her time is justified. Some guys need an excuse to go to a bachelor party in South Beach or a hall pass for a weekend in Vegas. But I'm trying to go to a monastery, which is a lot to process. So before she responds, I follow it up with a kicker to help my cause. And it's going to make our marriage even stronger, sweetie. Stronger? Sarah asks. Then she repeats the word again with more curiosity. Stronger? Explain that one to me. Well, I think it'll help me appreciate our time together. Be more present. Stuff like that. Jesse, this sounds like an excuse to go run a marathon somewhere with your friends. No, I'm serious. I'm planning on going next month. Then, love, have you lost your marbles? Because there are plenty of other solutions to make a marriage stronger. Like maybe we should just go for more walks together. She has a point. But this isn't really about making our marriage stronger. I need a different angle. Quick. A few years ago, I realized I was watching an awful lot of football. College games on Saturday and the NFL on Sunday, Monday, and Thursday were on my viewing schedule. It was excessive. And while I did love watching the games, I calculated that if I kept on that pace and lived to be 82 years old, I'd spend, waste, another 36,000 hours of my life watching football. Think about that watching other people play a sport. It was a wake-up call. So I immediately unplugged the TV and went cold turkey. And right after I made the decision, I told Sarah that I'd just freed up 36,000 hours of my life to use as I saw fit. That's 1,500 days, four years. So then Sarah asked me what I was going to do with all of that newfound free time. Some of those hours are for you, I said with a flirtatious smile. Some are for personal adventures. And right now feels like a good time to pull out the adventure card. It's worth a shot. I'm using some of the 36,000 hours I freed up, sweetie. Really, darling? Okay, now don't let Sarah's blonde, bubbly charm fool you. She built Spanx, one of the most popular women's undergarment companies in the world, and she did it entirely on her own, with $5,000 of savings and no investors. So she can smell when there's something fishy going on. So it's going to make our marriage better, huh? Much. You know, sweetie, you are so full of shit, but you're darn cute. 
If you want to go live in a monastery, then you should go and enjoy yourself, Mr. Monk. Okay, then, it's set. One of my favorite business rules is don't oversell. When you get the order, shut up and leave. So I respond with, I love you, dear, and immediately hang up. The next couple of weeks are business as usual. Sarah is supportive but leery of my plan or lack of planning. She wishes I'd do more research and preparing. But when I'm ready to do something, I don't let anything slow me down. Ready. Fire. Aim. Soon I'm counting days instead of weeks and then hours instead of days. It's almost go time. The night before I'm set to leave for the monastery, I craft a social media blast. It's partly a heads up to tell people I'll be off the grid for a while and also a request for suggestions for a book or two I should bring. Moments after I hit send, my phone starts to sound like a Las Vegas casino. Dings, beeps, and buzzes. It doesn't stop. Along with commenting on favorite books, how to be a no-limit person, mindful parenting, man's search for meaning, I get suggestions for blogs on meditation, spiritual guides to follow on Twitter, podcast recommendations, and must-watch documentaries about happiness, mindfulness, and soul-searching. Everyone has a favorite. The comments keep coming in. Ding, beep, buzz. The responses are passionate from people who have found a helpful nugget to make their daily lives a little bit better. They're eager to share. Of my 1,000 career Instagram posts, it's the most commented one of all time. As I look at my phone, I realize I've hit a nerve. The search for living a more meaningful life is a viral topic. And yet, it seems, at least the way my life unfolds on a daily basis, that we don't have time for anything that isn't announced with a ping. And here's the thing. Every day, information, news, and entertainment bombard us. It comes at us from all angles, like we're under attack. We are living in complete information overload. Meanwhile, we're losing, or have lost, our most significant asset, the ability to think for ourselves. At every turn, we're told what to do, where to go, and what to like. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook make decisions for us. Alexa, Siri, and Google Home tell us how, when, and where for everything else. But we weren't wired this way. It's more of a learned trait. All of those pings over time have trained us to read and respond immediately. As soon as an email hits our inbox, we feel the need to respond right back. It's gotten to a point that it controls our time. And yet, I've always been a guy who relies heavily on his gut. Or at least I used to be. When your combined score on the SATs is 900, you either have a good gut or you don't go very far in life. And my instincts have served me well. But as my wife always tells me, the only way to be in tune with your gut is to be alone, thinking. I've found that if you lose your gut feel, you lose one of your greatest secret weapons. In fact, in virtually all areas of life, instinct is critical. When it's firing on all cylinders, the force is always with you. And for me, it's always guided my decisions on friends, work, and life adventures. As I scroll through the thousands of responses to my post, I start to get energized. I know I'm on the right path. The path to the monastery.
I'm in big trouble. He will win who, prepared himself, waits to take the enemy unprepared. Sun Tzu. November 2017, New York City, eight months after the monastery. How do you say I'm fucked in a Zen-like way? Well, I better figure it out quick. I'm not ready for my meeting, so I'm rooting for traffic as I zip up 6th Avenue in the back of a cab. If there's enough of it, then I'll be so late they'll have to cancel the appointment. I'm not looking forward to what's about to happen. But unfortunately, every traffic light instantly turns green as we approach it. We keep moving. It's been eight months since I left the monastery, and today, I'm supposed to deliver a manuscript to my publisher about my monk experience. And I've got nothing. I should say practically nothing. I do have a journal with me, notes I jotted down each night in the tiny room. Monks call it a cell. I lived in for 15 days, but that's it. The taxi pulls over to the side of the street. I pay the cabbie and step onto the midtown Manhattan sidewalk. A public relations mogul once told me that the key to crisis management is to get all of the bad stuff out in the open and on the table right away. So maybe that's what I should do with my meeting. I should come clean with my editor right out of the gate. I'm screwed, Kate. I have nothing. Oh, and good morning. I'm standing on the corner of 6th Avenue and 54th Street when the light changes. The sea of business people who surround me take off like it's an Olympic sprint. I, on the other hand, am in no hurry to cross the crosswalk to get to Hachette Book Group, my publisher. Perhaps I should leave with a positive and sugarcoat the crisis rule. Good morning, Kate. You look great. Did you get a haircut? Oh, and by the way, I'm screwed. I push the glass revolving doors and enter into the wide open lobby. There are two people in a heated argument over a food delivery in the building foyer but no one seems to notice them. Instead, they just swipe their cards on the electronic turnstile and rush to an elevator without buttons. Everyone seems so busy. I start to make my way over to the front desk. Jesse, I hear behind me. Jesse, over here. I turn to see Kate. She's smiling and holding two steaming grande Starbucks lattes. I go over and give her a hello hug, careful not to spill the lattes, of course. She was the editor on my first book, which exceeded her expectations, and it's the sole reason she bought the monk book idea. But the window to leave with my bad news has already opened and shut. We walk over to the elevator bank. I'll just tell her about the book situation when we sit down in the conference room. The Hachette main desk is on the fourth floor. Kate's office is on the fifth. We walk up a staircase to an open room that's filled with editors quietly editing and assistant editors quietly assisting. The cubicles are full of smart-looking people. There's something very zen about it. Or maybe it's just boring. I follow Kate as we snake our way to a windowless conference room. When Kate slides the door shut, it's like we're hermetically sealed. She turns to face me. I can't wait to see what you have, Jesse, she says, smiling. I manufacture a smile and stare back. Kate's still smiling. She's excited to see the manuscript. It was a little more difficult than I thought, I say in a voice that sounds like I'm nine. Her smile begins to fade. It's like a half smile. And there it goes. It's gone.
The monks don't really do much, I say. They're monks, after all. Well, surely you have something, she says. Surely, I say. 150 blank pages of me being silent. Now her smile is a distant memory. I wait for her to say something. What happened? There's a certain freedom in being totally screwed. When you're totally screwed, things can't get any more screwed up. And in that moment, totally screwed, I find the confidence that only comes with being screwed. I push back on the rolling chair, get real comfortable. Let me start at the beginning, I say. Like all great spiritual journeys, this one starts on a mountaintop. The Visibility from Mount Washington Everyone wants to live on top of the mountain, but all the happiness and growth occurs while you're climbing it. Andy Rooney January 2017 I have to start somewhere, and, well, this seems like the perfect spot. It was about two months before I arrived at Newski, and I wasn't thinking about monks or monasteries, no. I was focused on the challenge in front of me the mountain. My friend Kevin the cop had mentioned climbing Mount Washington the previous summer in passing, like someone asking if you wanted to grab lunch next week. Kevin's a police officer in Suffolk County, and at first glance, you'd never guess he's capable of van damming an entire bar full of bad guys. He isn't all that tall, but he's beastly strong and fit. But when you get up real close and look deep into his eyes, you can see the extra screw-loose gene. And yet, Kevin is also one of the most optimistic people I know. He's positive all of the time, unless, of course, he's kicking your ass. But even then, he's positively kicking your ass. When he casually threw out the invitation for a new adventure, we were at my house in Connecticut. Every year, I hold a race called Hell on the Hill. It's a steep, grassy incline that you attempt to run up and down a hundred times. But sometimes it includes paramedics. It's hard. Someone who's really in shape can do it in two hours and 40 minutes. Kevin knocked it out in one hour and 42 minutes. He won the race and beat me by close to an hour. I was bent over trying to catch my breath when he threw the offer out. I asked him how high Mount Washington was between breaths. He said 4.5 miles in a way that made it sound like a walk through the mall. Once I caught my breath, I asked him if it was okay to bring some friends along. He said, sure. So I invited my trainer, Mark Brown, who played linebacker at Auburn and for the New York Jets. He said yes because he's always down for a challenge. And then I extended invitations to my buddies Adam Hynek, a finance guy, and Nick Morris, who started Health Warrior Energy Bars, and they both immediately said yes. I'd never climbed a mountain before, so I had no idea what we were getting into, and I knew nothing about Mount Washington. So when Mark asked me where it was, I said, Vermont, I think. It turns out the mountain is in New Hampshire. Seeing as it was Kevin's idea, I should have known the climb wasn't going to be easy. The first hint of how hard it might be came a few days before we were supposed to leave. I received a couple of emails from him. The first one included a packing list, ice axe, crampons, which are shoes with spikes in them, and multiple layers of Arctic clothing. An ice axe? I had none of the equipment, 
and we were climbing the mountain in two days. What the? The second email had one word in the subject line, survival. The first thought that came to me was, you mean there's a chance I won't? I immediately hit print and put it in my suitcase. I mean, any email with the subject line survival is one that I want to keep. After the second email, I figured I better get a look at what I was getting into. I pulled up the mountain's Wikipedia page on my laptop. How can I explain this? Well, one of the toughest mountains to climb in the United States is Denali in Alaska. And Mount Washington in the winter makes Denali look like a bunny slope. Okay, maybe that's an exaggeration, but the winds at the summit of Mount Washington have been recorded at 265 miles an hour. Mount Washington has one of the highest death rates among climbers of any mountain in the United States. Temperatures can sink to minus 35 on any given day. The climb is a shitstorm of pelting snow and frigid air that blasts you in all four directions. And that's why the mountain earned the title, the world's worst weather. Yeah, I said to myself, a walk through the mall. I headed over to REI with Mark to pick up gear for both of us, as we had nothing. One of the items Kevin strongly suggested was a minus 40 sleeping bag to keep us warm in anything above minus 40 degrees. The plan, he said, was to spend one night sleeping outside on the mountain and then summit the next day. Sleep outside? On the mountain? And with temperatures that get to minus 35, we need a minus 40 sleeping bag to protect us. That doesn't seem like a big margin for error. When I spotted a salesperson in the store, I asked for the minus 40 bags. We're in Atlanta, the sales guy said. Right. We don't have a lot of calls for those here. Do you have two negative 20s, I asked? Or a 10 and two fives? Are you serious? I was serious. If I could wrap myself in two of them, it might work, right? We needed something. I raised my eyebrows a bit to try to get a real response from him. But instead, he delivered one of those pained, try not to be a jerk off kind of smiles that certain salespeople have perfected. We were striking out. Instead, Mark and I purchased the warmest gloves they had and bolted from the store, otherwise empty-handed. At home, I fired up Amazon Prime and ordered the rest of the gear we needed with next-day delivery. And that night, we had a scheduled conference call with the group to go over everything with Kevin. It was kind of like our pregame pep talk. Kevin took us through point-by-point point what we could expect from the mountain. His voice was calm, which started worrying me a bit. What's the greatest risk we face, I asked right after he wrapped up the game plan. Someone breaks their leg and we have to carry them down the mountain, he said. If that happens, we're real shit fucked. They can't land the helicopter up there. What? But it's cool. I'll carry the injured party down and come back for the rest of yous. I'm not sure if yous is a word or not, but I let it go. What if yous break your leg, I asked. The rest of us don't know the way down. The line was silent for a moment. Good point, Kevin said finally. I'll bring Jack. Jack, as it turned out, was a survival expert, something every mountain climb should have. After the call, I decided I should try to get a good night's rest, but I could barely sleep, tossing, turning, and thinking, 
thinking, tossing, and turning. When my morning alarm finally rang, I felt like I only had an hour of sleep. And then at 6 o'clock p.m. the next day, Mark and I landed at Boston's Logan International Airport. The mountain was about 170 miles from Logan, which took us about four hours on the snow-glazed roads. Eventually, we pulled into the ice-covered driveway. The house we rented looked precisely how you think a ski chalet should. Wood everything, stone fireplace, and bunk beds. When we were finally inside, some seven hours after we left Atlanta, I could feel the excitement brewing like an old-school Mr. Coffee machine. Kevin and Jack were already there. With his weathered skin and military gray haircut, Jack looked like a cross between a drill instructor and the Marlboro Man. He even talked with a raspy voice. He was the kind of guy you'd follow into battle or up a mountain. When I unpacked my boots, they still had the tissue paper in them. I felt like the kid who shows up at hockey camp with brand new equipment and then skates on his ankles. I quickly pulled out the tissue paper and shoved it in my pocket. In the kitchen of the house, we had an impromptu huddle. Kevin went over the particulars of the mountain again for us, the height, visibility, or lack thereof, and how long he figured it'd take us to climb, which he said was about an hour for each mile, which meant it should take us close to five hours to reach the summit. When I asked what was the most dangerous thing that could happen, I mean, besides breaking a leg, Jack answered, uh, people have been known to walk off the mountain because they couldn't see the edge, he said, sounding like Quint talking about sharks in the movie Jaws. You mean they just step off? The quick way down. He added that we'd be all right if we stayed close and walked single file with Kevin up front and him in the rear. People have stepped off the mountain? It was a visual I didn't need planted in my head. Fifteen minutes later, I was clomping around on the wood floors with my new boots, and five minutes after that, my legs were so tired it was like the boots were made out of cinder blocks. They were also as stiff as ski boots. It felt like they were cutting off my circulation at the ankles when I leaned forward. How the hell was I going to climb a mountain in them? Next, I put on my brand new backpack and clomped up and down the floor. It wasn't going well. If this had been a slasher flick, the audience would have pointed to me and said, yup, that dude right there, he's going to die first. Kevin explained that packing your backpack is one of the most important things someone climbing a mountain can do. It's paramount to survival. It can mean life or death when you're up there at zero degrees with zero visibility. Showing us, Kevin precisely placed all of my items into the pack. Insulation, winter coat, three pairs of gloves, water, food, and goggles. All the essentials are up at the top and easy to access. It's kind of like elevator science. First in, last out. Last in, first out. The sleeping bag goes on the bottom. Then your heaviest jacket, heaviest layer, lighter jacket, light layer, hat. Goggles and gloves are on top with extra ski hats. Your insulation roller, you need something to put under the sleeping bag when you sleep so you don't freeze as you lose the most heat through the ground, is tied to the bottom of the backpack. Three bottles of water are put in insulation sleeves that dangle from the side of the pack, and you fill them three quarters of the way so they freeze slower. Food is in the outside pockets, 
then you also have an ice axe attached to your backpack. Fully loaded, the pack weighs 57 pounds. 57 pounds while wearing stiff cinder block boots. No problem. It was the eve of my next big adventure. So I blasted it all over Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that I was at Mount Washington. They say that one of the best ways to accomplish a goal is to have an accountability partner. What better way to do that than putting it out on social media? Immediately, the responses started coming in. I didn't know you were a climber, I'm a cold weather guy, and you're on top of the world. And with each response, I could feel the pressure rising. The next morning, we got up at 0500. After breakfast at a local diner, we drove 45 minutes to the mountain. The first thing I saw when we arrived was a sign that said, avalanche danger. Avalanches? Nobody told me about avalanches. Neither Kevin nor Jack reacted to the sign. It was as if it was as common as a slow, children playing sign. We parked the car, unpacked, and prepared for our climb. And then we headed over to the mountain. People slide off the mountain. One thing you have to learn before we start in case one of you guys fall and start to slide is how to stop the fall, Kevin said as he showed us how to stop ourselves with an ice axe on a small hill before the climb. So, to recap, in climbing Mount Washington, you can break a leg, Walk off the mountain. The winds have blown at almost 300 miles per hour. Visibility is less than zero. You need to use an ice axe to stop yous from sliding off the mountain and yous could freeze to death. Other than that, there was really nothing to it. As I watched the demonstration, I thought to myself, yup, Sarah might have been right. I tend to jump into things without thinking about the consequences. Aim, fire, ready? I guess I started to get a little case of cold feet, even in my stiff mountain boots. Hey, Kevin, I said privately, I heard something about tour guides. Do we have one? No, he said. Any reason? It's a fucking mountain, Jesse, he said. It goes up. But you live with a Navy SEAL, he said. And if we get lost, we'll just use the force. Well, at least we have Jack, I said. He's kind of like a tour guide. No, Jesse, Jack's a human ambulance. That's it. Even though it was zero degrees when we were about to climb, I wore only a long-sleeve Patagonia performance t-shirt to start. The cardinal rule of hiking in the winter is no cotton. When cotton gets wet, it ceases to insulate the body because all of the air pockets in the fabric fill up with water. When you're lugging a 57-pound pack, even in zero degrees, you begin to sweat quickly. And sweat is the enemy because if you sweat and cool off, you'll get hypothermia. At least that's what Kevin and Jack told me, and I believe them. They said one of the keys to surviving the outdoors and the cold elements is to control your body temp as best you can. And as you go higher in altitude, you begin to layer up. A mile up, you put on a long sleeve shirt. Above the tree line, a light jacket. And at the top, your Arctic jacket. It was go time. We started to climb. Higher and higher. Our first goal was to get to where we would camp for the night, which was about 2.2 miles up the mountain. 
and we arrived there a few hours later. The camp area consisted of a series of wood platforms with roofs. No walls. They were fully exposed. Luckily, we found one that had snowbank walls creating an igloo effect to block the wind. The plan now was to bunk down for the night and get an early jump on the climb the next day. The view of the other mountains was incredible, but it was still too snowy to see the top of our peak. And it was only 2 o'clock p.m. So we had 19 hours before our next go time. 19 hours. 19 Atlanta hours go by like a flash. 19 New York City hours feel like 19 minutes. But here at base camp, it seemed like a very long time. Immediately, Jack pulled out a small propane tank and started a fire. Later, he made a dinner for us of oatmeal and pasta. The sun went down at 4.30 p.m. and we ate by flashlight. At about 7 o'clock, we went out for a hike. There was nothing to see in the pitch darkness, but it was good to have something to do. We bumped into another hiker while we were out, the only other human we saw in hours. The guy had a grizzly Adam's beard and wintry, weathered skin, and he was eating an apple with no gloves. No gloves! I had two pairs of gloves on and glove warmers, and my fingertips were still frozen. It looked like this guy lived on top of the mountain and hadn't been anywhere else in his life, ever. Adam asked him if he'd ever summited the mountain. Adam, you fucking moron, I thought. Of course this guy has summited the mountain. That's like asking Aquaman if he swims. 37 times, the guy said. By the time we got back to camp, the conversation was played out. And so, with no cell phone service, radio, internet connection, there was nothing to do. There were absolutely no distractions. I started to get tired. It was either the thin air or clomping around in the boots that did me in. We all zipped into our sleeping bags. Kevin boiled water to put it in our water bottles and instructed us to put them in our sleeping bags to warm them up. It worked. I felt like a frozen burrito in the microwave. I looked at my phone. It was 8.03 p.m. I could feel and see my breath. In and out, in and out, in and out. I kept watching and feeling my breath. I stayed like that for what seemed like hours. And then I closed my eyes again and just focused on the warmth inside my sleeping bag. I remained still just passing the hours in my frigid surroundings. There was no sensation of time, and when I finally opened my eyes, I thought it was a day later. I looked at my watch. It was 8.25 p.m. Only 22 minutes had passed? That was impossible. 22 minutes? A thought came to me, the first of several that would lead me to a monastery. This one was as clear as the mountain air and it was delivered in a voice that was like a whisper in my ear. My relationship with time is out of balance. When I'm in my routine, time flies. When I'm not in my routine, time slows. It was a feeling I wanted to bottle up and save. At 6.35 a.m., I was up and anxious to start. It was cold as fuck. I threw on my jacket, slipped on my concrete boots, and walked 10 yards away from camp in the thick powder to urinate. 
When I got back, I ducked right into my sleeping bag to get warm. Everyone was already up and chatting. We made a safety plan. If we didn't get to the summit by 1 o'clock p.m., then no matter where we were on the mountain, we had to turn around. After that time, it would get too dark and too dangerous. We all agreed. It was a pact. We started to get ready to roll. On went my boots, thermals, and backpack. Jack had told me yesterday to hold my breath when I put on my goggles or they'd fog up, and it'd be 100% impossible to defog them. I took a huge breath like a sixth grader jumping into the deep end of the pool, and then I quickly put my goggles on to test the method. It worked. It was time to climb. 9.15 a.m. We came upon a tree on which was tacked an avalanche report. It instructed us to go back about a mile to take a different approach. Great. Jack and Kevin seemed to take this information in stride. But I had an image in my head of body surfing a massive wave of snow, unsuccessfully. We did an about face and headed back from where we'd come. 10.30 a.m. Eventually, we started to hike higher. Most of the snow had been blown off the mountain, but there were spots where it was up to the top of our boots and walking through it was like walking in a wading pool filled with glue, only up at a 45-degree angle. The climb was so steep, we had to hold on to trees or roots, otherwise we'd fall. Now I understood how people slid off the mountain. The new plan called for us to reach the summit by 1.30 p.m., which would still give us enough time to get back down the mountain before sunset. But we agreed that 1.30 was the absolute new cutoff time. We'll make good time until we get above the tree line, Kevin said. Then it'll get hairy. What do you mean, hairy? You'll find out, he said. Noon. We took a trail called Lion's Head, the winter out. This is where things get real, according to Jack. From there, we'd either try to make it to the summit or turn around to go home. And that's when I learned there's a huge difference between above the tree line and below the tree line. We were no longer protected from the elements. When we reached the top of Lion's Head, the gusts had to be at least 40 miles an hour. It was like someone turned a snow machine on in my face. The wind blew a fine powder, making it hard to see my hand in front of me. Instantly, it was like we were in a giant snow globe that had just been picked up by a rambunctious eight-year-old. The snow was shaking at us from all angles. Go to your left, Kevin shouted. What? Go to your left. What? Go to your left. I moved to my left. At this point, to communicate, everyone had to yell. And still, we could barely hear each other with the wind and snow whipping around. Kevin pulled out orange sticks from his pack to mark our trail so we'd know our way back as we inched higher. But the problem was, I couldn't see the sticks a few steps after I passed one. I looked back, and it was like they'd instantly disappear. We need four hours of daylight to get back to base camp, Jack yelled over a gust of wind. At the rate we're going, we'll never reach the summit in time. We all sort of stopped and huddled and the snowy wind kept whipping around. It was decision time. Kevin looked slightly concerned. Guys, I yelled, I got four kids and I'm 
friggin' scared. We made a pact. No one debated that. Plus, these were those important instincts I mentioned earlier that we all need to rely on. We're only a quarter mile from the top, Kevin said, almost like he was trying to convince himself to keep going. But we collectively decided to turn around. It was only when we returned safely on the flat earth that the disappointment set in. Still, the whole experience had left me with a sense of exhilaration. When you climb something so high and so dangerous, you feel like you're the first person on the planet to do it. But it was more than just the challenge. On the mountain, I could actually feel time, sense it. I could touch it and hold it. The higher we climbed, the more real it felt. People often tell me time is precious, but they don't really know. They only think it's precious when it's gone or it's slipping by. On the mountain, time felt precious because of the way you experienced it. There were moments, not minutes. Four days later. I was sitting in bed with Sarah and still not over the disappointment of not completing the challenge of the mountain. My email was filled with friends reminding me that I didn't make it. Must be tough to get that far and not finish, one of them read. I failed, I said to my wife, putting down my phone. No, you didn't, she said. That's crazy talk. No, I failed. I took my friends and we didn't make it. I need to go back. That's a wonderful idea, sweetie. Plan a weekend next winter, get a tour guide, you numbskull, and properly break in your boots. Next winter, I said. Next winter? No way. I'm going back on Saturday. Saturday? Yes, this Saturday. I have no guarantee that I'll be here to do it next winter. I have no idea if I'll be healthy enough next winter. I'm going back this weekend. The mountain reminded me how important time is. Putting things off can often lead to regret. Acting now, even if the timing isn't perfect or everything isn't figured out, has always been the way I operate. It's often the difference between failure and incredible accomplishment. You can't outsmart time, but you can learn to maximize it. I was going back on Saturday. That Saturday. After a lot of processing by Sarah, I got a hall pass. But this time, it was for only 24 hours. There was no overnight. The plan was to climb up to the summit, get back down before dark, and then fly home. We estimated the climb would be about 10 hours round trip. Kevin reviewed the safety procedures and we started on our journey up the mountain around 7 a.m. As we climbed higher and higher and higher, it felt like we were walking on the moon. There was a freezing mix of pelting snow, fierce wind, and icy ice, and it was layered with a healthy amount of fear. And then, five hours later, the same crew from last week, plus the local guide, stood on top of the summit of Mount Washington, hugging in celebration. There are 7 billion people on the face of the earth, and yet, it felt like we were the sole survivors, the last of the human race, alone and frozen in time. As we made our way down the mountain, I was reminded of a quote I love by Haruki Murakami. 
And once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure, in fact, whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. In that frigid isolation, another of those guiding thoughts came to me. I needed this feeling permanently in my life or at least a way to access it when needed. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was the beginning of my journey to the monastery. Here I come. Everything changes. Nothing remains without change. Buddha. March 2017, the night before the monastery. I'm not a selfie guy, not even close. Don't get me wrong. I'm as vain as the next guy. But how many times can you look at your own picture? I just don't get it. But here I was, standing in my living room, staring at my hair, about to take a selfie. I checked myself in the mirror and pulled my hair back as tight as it could go to see what it was going to look like. Hmm, I wasn't so sure about this. I turned my head to the left and got a profile view and it wasn't much better. I grabbed my phone and flipped the camera so I could get a nice tight shot of just my head. Snap, snap. And then I took my finger and tried to block out where my hair was, but it still wasn't doing the trick. I needed something else. I went to the app store and searched for Make Me Bald. I scrolled through the numerous options and decided on Baldify. Go bald. 99 cents. Secretly, I was hoping I'd look so ridiculous. I wouldn't do it. But the clock was ticking. Jessica, my wife's hairstylist, was on her way over. She comes to her house to cut Sarah's hair about once a month, and I usually piggyback a trim off it. I called her earlier in the day for an emergency appointment. Finally, the app downloaded. Just as I clicked it open, I heard the front door open and shut. Hello, honey, I'm home, Sarah said, and so is Jessica. While my wife kissed our four lovely children hello, Jessica transformed our bathroom into a pop-up salon. I put the phone in my pocket and sat down in the chair. I realized I just wasted 99 cents on the app. Jessica wrapped me in a black smock, and I looked at myself in the mirror. I have curly blonde hair that's been a bit unruly. It's been my trademark since I was a kid. It's like my version of Madonna's beauty mark, Fonzie's jacket, or Nelly's band-aid back in the day. It's my thing. I've always worn a headband or ski hat with my blonde locks leaking out. But though the decision was a drastic one, I've made up my mind. I was going bald. Sarah, I yelled, it's go time. I needed my wife to watch. This was an emotional moment, and I wanted her support. Sarah walked into the bathroom with a pretzel rod hanging from her mouth like a cigar. Tell me this again, sweetie, she said. Why in the world are you shaving your head? Because it's required. Required? I'm going to a monastery, silly. This is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Don't you think you're being a bit extreme, Jesse? Extreme? Not at all. I have to do it. No hair is basic monastery 101. Going with a mop of hair would be disrespectful. Sarah snapped off a bite of her pretzel. I can't believe I signed up for this, she said. 
I really can't believe I signed up for this. There must have been an echo in the room. But it's a known fact in our marriage that when Sarah tells me about something that bothers her, she says it twice. Sort of like Jimmy two times and Goodfellas, except Sarah isn't an Italian mobster. She's my primary. I know, honey, I said, and that's why I love you. Fire it up, Jessica, she said with another chomp of repressal. Shave it all off. Jessica plugged in the razor and flipped it on. It sounded like a swarm of angry bees. I closed my eyes when the electric buzz went next to my ear. I felt the cold metal teeth touch the skin at the base of my skull. Jessica slowly slid the electric razor up to the top of my head. I looked down to see my blonde locks bounce off the smock and hit the ground in a little hairy pile. I closed my eyes again, and when I opened them, I looked more like Walter White from Breaking Bad than a monk in the movie Gandhi. Sarah and I spent the next hour staring at my shaved head. Not really. But I kept taking a peek in the mirror while we got the kids ready for bed. We have four. All of them are under the age of seven, so organization and efficiency are keys to success. We devised a kind of human car wash. Sarah takes our two three-year-old boys in the bath and helps them. She washes, they splash. Then she passes them over to the tub to me, where I towel dry them, apply their pull-ups, and put on their PJs. Meanwhile, my oldest son, Laser, age seven, gets in the tub next. The grand finale is our daughter, who's 15 months old, and the whole process takes about 20 minutes. And then from there, it's story time with mommy and tucking time with daddy. The next morning, I was in full-on hustle mode, completing the final preparations for my trip. I'd written a list of all the scheduled activities for the kids to give to Sarah, even though it's on her calendar, and put together to-dos and where are they's for her. Get banana chips for the kids, lock the doors at night where the soccer cleats are. I was transcribing them onto post-its and sticking them to the refrigerator door when I looked over and noticed Sarah peering into my open suitcase. It was like she was eyeing a penny she dropped into a wishing well. My bag contained fruits and veggies, lots and lots of fruits and veggies. I had dozens of bananas, 26 apples, three bags of organic carrot, 30 oranges, a box of spinach, and three sticks of celery for garnish. I packed it myself. For 27 years, I've only eaten fruit until noon. The fast explanation is that most digestion requires a tremendous amount of energy. That's why if you eat a big meal, you often get tired afterward. So if we streamline our digestion and use less energy during the process, it frees up more energy for everything else. Fruit, if eaten correctly, digests super efficiently. So I wanted to ensure I'd have enough of a supply at the monastery. Who knows what monks eat? In fact, I know nothing about monks outside of what I've seen in the movies. And my only recollection is that they're small, spiritual, quiet, and oozing with wisdom. You never see a monk eat in a movie. Weird, right? I'm assuming there are clothes in here somewhere, Sarah half said, half asked. Yes, honey. Did you pack a robe, Mahatma? Ha. I actually thought about it, but they'll probably give me one, right? I was kidding. I'm not. I'm going 
full Dalai Lama. Robe, sandals, the whole bit. Sandals? Absolutely. Isn't this place in Vermont? Upstate New York. It's the middle of March, Jesse. They probably have four feet of snow. Snow is a non-issue. It's 72 and sunny. Mind over matter. Plus, I'll probably be meditating half of the day anyway. Meditating? (laughs) That's a funny one. Um, how do I say this politely, Jess? You can't sit still for half a minute, let alone half a day. Just last week at your friend's wedding ceremony, you kept tapping Orlando's shoulder and then you'd pretend to be asleep when he turned around. You're the least likely to go to a monastery. I love you, I said with a kiss, but I gotta go. I'll call you when I land. My Uber driver dropped me off right next to the Delta Gate. I slung my pack over my back and wheeled my suitcase of produce across the crosswalk. I had plenty of time. The flight didn't leave for an hour or so. The electric sliding doors opened as I walked into the Atlanta airport without breaking stride. The check-in gate was right in front of me. There was no one in line, so I rolled right up to the agent. She greeted me with a sweet Georgia, how can I help you smile? After I got my boarding pass, I took a stroll. I wasn't shopping, just killing time. I popped in and out of a couple of stores, living in my own world when I heard, last call for flight 261 to Albany, showtime. I race walked to the boarding gate and was the last one on the plane. I was in seat 2A. The guy in seat 2B ordered a Bloody Mary. He kind of looked like an unprepared high school substitute teacher. Something about him screamed, I'm in transition. Maybe it was his ill-fitting suit, or perhaps it was the comb-over. Regardless, when I looked over at him again, he smiled a toothy grin. The flight attendant brought him a can of V8 and two little vodka bottles. I'm not usually into the seatmate small talk that occurs on a plane, especially with some guy firing back Bloody Marys at 10 a.m., but sometimes you just get sucked in. Albany. Tubi said as he cracked the first vodka bottle, not some of God's best work. I tried to give him a genuine laugh, but it was hard. It came to me that I should pull out my journal and start writing. Most people are smart enough to pick up on that hint, so I started writing. I wasn't sure where to begin, so I wrote down anything, anything that came to mind. After a while, I felt like I was starting to catch a groove. That was until... What do you do? 2B asked, slurping his filled-to-the-rim plastic cup. I'm an entrepreneur, I said, but I'm focused on living life for a living. Nice. And weird, 2B said. What's in Albany for you? Well, to that point, I said, I'm going to live in a monastery. Like, on purpose? No sleep till new skeet. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing, Socrates. My longtime friend, Turney Duff, offered to pick me up at the Albany airport when he heard I was coming to New York. And as I walked out of the terminal, I saw him standing in the parking lot. He was leaned up against his Honda Civic Hybrid smoking a cigarette. I walked toward him. He let out a puff of smoke and looked directly at the top of my head. You sick? No, I said, I told you. I'm going to live at a monastery. He nodded like he'd just put it all together. Last time I shaved my head, I was in rehab. 
It kind of feels like that's where I'm going, I said. Why are you doing this anyway? I want to unlock the how. The how to be a better version of me. You know, learn how to have better habits, better routines, and a better mindset. Then I can share the secrets. You were to shave your head for that? Well, at a minimum, it's going to be good to step away from my phone and get off social media. I mean, do you think Thomas Edison would have ever invented electricity if he was on Instagram all day? I'm pretty sure Ben Franklin is the electricity guy, and he didn't invent it. He discovered it, you jackass. Same thing. And thank you for picking me up. You're welcome. And I figure if you get all wise and shit at the monastery, well, then some of that might rub off on me for being involved, right? Like the transitive property. Turney, I love you, but with all due respect, you're just driving me there. That's not really being involved. Then get the hell out of my car, he said with a smile. Before throwing my bags into his trunk, I checked on my fruits and vegetables. Shoot, all the bananas had gone brown. Damn it. It must have been too cold in the baggage compartment of the plane. This is going to seriously mess up my morning ritual, I said. You're worried about messing up your ritual? You're going to live with monks, he said. Rituals are the least of your issues. You think it's going to be hard? Harder than you think. It's not like running a marathon, he said, where you're done in a few hours and you get to relax on your couch. There's no escape from the monastery. You're probably right, but what the fuck do you know about running marathons? He ignored my question as I continued to check on my fruit. I discovered two bananas left that were still yellow with brown spots. All of the others had turned rotten. I offered a good one to Turney. I don't do fruit, he said, unless it's in a Pop-Tart. We hopped in. Okay, there's no polite way to say this. His car was disgusting. It smelled like an ashtray and there were empty Coke bottles all over the floor and what looked like some kind of animal fur on the seats. Do you have pets? I don't, he said. Why? No reason. It was about an hour drive to Nooski from the airport and we were about a half hour into the trip when I noticed the amount of snow on the ground. The snow banks on both sides of the roads made it feel like we were traveling in a bobsled and the names of the towns and streets we passed seemed misspelled or random, maybe both. Actually, that wasn't fair of me. In 1980, I got knocked out of the sixth grade spelling bee in the first round, and I'm talking the first first round. Not in front of the school, nope. I didn't even make it out of the classroom. My word was bicycle. I spelled it how it sounded, bicycle. But then we passed a sign for Husik River, Requiet Road, Marp Road, and then Klum Road. It was like they forgot a letter in each of the names, or maybe I'm still a terrible speller. Since Turney and I were way past the point of small talk, I passed the time by Googling the street names. Husik is an Algonquin Indian word. Requiet is someone's last name. Marp is Hebrew, I think, and Klum meant quiet in Old English but there was neither rhyme nor reason to them. I hoped it wasn't a sign of things to come. After a while, Turney asked if I was hungry, which I suddenly was. We pulled over at Benson's restaurant. It looked like it may have been a house at one time. The parking lot was half full and all of the vehicles were pickup trucks, mostly with hunting stickers on the bumpers. 
and virtually all of them had snowplows attached. The snow crunched underneath our boots as we crossed the parking lot. I'm thinking they don't make smoothies here. Um, I'm guessing they probably serve live bison here. I was right. No smoothies. But it turned out they did have a salad on the menu. I ordered two and asked the waitress to bring the second round when I finished the first. Turney ordered mozzarella sticks, potato skins, a cheeseburger extra rare, and french fries. It's amazing he's not 400 pounds. He's not even half that. Oh, and a Diet Coke, too. I have a high resting metabolism, he explained. I made a mental note to try to be more of a positive influence on his health when I got back. Eventually, our waitress brought the first round of food. As she set down our plates, I decided it was a good time to ask her if she knew anything about the monastery. I mean, we're pretty close to it, so. Hello, ma'am. We're heading up to New Skeet, I said. Are you a dog lover? What a strange question to my question, I thought. The waitress smiled. No, I'm going to the monastery. They're not cheap, but they're adorable when they're pups. I'm sorry, I said. I'm actually going to the monastery. But she had already disappeared back into the kitchen before I could finish my sentence. I looked over at Turney to see if he was as confused as I was, but he was having an intimate moment with his fried food. Back in the parking lot when we finished lunch, I told Turney I needed to make a few phone calls before we hit the road. I'd heard there was no cell service at the monastery, so I figured I should get all my last calls in before I went radio silent. Just as I was about to dial my mom, I got an incoming buzz. I checked the screen, and it was my friend Dorit. She's a yoga instructor in New York City. She's a good friend, but we hardly ever talk on the phone. I hoped everything was okay. Hello? Thank God I caught you, she blurted. I saw Facebook. You're going to live at a monastery? Not forever, I said. What's up? But it's going to be silent, right? I don't know, I said. I think so. How have you been? Whatever you do, don't take the vow of silence. She was making the word vow sound like a batch of Jim Jones Kool-Aid. Wait, why? My friend? He went on a silent retreat, seven days? When they finally told him he could talk, he couldn't stop. Like, ever. He just kept talking and talking and talking. Huh? He hasn't stopped talking since, she said. It got so bad, he was institutionalized. Come on, I'm not kidding. I've been up to visit him. He just sits in a chair talking to a wall. Um... This isn't the conversation I like to have right before I get there. I'm sorry, but I'm dead serious. If they ask you to be silent, just say no. Off the grid. Be where you are, otherwise you will miss your life. Buddha. A worrisome feeling sank to the bottom of my two servings of salad-filled stomach. I was heading for the big slowdown. You okay? Turney asked as we started driving again. Not really. Dorit said after taking a vow of silence, some guy ended up in a funny farm. Why? Because he couldn't stop talking. About what? I don't know, and I hope I don't find out. Turney told me we were about five miles from the monastery. I turned and looked back out the window. 
The Honda's wheels spun on some ice and then caught the dry country road. We were in a part of New York State not a lot of outsiders know about. People often associate New York with skyscrapers and the sidewalk outside of the Today Show. But upstate is rural. Real rural. I mean, like a secret kind of rule that locals don't want you knowing about. We rode through a town that looked like the word neighbor still meant something. It was quiet and quaint and had character. I rolled down the window and a blast of cold air slapped me in the face. The rolling tires on the pavement had a sort of hypnotic buzz to them. I noticed a shift in the atmosphere. It felt different. I looked over at Turney to see if he noticed it too. It feels very monkish up here, I said. You feel it? It feels fucking insane up here. That's how it feels. We passed snow-covered farmland with old barns and claptrap houses that looked like they were about ready to fall. I was starting to get lost in the sights when I realized there were a few more texts and emails I should fire off. I tapped out a text to Sarah and hit send, but the little circle in the upper corner of my phone just spun uncontrollably. I'd lost cell service already. I was officially off the grid. We went through another little town and the road started to climb. Except for the snow-covered evergreens, the other trees were bare, spindly branches that were kind of eerie. We were in the middle of nowhere, and I mean nowhere. Like if they hired Seal to find us, he'd struggle to locate our coordinates. Finally, we saw a wood sign that read, Nooski. As Turney's car climbed higher and higher, the road seemed to become narrower and more treacherous. Even though the sun was out and a minute ago it made the snow gleam, now it was dark under the soaring pine trees. His car continued to climb the road like it was on a chain lift for a roller coaster. And after a few minutes up the mountain, I finally spotted something other than nature. It was a large green building on the right, and it looked industrial, a large Quonset hut type of thing. And then another 50 yards up, a similar type building was visible. We drove higher. And at the top of the road, a thicket of birch trees opened up. And I saw the monastery, which was a one-story building made out of barn board painted a rusty red. It looked like a mountain ski lodge, except for all the crosses on the roof. Wait, what? Crosses? And not only crosses but the kind with the big gold onion-shaped bulbs on the bottom like you see in St. Petersburg and not the St. Petersburg in Florida. Holy shit, I said. Dude, don't pair the word shit with the word holy, Turney responded. That's not going to work up here. This is not what you expected? Oh, I should have done a little more research into this place, but I didn't want to have any preconceived notions of what I was getting into. So I was a little blindsided by the whole Christian thing. I grew up in a mostly Jewish town in Long Island. I mean, going Buddhist is one thing, but Christian? I guess I knew there were Christian monks. I just didn't think I was going to be one of them. I took in the landscape. The monastery was cut right out of the side of a mountain surrounded by full pine and other trees that were winter bare. Sarah was right. The snow was about four feet deep and it muffled all sound. The place was completely soundless. It was so quiet when we got out of the car, I could practically hear my heartbeat. 
When you're always surrounded by noise, the absence of it is a little unnerving. You hear that? Turney said. What? It sounds like nothing. He and I walked across the snow-covered parking lot until we got to the shoveled walkway. I set my steel wheeling bag down and pulled. The noise the wheels made rolling on the pavement sounded like a bowling ball headed down the alley. It echoed, 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 echoed. Pick it up, Turney said. It's too loud. You're going to piss off the monks. So I did. The main building of the monastery was made out of wood planks painted red with a pitch roof that was covered with a foot of snow. In front of the building sat a wooden bell tower that was two stories high. Then there was another building to our right and up a walkway with several more crosses on the roof. And then I spotted the yellow door. The only prior communication I had with the monastery was one email. That's it. I pulled out the instructions I received in that correspondence. It said to find the yellow door upon arrival and just open it. The information specifically said, do not ring the bell. As we approached the entryway, there was a sign on the door next to the bell. Do not ring the bell. Okay, I got it. They didn't want the bell rung. The bell equaled noise. I opened the door and quietly tiptoed into the entryway. It was so damn quiet. Immediately, it felt like I'd just stuck my nose into an old, unopened library book. If monasteries have a smell, this was it. A musky, earthy odor that was somewhere between sleepaway camp and a funeral parlor. There were old photos on the wall of men in group shots. Some of the images were black and white, and in them, the young faces were topped with dark hair. But in other pictures, some in color, those same faces were older and the hair had gone white. Turney followed me as we walked down a dark hallway looking for someone to help me. But there wasn't even a hint of anyone in the building. It was library quiet. We kept walking. And then, the hall opened up to a dining room. Long wooden tables were placed in a rectangle with wooden chairs all around. I peeked my head around the doorway and saw a guy sitting at the far end. He was alone, just sitting there. He looked helpful, or maybe he was my only choice. Regardless, I slowly approached. On the floor next to him lay a giant German shepherd that barely raised his eyes. You must be Jesse, the man said as he stood. He was the authentic version of what young hipsters are trying to look like. He had a scraggly beard, thinning brown hair, glasses, and a navy blue sweatshirt. I told him I was Jesse and then introduced Turney. We all shook hands. Did you find the place okay? Yes, thanks to GPS, I said. Good, good. We're a little remote, but we like it that way. I'm supposed to speak with Brother Christopher, I said. Well, you are. Your brother Christopher? You sound surprised. I'm sorry, you're just not what I expected. Ah, expectation. That often leads to disappointment. Well, what did you expect, my friend? I ran my hand over the stubble on my skull. Oh, he said. 
looking at my nearly smooth dome. We all have hair here. Well, except for the brothers that lost their hair by the Lord's will. The Lord's will? The Lord blessed me with hair and I voluntarily shaved it off? Turney looked at me and shrugged. I had a feeling like I was lost or maybe in the wrong classroom on the first day of school. I was hoping for the full Buddhist monk experience and instead, I got a gentle guy who looked like he worked at a farmer's market every Saturday and Sunday with a big dog by his side. Just then, Brother Christopher's German shepherd came to life to sniff me out. Her name is Reesa. After getting a quick whiff, she darted to my rotten banana-filled suitcase. She went nuts, wagging her tail and scratching at my luggage, trying to open it up. Raisa, down, he said. The dog immediately retreated and then sat. Whoa, that was amazing. Is the dog for security, I asked. In a way, he laughed. Here, take a seat. We all sat at the dining table and started to chat. It turned out Brother Christopher knew a lot more about me than I did about him. He'd read Living with a Seal. And when he mentioned that, I started thinking about all of the curse words in it and felt a flush of embarrassment. Seal one-liners from my book like, Google me, motherfucker, flooded into my consciousness. What had Brother Christopher thought when he was reading it? Did he read it after he'd already agreed to let me stay at the monastery? Was he already regretting the invitation? Or was he going to suddenly stand up and scream, Tranquility test, motherfucker? Of course not. Although I barely knew him, he had a soothing, soft way that put me immediately at ease. I enjoyed the read very much, he said. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was visceral, Brother Christopher added, and reading it was like watching a movie. Seal has a lot of the same qualities as monks. What? Do these monks do 2,500 push-ups a day, run on broken bones, and sleep in oxygen deprivation tents? I started to question if Brother Christopher had really read the book. You should invite Seal to the monastery. Wouldn't that be something? Do you still speak with him? I do. Do you still have adventures with him? As a matter of fact, I was in Los Angeles six months ago with Seal trying to get a TV deal. I thought, still do, the story was perfect for a sitcom, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air meets Rambo. How could they say no? Or so I thought. So I told Brother Christopher this story, but gave him the PG-13 version of it. Seal and I traveled separately to L.A. and met the first morning at my hotel. In the Uber on the way to Century City West, I explained to Seal the significance of our meetings and try to put it in language that would really appeal to him. My mission is to get a TV deal before we leave Los Angeles, and we've got 48 hours to get it done. Seal slowly turned his head my way. I was familiar with his expression. You think this is a mission, motherfucker, he said? A mission? This isn't a mission, Jesse. You have no idea what a mission is. At best, this is a want. And a want and a mission aren't even in the same atmosphere. A mission? What the fuck do you know about a mission? He's right. I haven't even seen any of the Mission Impossible movies. 
But I thought there was a little latitude with that word. I knew better than to disagree. I saw the driver checking us out in the rearview mirror, but he quickly looked away when Seal spotted him. There was a long pause, and the car filled with silence. The driver started driving faster, and Seal looked even more agitated than he was moments before. It was like his agitation was growing. With every block we drove, he seemed more pissed off. Finally, he started fidgeting with the seatbelt, and it diffused him like a fidget spinner. If I'm being generous, I'd say today is your goal, he eventually added, but it's not a mission. Roger that. I made a mental note to be careful using the word mission with SEAL. In some circles, SEAL is known as the toughest man on the planet. But the main thing you need to know about him is he has a zero-tolerance policy for bullshit. It's one of the first lessons I learned from him. Regardless, we both agreed we were in Los Angeles for a reason. And I knew without SEAL, there was no book. And without a book, there was no television deal. Our driver dropped us off right in front of the valet at Fox Studios. We were there to meet Jeff, our Jerry Maguire. I talked Jeff a big time to Seal and hoped he'd live up to the billing. And when Jeff strolled up, he was wearing a bold, pinstripe suit that stood out starkly in the California sun. His smile was just as bright. The only thing he was missing was a catchy theme song while he walked in slow motion. Though he wasn't your typical Hollywood agent, he looked the part. Jeff was about 10 feet away when Seal turned around to our group. Who the hell is this clown? That's our agent. Well, why is our motherfucking agent wearing perfume? I prayed Jeff wouldn't use the word mission, and thankfully he didn't. We had two meetings lined up that day, ABC and Fox. The plan was for the hired writer and our motherfucking agent to pitch the storyline, and we chime in as we saw fit. For the Fox meeting, we all convened in a giant conference room. It was like the beginning of the movie The Warriors, when all of the gangs in the city meet up in the Bronx for a special meeting. There was a Fox gang, a CAA, Creative Artist Agency gang, a production company gang, and a Living with the Seal gang. But instead of everyone wearing their colors, they were dressed up in business attire, except me and Seal. We were casual. The meeting was so big, it felt like the assistants of the assistants were in there taking notes. I was shocked to see the average age across the table from me. It seemed like all the decision makers were younger than 30, male and female. And boy, could they talk. 90 minutes of talking and talking and talking and talking. Everyone was pitching everyone. But the vibe wasn't working, and I looked over at Seal to see if he was picking up on the same thing. And I think it was about 89 minutes ahead of me. He stayed laser-focused on the pitch document in front of him. He hadn't said a single word the entire meeting. As I said before, he has no tolerance for bullshit, and I could tell he was done. But they kept talking. The meeting was close to wrapping. It had to be, right? And then one of the younger female executives sort of head-nodded Seal with a smile. Hey, you, she said with a light laugh. Are you going to talk? Seal stood up. The room went silent. 
I only talk when I have something intelligent to say. I don't just talk to hear myself talk. Boom. That was the most intelligent thing said all meaning. The meeting was over. And on to ABC where things didn't go much better. The next day at CBS, I told Jeff to let Seal and me pitch the story. I thought we could tell it much better as we are the story. It's like I always tell young entrepreneurs, you are the business plan. And that went much better. We ended up with a deal at CBS. But the deal fell through, I said, so we're still out there shopping it. And then Brother Christopher stood up and smiled. His dog did the same without the smile. Well, why don't we get you started? The tour. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Buddhist proverb. Brother Christopher led the way. There wasn't a whole lot to see. The kitchen was the size of what you might find at a small summer camp. There was a little gift shop with books, a meeting room, and a small reading room. The three of us, Turney, the dog, and me dragging my banana-filled suitcase, followed our monk guide. On the way, he gave us a short history of the monks of Nuskeet. The name comes from the Greek word skeet, which means a small, monastic order of monks. The first skeets were in Egypt thousands of years ago. The Nuskeet monks started out as part of a Roman Catholic order of friars, but then a dozen or so of them asked for permission to branch off to find something a little more intense, more monastic. They first moved to a hunting lodge in northwestern Pennsylvania. Then, in 1967, they bought 500 acres at $50 per acre on Two Top Mountain near the village of Cambridge, New York. Once there, with the help of local people, they built the entire monastery by hand. Monks have always been self-supporting in the most authentic sense, Brother Christopher told us as we walked down the wood-paneled hallway. The founders of our monastery did everything and anything they could to support themselves, including farming, carpentry, and animal husbandry. I saw Attorney stifle a laugh. He must have had images of lonely shepherds playing in his mind. Of course, all that changed when we went to the dogs. Went to the dogs? I didn't get it. The monastery seemed to be doing fine. Brother Christopher stopped and opened a door to a small, sparse bedroom. You'll be sleeping here, he said. I hope you find it comfortable. My monastery room was about eight feet long by six feet wide, about the size of a big closet. No television, no computer, no anything. In fact, all it had was a single bed with a faded red plaid bedspread, a thin gray blanket. Next to it was an old night table with a lamp. That was it. Nothing on the walls, nothing on the floor, nothing to read. The bathroom was tiny with a shower that it looked like it was built for someone four foot seven. And there was a half-used bar of soap in the tray. It reminded me of the bathroom you'd find in a rented RV. The toilet bowl sat unusually low as well. I immediately realized I wasn't in Kansas anymore. This was real. I was in for something transformational, different. I was way out of my comfort zone and about to be tested. I always tell myself I can't get growth 
unless I take action. Looking around my small empty room, I recognized I was in action mode. And then Brother Christopher looked right into my soul with his piercing blue eyes. He leaned in real close. He was two inches from my face and I felt like he was luring me into some kind of standing trance. It was like he just went into a phone booth as a hipster from New York City and came out a monk. He had a whole different vibe to him. I didn't know it was coming, but my spider sense told me it was big. I could feel the energy shifting. What's your why, Jesse? Brother Christopher asked in a low, forceful way. My why? He was waiting for me to respond. My why? I repeated. Yes, Brother Christopher said. What's your why? What's my why? The greatest challenge in life is discovering who you are. The second greatest is being happy with what you find. Unknown. Back at the Hachette offices. So what'd you tell him, Kate asks. I break eye contact with her and look around the room. And then I get up to stretch my legs. We've been in the conference room for an hour. I didn't tell him the real reason, I finally say. That's part of the problem. I explain that my intentions were pure in the sense I wanted to go up there and get the full-on monk experience. But deep down, I know I went there to write a book. They knew you might write a book, she says, reading my mind. That's not a problem. I assume the monks knew, but that's not really the issue either. The issue is it doesn't feel authentic, almost like I skipped a step. There's an old adage, authenticity over everything, and it's ringing in my ear. I pace back and forth a bit to get the circulation going. I'm thinking, and Kate watches me think. Finally. I sit back down. I'm just not sure, I say. I don't know if there's a book here. She wants me to continue. I want me to continue. But I do have this, I say, sliding my journal across the table. Kate pulls it closer, opens it, and begins to read my first entry. If I were to die tomorrow. March 2017. I'm on the plane heading to the monastery and some clown is sitting next to me in 2B. He wants to chat. I don't want to chat. So rather than talk, I'm going to write the first entry of my journal. I think he's trying to read what I'm writing. He's pretending to stretch his neck and turning it back and forth. I can feel his eyes trying to catch a glimpse. I don't care. I promised myself I'd keep a detailed record at Newskeet so I can refer back to it years later. Who knows? Maybe there'll be something I can hand down to my kids. Maybe there will be some wisdom I can share with others. Maybe it'll be a waste of time. But there's only one way to find out, and it's been my modus operandi in everything. Start the process and stay in the game. Whether it's a business venture, big race, or new challenge, I've always had a Get your foot in the door and figure the rest out later attitude. I'm ready for this adventure, I think. I don't really have a plan. I'm just going to try to stick it out, but I know it won't be easy. Nothing worthwhile is. As I sit here on the plane, I'm feeling ready. Ready to enter into a monk's life. Let's see what they've got. But for some reason, I'm also feeling 
emotional right now. Really emotional. Maybe it's the fear of being away from my wife and children and having no contact. It's not like I have a bad gut feeling about this. It's more like I can't rely on my gut these days. I'm not in tune with it. Technology and life's pace have stripped me of my spiritual intuition. My spider senses I've relied on so heavily my whole life in business and personally have faded. So instead, crazy thoughts have been flooding into my head for the last 24 hours. What am I thinking? I'm thinking the worst case scenario. I have feelings of guilt for leaving. What if something happens to my kids and I'm not home to prevent it? What if something happens to Sarah? What if something happens to me? And if something were to happen to me, wouldn't that be the most selfish thing? A tragedy as the result of me wanting to expand my sandbox is not how I want to go out. If I were to die tomorrow, I'd miss the laughter of my children. I'd miss my wife's hands, amazing eyes, and soft touch. I'd miss my friends and family so much. I'd miss everything I wanted to accomplish but ran out of time. I'd miss the adrenaline rush of life. If I were to die tomorrow, would anyone care in a hundred years? Would I have done enough in life? Would I have regrets? Would I be remembered as the man I want to be? Did I give 100% to everything I did? Did I maximize the time I had or did I waste it? Did I spend my time doing the things that matter the most and with the people who matter the most? Did I try my hardest? Did I keep my word? Did I live with honor? Did I live life to the fullest? I must live as if I'm going to die tomorrow. Back at Kate's office. This is good, Kate says as she turns the page. Thanks. I wrote that on my way, on the plane, right from my heart. Do you mind if I keep reading? Part 2. The Diary Day 1. An Adult Timeout It is in being alone where you find your strength, not in others. Unknown. In college, on the first day of the semester, Professors used to hand out a syllabus outlining their class for the entire year. We aptly called this Syllabus Day. I loved it. It literally was a nothing day except for some getting-to-know-you type stuff. And I guess you could call today my monk Syllabus Day, except I didn't get a sense of what my stay will be like. I'm still in the dark. It's 9.30 p.m. and I'm in my tiny-ass room that smells like a closet at my grandma's house. There's an energy here, and I feel it. It feels like some really smart things have been contemplated between these walls. But it's quiet. Insanely quiet. And it's dark and spooky. There isn't enough space in my room for me to unpack, so I'm going to live out of my suitcase. The room next to mine has a small fridge, so I was able to offload all my fruit and veggies. It feels like I got here days ago. There's absolutely nothing to do. And literally everything and anything electronically related doesn't work. No phone, no internet, no text, nothing. 
It's like the Russians used an electromagnetic pulse on the monastery as a mock test of their cyber strength. And it worked. But there's a part of me that feels free. My phone is attached to me at all times. It's almost become a body part. And so what if shit is going to voicemail right now? Emails are being unreturned. And a friend's photo of himself drinking a Corona on Facebook is going unliked. It's okay. Really, it is. Brother Christopher, who is my point person or point monk, told me there's one landline for emergencies I can use if needed. What kind of emergencies is he talking about? Avalanche? Survivalists? Wolf attacks? Silent freakouts from guests? Maybe I should back up a minute. I'm at a monastery with eight monks, an intern named Lenny, Josh the cook who comes a few times a week, and me. That's it. Four of the monks have been here for 50 years. 50 years! We have very little in common. Scratch that. We have nothing in common. I haven't even been on Earth for 50 years. The monastery sits on Two Top Mountain in upstate New York on the Vermont border. It consists of a one-story building where the monks sleep and eat and two churches the big one I saw on my tour, and a smaller chapel. The buildings are made of barn board painted a rusty red. The monks built the monastery themselves. The plan is to stay here for 15 days, and time moves as fast as seventh period in grammar school up here. But I should be here long enough to reap the benefits and wisdom of the monks. I feel like the time in isolation will allow me to dig deep inside myself and find whatever it is I'm seeking. I'm giving myself a digital fast. I'm trying to unlock some secrets to make my life better and share them with others. I'm adding another experience to my life resume. I didn't have a ton of preconceived notions before I came, but I thought there'd be a lot more people at the monastery, like 60 or something. I'm not sure why I thought that. I just equated monastery with large community. I also thought that monk meant shaved head. I was wrong on both. And these are Christian monks, not Buddhist. The monks refer to each other as brothers, and all the brothers have dogs. And not just any dogs, but big German shepherds that obey their every command in a way I've never seen. Like, the monks can just look at the German shepherds and they respond. Total control. That said, there are 11 adult German shepherds here in total. 11 dogs, 8 monks, a cook, an intern, and me. I'm in my room alone. I have no idea what to do. None. I'm lying in a bed that's about the size of a cot in a room the monks call a cell, and for good reason. It feels like a cell. There's a window with a thin white curtain. It's so dark and still outside that it's like before time existed. And here I am. It's like I'm waiting for a booming voice to say, and then there was light. I've been thinking about my kids all day. I need a scream or a yell or a good old-fashioned three-year-old temper tantrum. Something, anything to stop this silence. I've never realized how loud silence can be. I miss the chaos. 
Chaos and noise had become the norm in my life. After I arrived, Brother Christopher gave me a tour. He's the head monk, the grand poobah of the monastery. He's super nice, but doesn't look like a monk. He looks like he should be working the maple syrup tent at the farmer's market. Plaid shirt, jeans from Sears and Roebuck, and grimy work boots. But he seems like a hip monk. He's oozing with wisdom. I get the sense he could give some good advice, the kind only a mom can give. I don't know. But as far back as I can remember, my mother never gave me bad advice. My mom always knew the outcome of things before they happened. And Brother Christopher gives off the same type of vibe. And one of the first things he asked me was, what's my why? I keep thinking about it. Why? Why am I here? Why do we do anything? Why do we spend 80 plus hours a week working? What's my why? After our tour, he gave me a printout of our daily schedule. 7.15 to 8.15, prayer in the morning. 8.30, silent breakfast. 10 o'clock to 12.15, work. 12.30, dinner. 1 o'clock, reflection. 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock, work. 5 o'clock, service. 6 o'clock, light meal. 7 o'clock, Reflection, sleep. The schedule is helpful, but it doesn't shed any light on what I'm going to be doing. I got excited when Brother Christopher mentioned they have a training center. A monk training center. F yeah! I'm looking forward to getting into all of that. He didn't give me any details, but it sounds cool. I'm here to grow, and I'm treating this time very differently than a vacation. I'm here to work on my inner monk not my tan. I've taken enough vacations in my life, and as I get older, I find myself wanting experiences instead. I want to do the monk's version of push-ups, pull-ups, and sit-ups. I not only want to learn how to meditate, I want to be doing ultra-meditation by the time I leave. I've heard that some monks know how to vary their body temperatures using a myriad of meditation techniques. They can test me outside of their training center by making me sit in the snow for hours and teach me how to visualize the heat coming from within my soul. I want to discover how the power of the mind can influence the conscience. I don't want to get ahead of myself yet, but traveling to another dimension might be on my monk wish list. I'm ready to do whatever they want me to do, and I'm willing to go to any lengths. Is that my why? To train with the monks, it's definitely part of it. An hour after my tour, Turney told me he had to go. I didn't want him to leave, so I asked the obvious question. Why? What's up? He politely responded that he had stuff to attend to and needed to get back home sooner rather than later. I listened as he explained, but the more he spoke, the more honest his words became. And by the end of it, he simply said, I'm sorry, man, but this place is creeping me out. I need to get out of here. Plus, I can just read a book about this stuff. We hugged it out, and he was on his way. Turning at a point, there are a lot of self-help books on happiness, being present, and getting more out of life. However, I don't think you can master anything from reading a book or watching a seminar. All these 
Here are five simple steps books provide good insight. But unless you take action, nothing happens. Plus, many of the authors of these books have never actually done what they write about. They just write about it. So here I am. Once Turney peeled out of the parking lot and I got situated, Brother Christopher came back to check on me. We got to chatting and he said he had another question for me. He looked at me with eyes that were so peaceful it was disturbing. I started to get a pit in my stomach and my enthusiasm for the monk training center vanished. I thought he was about to ask if I wanted to join or make a pledge or give some kind of commitment or the vow of silence. I didn't know what he was going to say. Tell me, are you happy, Jesse? I was about to answer when he appeared to drift away in thought. He was standing there almost in a self-hypnotized state. It was like he's mastered meditation on demand. He stood perfectly still for several seconds with his eyes closed. And when he finally opened them a minute later, he looked directly at me, like into my soul. St. Paul once said there's no difference between contentment and happiness. He said, are you happy, Jesse? I thought to myself, well, Brother Christopher, I am actually very happy, except I'm not that happy right now because it's too quiet and I'm a bit freaked out. There's no one around and I feel like the boredom is going to get to me real quick. Maybe it already has. Instead, I told him I think I'm happy, but I immediately switched the conversation. I wasn't ready to get too deep too soon. I have a hard time going deep, especially with a stranger, or for that matter, with anyone. Sarah says I'm challenged when it comes to expressing my emotions. For the first several years of our marriage, she'd ask me how I was feeling, and I'd always say, I don't know, which would inevitably lead to an argument. After about three years of this, Sarah had an epiphany while driving and pulled off to the side of the road and thought to herself, he really doesn't know how he feels. She started trying everything to help me get in touch with my emotions. Ultimately, she reverted to using insane sports analogies. She'd say, honey, in tennis, how would you feel if you hit the ball and someone didn't hit it back? And then she'd say, this is how I feel when I'm talking about my feelings and you don't say anything. I'm looking for a good rally. I think she meant volley, but I got the point. But is not knowing sufficient? Should I be exploring to know? Why don't I know how I feel sometimes? I've always shrugged my shoulders when asked. I can only imagine how frustrating that must be for Sarah. I got some work to do. So anyway, to avoid going deep, I changed the topic with Brother Christopher to something I'm very comfortable with, running, and asked if there were any good places to jog around here. I'm down to do anything the monks ask me to do, but if I can't get an hour or so of running in a day, I'll definitely go berserk. I've run virtually every day for the last 25 years, 9,125 straight days, over 36,000 miles, so I'm not stopping now. Plus, I'm a big believer that you have to carve some time out of each day to do the things you love to do. 
It's my own rule that I call the three-hour rule. You take three hours a day for yourself to do what you want to do. That time is cumulative. It can be going for a walk, watching TV, reading, whatever. But when you're in that time, you don't feel guilty that you're not with your family, at work, or doing something else. If you don't take time for yourself, you'll resent the people who are taking those things away from you. I don't want to resent the monks, so I must run. Brother Christopher told me I could run up and down the private road, which seems like a very long driveway to me. He said it's about 0.8 miles to the end, but I shouldn't go beyond that. There are two mobile homes at the end that have dogs that are extremely territorial. Do not go near them. Didn't need to tell me twice. I'm not much of a dog person, even when they're friendly. It's not that I don't like dogs. We just don't click. Me and dogs. Brother Christopher said, aside from the private road, there are also marked trails through the woods. But with the snow and the concern about bears, I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, I'm not really a bear person either. So basically, I'm trapped on the property. Enjoy your time here, and if you need anything, just come find me. He then reminded me we start tomorrow at 7.15 a.m. with service, prayer, and reflection. I looked at my watch. It was only 7.15 p.m. What should I do for the next 12 hours? Brother Christopher looked deep into my soul one last time. Think, he said. Sit and think. I sat on my bed and stared at the wall. I just sat there, partially because he told me to and partially because there was nothing else to do. No Netflix, no Instagram, no kids. But my stay up here is a time to re-examine my life, right? I mean, I invest in reevaluating my businesses all the time. Why not dig deep into myself? And yet now it feels like a homework assignment given on a Friday afternoon. Can you re-examine something you're re-examining? Regardless, by 7.30 p.m., I was thinking, I might go insane. I decided to change my mindset and jumpstart my spiritual journey with some meditation. Let's make the best of this. I never really meditated before, but my friend Brian Koppelman suggested I take a course on transcendental meditation several years ago. The course took two days to complete, and it was one-on-one -on -one training. I completed the course, but didn't meditate beyond that. I googled transcendental meditation before I left to get refreshed. My instructor had explained that because we're so accessible, all the information that comes at us often creates overload. That's where meditation comes into play. Meditation has widely been viewed as one of the best tools to calm your mind and free up mental energy. It slows down the brain and gives it a much-needed rest. Transcendental meditation, or TM as it's referred to, is the choice of many celebrities I've heard. Oprah. Jerry Seinfeld, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood? Really? But artists and many successful business people swear by it too. 
It's a simple and effortless way of settling your mind that focuses around a one-word mantra you're given in training. You focus exclusively on your mantra and block everything else out to slow down the mind. I was told the best practices are two sessions of 20 minutes each a day. My TM coach gave me my mantra when we met. It's a made-up word, so it doesn't stimulate any visual or emotional connection when you focus on it. My mantra is exclusive to me, and I'm not allowed to disclose it to anyone. Not even my journal. It's supposed to be personal and private. But my mantra sounds like the name of a sushi restaurant. God, I wish I had some sushi right now. And today was my first meditation in years. I shut off the lights and got comfortable in my old monk chair, set the timer on my phone for 20 minutes, and then closed my eyes. Immediately, I got bombarded by thoughts as I tried to focus on my mantra. What are my kids doing right now? How's my wife doing? Will Millsap resign with the Hawks? It was a constant stream of everything and anything attacking my mantra. But I kept trying. With my eyes closed, I tried to block out the thoughts, but it wasn't working. After what felt like 30 minutes, I started wondering why my timer hadn't beeped yet. Maybe I didn't set it properly. I wanted to check, but instead kept repeating my mantra over and over for what felt like another 10 minutes. I was just waiting for the beeper to sound. After those 10 minutes passed, there was still no ding to end the session. At this point, I knew something was wrong with the alarm. I debated opening my eyes to check, but it felt like cheating. And then finally, I gave in. I slowly opened my right eye to peek at the clock resting on my lap. Three minutes and 47 seconds and ticking. Are you kidding me? What felt like an hour or more was only three minutes and 47 seconds? Tom Brady can score three touchdowns in three minutes and 47 seconds. Joey Chestnut can eat 25 hot dogs in three minutes and 47 seconds. And Alan Webb can run a mile in three minutes and 47 seconds. And I can't even meditate for that long? Am I that affected by the pace of the real world that I can't calm my mind for just three minutes? The next thing I did was pull out my calculator to figure out the total time I have left at the monastery. I multiplied 15 days by 24 hours by 60 minutes. 21,600 more minutes of nothingness left to go. I'm never going to make it. Day two, learning the ropes. Life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. Confucius. 7.08 a.m. Don't be late for the prayer service, Brother Christopher had said. It was my only instruction last night. Each service of prayer, meditation, and reflection lasts about 75 minutes and takes place in the sanctuary. I plan on going to every single one, two to three times a day whatever they got, and I won't be late. This is why I'm here. But I woke up feeling like Gilligan on Gilligan's Island, trapped, stranded, helpless, and nothing looks familiar. 
I feel so out of place. I just want to get off the island. What are you doing here anyway, Jesse? Billy said to me. You could be home in bed watching March Madness. Perhaps we should cut this stupid idea of yours short. Oh, now's probably a good time to introduce you to Billy. Billy's what I call the bully who lives inside my head. All of our heads. He's our biggest enemy. He always rears himself at big moments and tries to talk us out of things. It's the self-doubt that likes to take the easy way out. And Billy the bully isn't shy about his opinions. He'll tell me every reason why I shouldn't go for that run or why I should put work off until later and start that diet tomorrow. He's the single greatest obstacle to success. I think we all have a bully inside our head. Sometimes we can quiet him down, and sometimes he becomes all too loud and powerful. And this is the most dangerous thing about the bully in my head. He gets stronger as I get weaker. The last thing he said to me before I started getting ready for this morning was, fine, we'll go to this first service, but we're here on a trial basis. He's already rationalizing and planting the excuse seed in my head. He's giving me an out. That's what our mental bullies do. They feed doubt and insecurity between our ears. I took a peek outside my window to try to quiet my mind when, bong, bing, dong. Oh, shit, I said to myself. The bells. I had to get to service. And just as I started to tie my shoes, bong. Bing, dong. No way was I going to be late to my first service. After a quick wash-up, I hustled out the door. The bells rang again. The bell tower is four feet from my room. All that's missing is a guy with a hump. And the tower is not for show. It's the world's biggest alarm clock. Brother Christopher warned me the bells would ring five minutes before every service, indicating we should head to the church. He also gave me a friendly heads up that the bells might be loud. Might be loud? They're shaking the earth, they're so loud. As I jogged over to the church, I thought my eardrums were going to explode. Bong, bing, dong. The sound could wake up the dead, which, by the way, there are a number of at the monastery. Right outside of my room's window is the monk cemetery. A dozen or so little wooden crosses sticking out of the snow. That's the view from my bed. Comforting. As I ran toward the church door, I looked up in the tower and saw Brother Luke. He's in charge of the bells. He's strong and husky looking. He's wearing huge headphones like the ones the guys use to land 747s to block the noise. I live five feet away from the tower, and the monks gave me nothing to protect my ears with. I covered my ears with the palms of my hands and dug my left ear into my shoulder for more protection as I flew by the bell tower toward the sanctuary. I swung open the door to the church. I made it just in time. Success. The church is called Holy Wisdom Church, and it's beautiful. Polished marble tile floor, wooden chairs ornately carved, candles and latticework, and a lot of paintings. 
High on the walls are life-size portraits of famous religious figures like a heavenly hall of fame. They even have names under the paintings so you know who you're looking at. I don't know who most of them were, a lot of Russian guys and popes from the Middle Ages or something like that. But a few I did know, like Mother Teresa, King David, and Moses. The church was pretty dark this morning with no lights on. The only sunlight enters through the stained glass windows. The sanctuary is also filled with smoke as the monks burn incense at the services. Think majestic with a mysterious vibe. That's the church. It seats about 60 people at capacity. But today, there were only two other non-monks in attendance. I guess the services are open to the public. I tried to give the other two civilians a let's do this nod to fire them up. They weren't interested. It was just like athletes stretching and going through a pregame ritual. These two already had their own pre-service vibe going on. Or they were just ignoring me because they immediately put their heads down. Deep thought. At 7.15, the door at the rear of the church opened and the monks entered the sanctuary one by one in silence. They were draped in long black robes from head to toe and two of them wore big crosses around their necks. They immediately took their seats. Two of the older monks sat in the rear corner while the others formed a choir and sat in a small semicircle in the middle of the church. They had music stands like you'd find in an elementary school auditorium for their prayers and song charts. All of the monks participated in the chanting and prayers. And in addition to the monks, there were three nuns in the choir as well. I sat in a pew across from them, alone. I kept hearing them say, Jesus, but I didn't follow anything else. My mind wandered. I tried to stay focused, but I thought about random shit. I mean, really random. And my thoughts were like an out-of-order slideshow. Do any of these monks have tattoos? How long will it take to grow my hair back? Are monks even allowed to have tattoos? What if my hair grows in straight? Can any of these monks make a foul shot? Which of the three nuns is the fastest sprinter? Yeah, that kind of random. The service was filled with song, psalms, and prayers, all chanted in a very melodic and ancient tone. It felt very religious, but a bit haunting. It was great to be a congregant, but I felt more like a spectator than a participant. However, once I got used to it, the sound was like a massage for the soul. I closed my eyes for a second to be at one with the harmony and the soothing sounds. I felt good. Real good. So good. I could listen to that all day. And then, the service was over. The monks were filing out of the church. What happened? I fell asleep. My spiritual journey didn't get off to a great start. After service, Brother Christopher officially introduced me to Lenny the intern. We were in my room. They stopped by together. Lenny is 23 years old and interning at the monastery for about six months. Today is the start of his second week. There's no polite way of saying this. Lenny reminds me of the serial killer in Fargo. Big dirty work boots, flannel shirt tucked into Levi 501 blue jeans, and 
a stone-cold look in his eyes. Brother Christopher told me Lenny the intern was sleeping in the cell next to mine. Great. When I heard that, I instinctively checked my doorknob to see if it had a lock. It does. I was told Lenny is a professional intern. Whatever that means. It sounds like he goes from community to community interning. He just got off a six-month stint at an Indian reservation. I'm not so sure Lenny has showered in between intern gigs as he looked like he just came out of a dusty Western movie. Once the introduction was complete, I tried to chat it up with Lenny. After all, we'd be monk mates for the next two weeks. Hey, Lenny, how are you doing? He just stared at me. You like it up here? Lenny faced me but directed his eyes directly to the top of my head. He was staring two inches above my eyes. What the fuck? The guy was intentionally not making eye contact. I was just trying to be friendly. And this guy was staring at me like a prize fighter trying to intimidate his opponent right before they touch gloves and start a fight. I'm excited for my stay. Let me know if you need anything from me while I'm here. Lenny the intern just glared and then walked out of my room. When he got halfway to the doorway, he turned and stared at the top of my head again and then walked out. No words, like nothing. Lenny, Lenny, Lenny. There's a Native American proverb that makes me think of Lenny. It goes like this. An older Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. But the boy explains there's a fight going on inside of him between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false, pride, superiority, and ego. But the other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity. Humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. It's explained to the boy that the fight is going on not just inside of him, but in every other person as well. So the grandson asked, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee said, the one you feed. I think I know which wolf Lenny is feeding. Maybe Lenny feels threatened by me. Maybe he thinks I'm an intern too. Maybe he thinks I'm getting too much attention. Maybe he's just an asshole. Whatever the case is, I made a mental note. Stay the fuck away from Lenny the intern. I organized my room and spent most of the day touring the monastery on my own and trying to learn the ins and outs of the place. No one has instructed me to do anything yet. I haven't even been here for 24 hours and I'm already thinking about when it'll be over. I miss my family. At lunch, I realized the monks do meals quite differently than I'm used to. It's like their meals are dyslexic. First off, they call lunch dinner. And they call the evening meal supper. So they have one big meal around noon, dinner, and then a light meal at night, supper. When I asked what they call breakfast, they said, what do you mean? We just call it breakfast. Okay, then. Today's menu for supper was soup and salad. That's it. I ladled soup into a bowl and put some salad on a plate. 
All of the monks and Lenny were already seated around the long, rectangular dinner table. I found an empty chair and sat next to Brother Christopher. Normally, I'm fairly comfortable in new situations, but this was different. At the table, each of the monks introduced themselves. There are eight who live at the monastery, and I'm guessing the average age is 60. But it's a young and vibrant 60. There's a ninth monk who lives at an assisted living facility. I think they said his name is Peter. And the word is, avoid getting sucked into a conversation with him because he doesn't have an off button. I sat with my soup-salad combo and checked if anyone else was eating. They weren't. And that's when the introduction started. By the time the monks were done saying a quick hello, I'd forgotten all of their names. But what I can say about them is they almost all have gray hair and beards. And they all smile like they know something I don't. Next, they want to know a little bit more about me. I led with the family bio and told them how grateful I was to be allowed to stay with them. I'm assuming Kate pulled a string to get me up here, so I wanted them to know it was an honor. I told them I was involved with the Atlanta Hawks, and all I got were blank stares. I threw out a couple of players' names, but I think that confused them even more. Right after I explained what I meant, one of the monks, I think his name is Stavros, said he once went to an Expos game. Not really the same thing, I told them. The Expos are baseball, and they don't exist anymore. The Hawks play basketball, and they play on national TV. He didn't seem to care, but it was cool because it led to a deeper conversation. Stavros grew up in Washington, D.C. He was from a typical middle-class family and decided to become a monk in college after studying Eastern religion. His mother was so against him becoming a monk, she said she was going to fly up to stop him. When Brother Stavros heard, he had her paged at the airport and told her not to come. He knew in his heart what he wanted to do. I guess he was right. He's been a monk since Lyndon Johnson was president. I can relate to that. There have been times in my life when I've just known something. When I was 22 years old, I wrote and sang the theme song for the New York Knicks called Go New York Go. It was a song the Knicks played to fire up the crowd at Madison Square Garden after the team went on a rally. The Knicks shot a video with big New York celebs to support the song, and it caught fire. The song reached number one on New York radio. As the song rose to fame, so did I. I made appearances on local TV stations, signed copies of the song in stores, and was escorted to the front of the line at the hottest nightclubs. I was on top of the world. Yet, despite the meteoric rise of the song and all of the attention I was getting, I was dead ass broke. In fact, I didn't even have a place to live. At the time, I was living on the floor of my friend's apartment and my time was about up, like yesterday. As luck would have it, he told me as of Monday, which was in three days, I had to be out. Rather than panic, that weekend, I opted to go to a bachelor party on the Jersey Shore. Not having a place to live could wait until Monday. After my friends and I checked into the one hotel room we were all sharing, we immediately hit the local dive bar for happy hour. After about an hour of light food and beer with my friends, I started chatting with this gal at the bar as I waited for my gin and tonic. She was a very attractive brunette with a sinister smile. 
she had a quiet confidence that made you like and respect her. Her name was Melissa Katz. It was just regular bar conversation, bullshitting. But five minutes into my rap, she asked me where I lived. I explained my situation and told her I just moved back from Cali. And as of Monday, I had nowhere to go. Really, she said. She asked the bartender for a pen and wrote her address on the back of a napkin. You can stay with me and my roommate Alyssa if you get stuck, she said. Is that a real offer? That's an emergency offer. As the night progressed, the traveling bachelor party was ready for the next leg. I wasn't sure I'd ever see her again. But when Monday rolled around, I started thinking through my living options and realized things were pretty dire. This could easily be classified as an emergency. So at 8 a.m., as my Jersey girl was heading out to work, I showed up at her apartment with my one bag of all my possessions. I lived in her living room on the couch for six months. If she had a play date, I'd stay out of the apartment until the guy left. I'd usually wait in the lobby. It was a sitcom in the making, and we became good friends. As it turned out, her dad was a high-profile business mogul in New York and Philly who was also involved in the sports business. He was highly respected and someone I looked up to. We became instant pals, and he served as an early mentor for my business career. So when I was faced with my first real business decision at 22 years old, I went to him. I had an interesting dilemma. With the success of the Knicks song, I knew I was potentially onto something big. Other NBA teams were calling me to write theme songs and advertising slogans for them. I saw a clear path to success. However, I had no money to pay the studio, singers, lawyers, and everyone else I needed to make this happen. Shit, I didn't even have rent money. And without the ability to do demos, I'd be out of business. I was desperate. In an effort to raise money, I went to a big New York music manager who offered me $10,000 for 10% of my future earnings. All of them. He basically wanted to buy a piece of me, like a stock, for life. And at 22 years old with no money, I was seriously considering his offer. $10,000 was all the money in the world. I called my roommate's dad. After some back-and-forth calls, we scheduled a meeting at his penthouse apartment in Sutton Place. When I arrived, I was greeted by a staff worker who told me Mr. Katz was expecting me. Feel free to make your way in, he said. Since I didn't really know what make your way in meant, I started to wander around the apartment, you know, checking the place out. Whoa, this place was amazing. Colorful carpets with amazing designs, antique sculptures, and art that looked like it had big insurance policies. I felt like a tourist at the Louvre. As I was staring at the art that looked like it should have a security guard by it, I heard a noise coming from what appeared to be the master bedroom. So I headed that way. Jesse, come on in, son. I followed the voice through the bedroom and into a workout area where I could see Lewis getting out of the swimming pool. He was butt-ass naked. Totally nude. I'm not sure what was more surprising, that he had no shame or that he had a giant indoor swimming pool in his apartment. 
Sit down, son. I'm a bit rushed this morning, so why don't you tell me what's on your mind? Well, I have, I said, keeping my eyes laser-focused on his eyes. I, um, have, uh... Finally, he threw on some skimpy shorts and grabbed his sneakers. Oh, don't mind me, he said. I'm just getting a quick quarter mile in while I'm still fresh from the water, as he headed over to the treadmill. I heard about eclectic wealthy folk, but I never met one. And Lewis was more than eclectic. He was brilliant, a badass, and genius. Who gives a fuck if he likes to swim nude and work out in skimpy shorts? He'd earn that right. As I started to talk again, he stepped on the treadmill and hit the start button. All of a sudden, he had a very serious tone as he ran. You know what, Jesse? I'd give it all back. The pool, the art, the apartment, everything. To have the one thing you have. Me? I have $128. I'm broke. What's that? He looked me dead in the eye as he ran. Youth. Youth? Yes. The process. The thrill of the unknown, the long playing field ahead. It all comes with youth. As you get older, the game gets shorter. You, my friend, have hundreds of experiences in front of you. Your future is a huge canvas to paint on, and I'd trade it all to have that paintbrush back in my hand. Enjoy every minute of the process. Wow, was all I could say. What you're going through is the process. This decision, these moments, the unknown. You're an entrepreneur, son, and big decisions like this are part of the process. Almost 30 years later, that conversation was clear in my mind as I was talking with Brother Stavros. And as I get older, it holds more true. Very often, the process is more valuable than the outcome. As you struggle in business with goals at work, it's hard to appreciate the journey. However, it is the journey that makes us feel the most alive. That's why I'm here. I love Turney, but he left. He chose to read it instead of live it. I'm lucky that Lewis's message resonated with me at an early age. We only have two kinds of memories in our life, ones that we can't control and the ones that we create. The ones that we can't control are things that just happen during our lives that leave an indelible memory, like. 9-11, the O.J. Simpson car chase, our son falling and losing a tooth, etc. We remember those moments with complete clarity, but we had nothing to do with them. The other kind of moments are the ones that we control and create ourselves, running our first marathon, our first date, etc. When you're young, you have so many opportunities to create positive memories. And that's what Lewis was getting at. The memories we create of our own accord are the paintbrushes. Life is the canvas. Lewis continued his workout while we continued our conversation. And yes, he was running extremely fast in his skimpy shorts. And I needed help with my business. I was about to sell 10% of Jesse Itzler to this music manager. Lewis adjusted his treadmill to a 12 on the incline meter and was slowly climbing up a mock mountain. I want you to go past the excitement, Jesse, past the passion, past the ego, and dig into your gut. Okay. Now tell me, 
Do you believe in your heart of hearts in this sports music thing you're doing? I think so. No, that's not enough. Jesse, I want to know, would you bet the entire farm on this concept? I don't want to know, can you make this work? But will you make this work? That means no matter what is thrown at you. His words sounded like a wise football coach pumping up the team at halftime. I thought about it for a few moments and then responded. Yes, sir. Without question, I will make this work. Then fuck the 10K, son. Lewis got off the treadmill, grabbed the towel, and patted me on the shoulder. It's up to you to make it happen now, he said, leaving for his meeting. Well, he got dressed first, but then he left for his meeting. As I sat across from Brother Stavros, I wondered if we had the same exact feeling. He knew he was a monk. I knew I had a great idea combining music with professional sports. We were probably about the same age when we made those decisions. And thankfully, we trusted our guts. When I asked Brother Stavros if he was happy, he smiled and said, even better, I'm content. I told him I was excited to get started with my monk training. He just smiled. Monks sure do smile a lot. After supper was over, all of the monks stood to face a wall that has a painting of Jesus. As soon as they got up, I got up. Since I don't know the daily routine, I'm trying to mimic everything the monks do. I want to blend in and be respectful of their traditions. It's like a giant game of Simon Says and all the monks are Simon. I've used this technique in business and it has worked. When you're young, you have to laugh when everyone at the table laughs to get the deal done, even if the joke isn't funny. When you don't have to laugh at those jokes anymore, you've made it. So, they started to pray? I started to pray. Or maybe I should say I started acting like I was praying. No one ever taught me how to pray. And I got nothing against JC, it's just that I could count on one finger the number of times I was in a church. I don't know much about the Christian faith. I mean, I know the basics, the story of Christmas, being hung on the cross and rising from the dead, but my brain isn't wired toward religion. If you started talking to me about an in-depth history or the different orders or denominations, you might as well be speaking to me about quantum mechanics. I know nothing. Even the meanings of prayer is lost on me. And there we were, praying. But I have to say, there was something really nice about standing with a table full of men and listening to them say the words with conviction. Amen. By 8 p.m., I was solo again in my cell. I'm not getting discouraged because tomorrow's the big day. I was told I'm going to shadow Brother Thomas at the training facility. That's like a tap on the shoulder, and I'm ready. I want the hardcore meditation and spiritual shit to kick in. I'm excited to take a look inside the monk's toolbox. I want to understand how they've mastered dedication, discipline, and single-minded devotion for thousands of years. Monks have carried down traditions and philosophies that require sheer determination. That's a skill set you can stuff into your pocket and bring with you into any endeavor. And monks make the courageous decision to leave behind the world as we know it and devote their entire lives to a higher cause. To me, 
That's impressive. Who can't afford to add a little bit more of honor and courage into their lives? Also, though it may sound ironic, I believe monks have completely captured the idea of freedom. Free from everything, distractions and attachments. It's like they've unlocked the secret of life's meaning. Who knows? Maybe by the time I'm done here, they'll have given me the keys. But just to be clear, I'm not on some existential search. I don't have to do anything other than look at my kids to know the meaning of life. And I'm not looking to serve God. I don't want to tell Brother Christopher or any of the other monks this, not yet. But I'm mesmerized by the monks' calmness and appreciation of their simple lives. I can't wait to kick this thing off tomorrow. Day 3. The Distractor He who conquers others is strong. He who conquers himself is mighty. Lao Tzu, Dao De Jing Beat the bells, I said to myself when I woke up. I wanted to get to church before the first ring. It was still early when I woke up, so I went outside. I saw the sunrise. I mentally prepared for the day as I took a four-mile walk. It's not always easy to prepare for the unknown, which the training center was, but I tried to enjoy the pristine setting. That wasn't easy because I had the dogs on my mind. It's hard to explain what it feels like being airdropped into a completely new setting with so many dogs. I think there are 11 full-grown, trained German shepherds, and they may or may not like me. I'm not convinced all the dogs know my scent yet, and I kept thinking one of them would think I was an intruder on the property if they saw me walking. While the monks have full mastery of their dogs, and the dogs rarely venture more than 50 yards from their masters, none of them are on a leash. So until I'm positive all the dogs have fully vetted me, I'm staying on high alert. Let's just say I walked at a very brisk pace today. Since I just got back to my room, I figured I'd jot something down before I beat the bells. For starters, it's super cold in my room. There's a gap between the window glass and the window frame that allows the freezing cold mountain air to come right into my bedroom, which would be great if it were like 84 degrees outside, but it's more like minus four. You could freeze vegetables in here. The angle is creating some kind of wind tunnel that's directing the cold to hit me right in the face during my sleep. It's freezing. I had to sleep in my winter jacket last night to stay warm. Despite the cold air, I slept great. Bong, bing, dong. I wore the same thing to church I wore yesterday. Monks are big on function, not fashion. In fact, I think they all wore the same clothing that they did yesterday. Nobody seems to care about how they look around here. And I'm still playing Simon Says. During service, I tried to focus on the message, but the training center was interrupting my thoughts. I wondered what kinds of things they do in there. But every time I caught myself prancing around in, I wonder what it's like in the training center land, I told myself to concentrate on the service. It was a losing battle. I can't remember a single thing they said in church. After service, I went to the dining room. 
all the monks and Lenny the intern were present and accounted for when I walked in. I said hello to Brother Gregory. Shh, I heard from the whole room in unison. It was a silent meal, but nobody told me. There's no sign hanging on the wall that says, silent meal, with a picture of a monk silhouette using a silent finger to the mouth. Some kind of heads up would have been nice. When I sat down to eat, I held the bottom of my seat and hopped forward to bring my chair closer to the table. The legs of the chair accidentally scraped across the kitchen floor as it moved one inch and then came to an abrupt halt. It was loud. Real loud. The monks, Lenny the intern, and the dogs all looked up at me. I don't think they were mad, but it felt like when someone turns their head at the movie theater, which is the international sign for shut the fuck up. I didn't mean to make that much noise. Once I got situated, I looked around the room. It was like watching a television show on mute. The monks were slowly bringing their spoons to their mouths and eating their oatmeal. They have perfected the art of eating without the sound of chewing. They did it with such precision and skill that they didn't make a single sound, not a slurp to be heard. Some stared straight ahead as they ate. Others looked down into their bowls. It was pretty freaky. I closed my eyes and imagined the breakfast table at my house. Holy crap, like an alternate universe. I wonder what the monks were thinking about, but I couldn't even guess what was going on in their minds. Sometimes I can look at my kids, Sarah, a friend, or whomever, and without them saying a word, I have a pretty good idea what's going on in their head. Or at least I think I do. But with the monks, it's like another world. Even eating breakfast, they're impressive. I was starving. And since it was before noon, my only choice this morning was apples. I really wish my bananas had survived the flight. When my teeth penetrated the skin of the Granny Smith apple, it sounded like a huge explosion, like a fireworks display when they play the 1812 overture. Juice squirted out and landed on the cheek of Brother Thomas. And guess what? He didn't flinch. Total focus. LeBron on the foul line. Swish. As he brought his spoon of oatmeal to his mouth, the juice splattered right into his goatee. He just continued to think. But every other monk looked at me. Shh, they all said in unison. Forty seconds later, I finally took another bite. But this time, I kept the apple in my mouth without chewing. I sat there and pretended I was eating and thinking. I thought if the apple piece stayed in my mouth long enough, I could possibly dissolve it. But that might have taken about three weeks. I didn't have that much time. So I decided to hard swallow the enormous piece whole. Bad idea. The apple was stuck in my throat. I mean, stuck. Heimlich situation waiting to happen. I started to breathe through my nose as I continued to hard swallow. I closed my eyes, hoping the monks would think I was meditating, not choking on an apple. This lasted for about a minute, and then I started uncontrollably coughing. The good news was the apple dislodged from my throat and I swallowed it. The bad news was the monks realized I wasn't meditating. Choking can really spoil a silent meal.
I waited another five minutes and decided to give it another shot. I held the apple in my hand and lowered my head again like I was in deep thought. What I was really thinking about was, how in the world am I going to eat this damn apple? After it felt acceptable, like enough time to have a deep reflection passed, I got up. But this time, I was super careful to not scrape the chair on the floor. I ate the apple in my room. And then finally, finally, it was time to head down to the training center and shadow Brother Thomas. I had a bounce in my step the whole way there. This is what I've been waiting for. The training center. Doing the monk thing. Getting down with my inner self. 10 a.m. Brother Thomas was waiting for me at the training center, the Quonset hut-like building. He's young, vibrant, and full of life. He looks like a mixed martial arts fighter. He's on the shorter side, but very fit, with a goatee and one eye that floats a little bit. So you're never really sure if he's looking at you. My guess is he could choke the life out of me if he wanted, but he talked in a soft, soothing way. Are you ready to train? Yes, sir. Good, because we have some feisty ones in there. Feisty? Not really sure what he was talking about, but I was game for anything. Do you like dogs, Jesse? Dogs? Yes, dogs. You mean, as in dogs? Yes, as in dogs. The training center isn't for spiritual fitness. It's for training dogs? The monks train dogs? Dogs? As in woof, woof? I signed up to be with monks, not dogs. I should have done more research. I can hear Sarah now. Jesse, that's why you read the fine print, honey. But I'm not a fine print kind of guy. I followed him inside. The training center is as big as a gymnasium. It's also brand new and state-of-the-art right down to the cushy rubber floor matting and the two-way mirror from the viewing room. There were several dogs in kennels at one end, and they yelped as we walked closer. The place smelled like one gigantic pet store. But if I had a guess, this place was probably the Madison Square Garden equivalent of dog training centers. There should be banners hanging in the rafters. For a moment, I marveled at the structure wondering what in the hell I was doing there. I don't know whether I was more surprised or disappointed. My monk training will have to wait, I guess. Brother Thomas opened one of the cages and put a leash on Rainbow, a big, light-colored, golden Labradoodle puppy. I don't know. I'm not a dog person, but if I had one, I always thought I'd name him or her either Tofu or Broccoli. Rainbow? And then Brother Thomas told me I was going to be the distractor today. He was going to walk Rainbow around the training center, and I was going to walk ahead of them, cross in front, and do whatever I could to distract her. Try and make her lose focus from her goal, he said. Fifteen minutes before, I had thought I was about to enter into some type of spiritual hell week, a monk's version of the training I did with SEAL. Instead, I was in an airplane hangar-sized kennel being a dog distractor. Regardless, I was going to try to be the best dog distractor that Nooski has ever seen. 
It turns out, the monks of Nuskeet are world-famous dog trainers and breeders of German Shepherd dogs, and they have a two-year wait list for puppies. Their dog training program has been featured in books, television shows, and numerous articles. Who knew? I guess I would have if I'd done any research before I left. One quick Google search would have resulted in hundreds of links. Back in the 1970s, when the monks were building the monastery, they adopted a German shepherd, Kier. The dog was a big hit with monks who were working hard all day putting up the buildings. Instantly, the community fell in love with him, and he fell in love with them. He brought joy into their lives, Brother Thomas told me. When Kier died unexpectedly a couple of years later, the community was shattered. After some time, one of the monks suggested they set out to find a replacement for their beloved pet. As luck would have it, and there seems to be a lot of luck in the monk's story, that is, if you don't believe in divine intervention, a dog breeder lived not too far away. When they went to see her, she said she'd be happy to give them a dog. In fact, she'd give them two, both breeding caliber German shepherds. This way they could raise a litter or two and sell the puppies, she said. Always looking for a way to keep the lights burning, the monks went about giving the dog breeding game a try. Back at the monastery, the dogs did what dogs do and apparently did it well. Out came one litter after another. Apparently, the particular type of German shepherd the lady breeder gave them is pretty special. Pure German lines and can sell for a pretty hefty price. It was the beginning of something they couldn't have imagined. Visitors started to remark about how well-behaved their German shepherds were. And one of them asked that they consider training their dog. The next thing you know, they had a training center and a steady stream of customers. It was like any great entrepreneurial journey. They saw a need and filled it. Above the door of the training center, there's a sign that reads Maurice Sendak Center. Sendak, the author and illustrator of Where the Wild Things Are, had a summer cabin nearby and became a good friend of the monks after he purchased one of their German shepherds. His foundation helped with the building of the training center by offering the monastery a matching grant gift. Now, if that's where the story of the monks and their dogs ended, it'd have been pretty amazing, but it didn't. One of their early customers suggested they write a dog training book. People tell other people they ought to write a book all the time, usually at dinner parties, in bars, or in airline seats. So the phrase really doesn't mean a whole lot, except if the person who says it happens to be an editor for a publishing company, which their customer was. The monk's first book, they have a bunch of them, first published in 1978, is called How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend. Some consider it the Bible of dog training books, but the monks would shake their heads at that turn of phrase. Altogether, the monks' dog books have sold in the millions of copies, and in the dog universe, the monks of Nuskeet are beloved. I felt honored to be in the presence of these masters. When you're around people who are among the best in the world at what they do, it's enlightening. Their command of the dogs was evident right away. If any of the monks spoke, the dogs responded. They could take a wild party animal like Spuds McKenzie and in a week or two, turn him into a well-behaved private school dog. Training is like a two-and-a-half-week etiquette school for dogs. 
They come in as barkers, jumpers, bullies, and leave like debutantes. Rainbow was at the end of her stay and was walking at Brother Thomas's side like the dogs at the famous Westminster Kennel Club dog show. I could have been waving a pork chop around and she wouldn't have given me a second look. I walked in front of them and Rainbow checked me out but concentrated on her task at hand. I darted behind them and she didn't even turn her head. I busted out a few jumping jacks. Nothing. And then I pulled out my secret weapon the underarm fart. I put my hand in my armpit and started pumping my elbow against my body, making loud farting sounds. This makes every kid laugh and even crack Brother Thomas a bit, but not Rainbow. The dog was trained. Would you like to walk, Rainbow? He asked. Nope, I said. I'm all good. Later, Brother Thomas and I sat in a private two-way mirror room talking about dogs. The biggest mistake people make in dog training is they concentrate only on the dog. All they're interested in is the end result, that Fido or Rainbow here will sit, stay, and roll over when they command them to. Although they might be successful in obtaining these goals, such a technique does not improve the relationship with the dog, and the dog will end up being either unhappy or resentful. Dogs can be resentful. Of course. So the owner needs to be trained too? Exactly. As it is in life. Well, what if we don't have a dog? I asked, half kidding. We all must be trained, Jesse. The power and temptations of the outside world are great. Train yourself from the distractions. They are the enemies of your goals. Learn to move past the distractions and you will succeed. Like Rainbow? Exactly like Rainbow. Whoa, I had to chew on that for a second. It's day three, and I'm starting to get some real nuggets of wisdom through the most unlikely scenarios. I never thought about dog training where the owner needs to be trained too. But I didn't come up here to distract dogs. I thought I'd be going through some rigorous mental training. And maybe I am. Maybe I'm in the midst of the ultimate training and don't even know it. Like the Karate Kid. He didn't know it at the time, but waxing Mr. Miyagi's car taught him to become a superior fighter. Maybe by distracting dogs? I'm learning the ultimate art of not being distracted. Or maybe I'm overthinking it. By 2 p.m., I was in my room reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And then at some point, I noticed Brother Christopher standing in my doorway. I'm not sure how long he was watching me. Monks seemed to just appear like by astral projection or Star Trek transporter. He stopped by to check on me. As strange as it sounds, it felt nice to see a familiar face. I wanted to chat a little bit. I wasn't ready for him to leave, so I told him I was looking forward to my journey. I thought that was a nice way of saying, come on, man. Let's crack that monk whip. Give me something more to do. His response was, Every day is a lesson. The key is to listen. Huh? At first, I didn't understand that I've already noticed the monks talk in spiritual code. But then it dawned on me that I am, in fact, a terrible listener. 
I made a note that this is one thing I really have to work on when I get home. Listening. But maybe listening has a bigger meaning than simply being quiet and hearing others talk. Perhaps it means being less caught up with yourself and opening up to new opportunities, ideas, and perspectives. Brother Christopher referenced a wise monk. When you talk, you are only repeating what you already know. But if you listen, you may learn something new. At night, as I lay in bed, Billy the bully wanted to have a little pillow talk. He was quick to remind me that this isn't what I was expecting. I didn't sign up for dogs, so there's no shame in going home early. And besides, my bed at home is much more comfortable than this. Day four, murder, he wrote. Ultimately, we must leave room for mystery, the monks of Newski. In case something happens to me and you're a detective reading this diary, Lenny the intern did it. Though my guess is that Lenny is smart enough to destroy any evidence, so maybe this entry is a wasted effort. But Lenny way freaks the monk out of me. Just the thought of the guy got me thinking about background checks. Do the monks just take in whoever shows up or do you have to be vetted? I'm thinking background checks may be a really unmonkish thing to do because they're supposed to be loving and accepting of everyone. I started considering the best ways to secretly vet Lenny via the monks. I could ask them, where did Lenny come from? Did anyone know Lenny before he got here? Can you tell me about Lenny's parents? I mean, Lenny could be number one on the FBI's most wanted list and the monks would have no idea. How would they? It's not like they'd see it on TV or hear about it. We're too remote. It's really getting inside of my head. Case in point. Late last night, I headed to the dining room to see if anyone was around. I couldn't sleep. And when I walked in, I saw Lenny. He was just sitting in a chair, staring at the wall. It was like he was meditating, but with his eyes open. The guy was zoned out. I saw a book on the table, so I sat down, picked it up, pretended to read. It was weird to be sitting so close to someone and not acknowledge each other. Sitting in the same room was like getting on an elevator with Lenny. It's like he's perfectly comfortable treating me like a stranger. My relationship with Lenny's gotten progressively worse, which is hard to do for two people who don't even talk to each other. But every time he passes me in the hallway, he narrowly misses slamming his shoulder into mine. I think on purpose. His head is down, he looks straight at the floor, and he leans into it like he's about to make a shoulder tackle. But each time, he misses me by half an inch. It's like he's sending me a message. Let me put it this way. When Lenny the intern's around, Billy the bully goes into hiding. I kept fake reading as I sat there 10 feet away from him. I wanted to have a conversation or at least get a reaction. I got up to get some water. I made deliberate noise with the cooler to see if he'd look up. Maybe we could have our first conversation, I thought. But he wasn't remotely phased by my distraction. He probably already trained with the dogs. So next, I cleared my throat. 
but I still got nothing. I wanted to call his name, but I knew that wouldn't work. He tunes me out all the time. When I say simple things like, Lenny, please pass the salt, he ices me. Nothing. No response. Sometimes he just looks at the top of my head and leaves the room. And it's not just me. Lenny isn't responding to the monks either. But when he does speak, which is rare, he yells like a drill sergeant on volume eight. Yesterday, Brother Gregory asked him to help with the dishes. And he walked right up to him and screamed, I'm happy to do the dishes, Brother Gregory, like he was at a soccer match in Liverpool. Whatever happened to inside voices? WTF is wrong with this guy. I stood there looking at him, just waiting for a glance or something. He must have known I was trying to catch his eye, but again, nothing. He was wearing the same clothes he always does, every day. And he wears coffee stains, mud splatter, and dog drool like badges of honor. His main job here is to light incense at the services. At the midway point of every service, Lenny comes out of a back room in his Fargo outfit and military marches to the candles around the church and lights them. Then, at the end of the service, he reappears and blows them out. Then he disappears again. Although Lenny the intern seems insane to me, I must say, there's no task too small for the guy. Anything he's asked to do, he does without uttering a single word of frustration or giving a hint of objection. Lenny mops the floor, scrubs the church, and cleans the dishes. Hey, Lenny, there's dog shit on the lawn. <laughs> Roger that. Lenny picks it up with his hands. He's an insane worker, the perfect intern. That said, I'm four days in and have yet to hear him really say anything. I'm scared shitless of Lenny the intern, but the monks love him. Today was a struggle. I'm dying to get into some deep reflection and mental mastery. It just didn't happen again. Nothing really happened. The services were good, but nobody has told me what to do with them. They just threw me in the fire. In a way, though, it's good as it's forced me to pay close attention and figure it out on my own. They say that's the best way to learn. My wife always tells her employees, if nobody told you how to do your job, how would you do it? The results she gets from that are amazing. Sometimes you have to rip up the playbook, break the mold, and do it your own way. After the chanting and reflections around Jesus, Today's theme for service was forgiveness, something I struggle with. It's not that I live with a lot of resentments, but I have a hard time of letting go when I feel like I've been wronged or betrayed. So it really hit home when Brother Christopher explained that forgiveness was the answer to wasted energy. I really got it, but I'm still pissed at a few people. This morning after the early service and before I started chores, Billy the Bully thought it was a good idea to check my phone, just in case it started working somehow. He wanted to check email, social media, and see if I could fire off a text. It was like a 10-minute, one-sided conversation. He talked, and I listened. I needed to get out of my cell, but since there's no way I was going to run in the woods with the warning of the bears and the two territorial dogs at the bottom of the hill, who sound like Cujo on a bad day, 
I decided to walk up and down the private road. It was the only safe option. The reason I chose to walk instead of run was because I don't want to do laundry here. For starters, I'm not good at laundry. My whites turn pink. But I also don't want to get in anyone's way up here. Last thing I want to do is hog the laundry machine. For that reason, I don't want to run and sweat. But I also felt like it might be more symbolic than just that. On the outside, I run around all day and I go for runs. But here, I feel like I need to slow down. I bundle up. I don't have gloves with me, so I put two pairs of socks over my hands. That's an old runner's trick. I know that 2,000 steps is roughly the equivalent of a mile, so I count my steps when I walk. It was 1,655 going down, but for some reason, 1,705 coming back up. 3,360 altogether. So up and down was actually about 1.7 miles. If I do it six times a day, it's over 10 miles. That's my new goal to walk 120 miles up and down the driveway before I leave. After supper, I lie in bed thinking. I keep wondering what I'd be doing if I was home. I'd probably be giving the kids a bath and putting them in bed. After that, I'd be lying on the couch watching the NCAA tourney and hanging with Sarah. Sounds nice. I had another failed meditation session tonight. Maybe I should leave soon. Yes, you should, Billy the Bully answers. Maybe I should have gone to the south of France to live with Tick. I wonder what Tick is doing right now. There's a sliver of moonlight slicing into the empty darkness of my room. Dogs are barking. The breeding house is 100 yards away, and they sound like they're right outside of my room. Lenny's only 10 feet away from me. Hold on a second. Okay, I'm back. I got up out of bed and tiptoed across the room and propped the chair under the door handle, just in case. You can never be too safe. What if Lenny is pissed that he's picking up dog shit and I'm just a distractor in training sessions? I'm starting to freak myself out a little bit. But Lenny the intern doesn't know something about me. No one here does. One night in January of 2004, I was channel surfing when I saw a late-night infomercial for a self-defense course. They were offering a package to instruct people on defending themselves. The commercial was pretty cheesy. A guy walks into a bar and six guys jump him for no apparent reason. Don't you hate when that happens? Anyway, there were a lot of swinging pool cues and crashing beer bottles. The self-defense hero jumps into action like a vintage kung fu star. It's just like the movies when he knocks out the six roughnecks with karate chops and kicks to the head. Then he looks into the TV camera and says, You can learn to do this too. I was sold. The next day in my office, I asked Mark Orsini, a great friend of mine who was interning at Marquee Jet, to help find me the best self-defense guy in New York City. My business partner and I had started a private jet card company, so today's task was a bit unusual. For the last five weeks, Mark had been checking flight times and weather patterns. I'm going to become a black belt in something, I told him. The following day when I got to the office, Orsini had 10 pictures with bios pinned up to a bulletin board like mugshots. 
It looked like a scene out of Homeland. He was a black belt in interning. The kid knew how to get shit done. As I looked through the pictures, Orsini said, these guys are all hardcore, but none of them is your guy. This is your guy. He held up a photo of Tim Gowdy in his hand. He teaches Krav Maga at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I knew that Krav Maga is a self-defense discipline developed by the Israeli military. Get him on the line, I said. After a brief call, I hired Gowdy to teach me self-defense. He's built like a wrecking ball, round, strong, and dented. I had the feeling that if I punched him in the nose, I'd break my hand. Gowdy came to my place twice a week for an hour and a half every week for a year to train. We cleared out all of the furniture in my apartment and turned my living room into an octagon. It was super intense. One day, he accidentally cracked my ribs. The checklist behind the Krav Maga first strike boils down to three basic elements. One, has someone violated your space? Two, is there a direct threat? And three, get them before they get you. Sounds reasonable, right? During the months that followed, I practiced all the time. I went into work and told the people in my office to put me in a bear hug to see if I could escape, to try to poke me in the eye to see if I could block it, and to throw punches at me to see if I could defend an attack. It became sort of like the Cato scenes in the Pink Panther movies. Someone would jump out of the closet at me at odd moments. I wanted to see if this shit really worked. After months of training, I was ready. I was almost looking for a confrontation to happen. One Friday morning, I was leaving my apartment in a suit and tie for an important business meeting. I never wore a suit and tie, but on this day, I had to. So I was. I was also holding two trays of fruit, one in each hand. Then I got a fairway the night before to bring to the meeting. And I had a string bag over my shoulder. When I stepped onto the elevator, there were two maintenance guys in there. I'd lived in the building for 10 years and basically knew everybody who lived and worked there. I talked to these guys all the time about the Knicks or whatever. What's up? I said when I got on. The elevator stopped on the next floor below us. And into the elevator walked a guy in his late 20s. I'd never seen him before. But he had this party, frat bro, chief, big guy look to him and an attitude to match. It was December, but he was sweating like a faucet and his hair was all messed up. His eyes had a sheen. I moved back and over to my right to give him some room. He turned and faced the doors immediately, standing right in the middle of the elevator. But when the elevator door closed, he started backing up until he was right on top of me. I mean, his back was pushing up on my fruit trays. And he kept maneuvering like an annoyed person who keeps turning their neck at the movie theater. Can you at least give me some room, asshole, he said. I wasn't even sure he was talking to me at first. Excuse me, I said. He turned, looked at me, and gave a try and fuck with me look with red, runny eyes. I said, give me some room, fucko, he said. I looked at Angel, one of the maintenance guys, and he slowly shook his head as if to say, man, 
Don't let them talk to you like that. The elevator started heading down. Five, four, three, two, one. The elevator doors open, and the guy walked out. Maybe it's your mother's fault, he said under his breath, but loud enough for me to hear. The way she raised you. I was standing there on fire. I could feel the heat rising in my body. What did you say, I said? He flipped me off as he headed for the door. I couldn't take it anymore. Get the fuck over here and say it to my face, I said. At another time in my life, I would have been a little surprised and might have had some butterflies. But I was $16,000 into my Krav Maga lessons. I was dying to know if all the training worked. But I was also holding the two trays of cantaloupe chunks and sliced bananas and wearing a suit. Next thing I know, we were nose to nose. His breath stunk of last night's vodka and who knows what. I went through my Krav Maga checklist. Is he in my space? Check. Do I feel threatened? Check. Does this guy realize I'm going to knee him so hard in the nuts that his nuts are about to be in his ears? I'd done it with my instructor 6,000 times. And then I was going to take my fruit trays and play them like cymbals on his head. He must have sensed something because he turned quickly and left in a huff. Before I could make a move, he was gone from the building. But it was like he was walking away thinking he had won. When I got to work after my breakfast meeting, I was still steaming and couldn't think straight. I kept replaying the scenario in my head. What should or could I have done differently? I was in the conference room and I told everyone the story I just told you. And they were all like, you wimp? You let him go? The Krav Maga man? I was so mad. I got back in a cab and returned to my building looking for him. I don't even know why, because I had seen the guy leave, but I was so angry, I wasn't thinking straight. I filled out some paperwork with the doorman to let him know the incident occurred. This way, when I saw the kid again, I'd be on the record that we had an argument and he instigated it. Maybe he wouldn't be able to sue me if we have a future fight, I thought. Every single day after that, I waited in the lobby for an extra beat in hopes that I'd see him again. In fact, Gowdy decided to hold one class in the elevator to simulate what might happen if the situation repeated itself. I became a master of elevator combat, using leverage against the wall, my spacing, everything. I knew every inch of that elevator. A month goes by, then two, and there was no sign of this asshole. I wore Krav Maga sweatshirts around the building like a motorcycle gang members wears colors. Maybe I could get the word out. Okay, now that sounds a little ridiculous, but I wanted a rematch. Still, there was no sight of him. I tried to time my morning elevator ride to sync with the time of the incident, but I never saw him, ever. I was starting to question if the guy even lived in the building. Then one day, six months later, I was going for a bike ride. I pushed the elevator button and there he was, alone in the elevator, at last. I was holding my bike instead of my fruit trays. I was in my slippery bike shoes. They're like wearing clogs on an ice skating rink. I was wearing my stretchy bike shorts and a stretchy bike shirt. I looked like a Frenchman in Texas. 
and I had my helmet on. Shit, I didn't train to fight in this outfit. But before I could say a word, he said, I've been hoping to run into you. I want to apologize for that last time we were on the elevator. I couldn't have been more of a dick. I was high and shit. Please forgive me. It was like I threw 16 grand out the window. But today's service reminded me about the importance of forgiveness. Maybe I should be thinking more about Lenny's circumstances and what makes him like that instead of being annoyed and pissed off by him. I mean, my default button is usually to flip right to annoyed. When I get pissed off at someone who cuts me off, Sarah always says, what if that person is headed to the hospital for an emergency? And what if they had a terrible day? She's always giving others the benefit of the doubt. It frees her from getting angry herself. You don't have to own it. That's their stuff, she likes to remind me. And she's right. With all that said, though, I'm still ready to kick Lenny's ass if I need to. Okay, fine. I still have a lot of work to do up here. Day five, the retreat. If you realize that all things change, there is nothing you will try and hold on to. Lao Tzu, Dao De Jing. Outside of my window, I scanned the parking lot. It was starting to fill up with non-monks. An old 1970 Pontiac chugged up the driveway. Two elderly folks got out. I kept watching until they disappeared into the church. It has only been five days here, but it was strange to see civilians. And then more cars came driving up the driveway. And then four older folks got out. The monks had what they called a retreat today, and it didn't exactly draw a tailgate crowd. The church was sold out. I wouldn't be surprised if there were scalpers outside of it saying, I got two in the third pew, two in the third pew. Luckily, I hustled over there early and was able to get my usual seat. But man, that place was packed. And as a result, the church smells of monk and incense were magnified. I mean, the odor of incense was everywhere. The monks burn it as both a religious ritual and a way to mask body odor, or rather, that's the original purpose of incense, I'm told. I sat there waiting for the services to start and inhaled a huge whiff of incense. As soon as it hit my nose, I got an olfactory flashback to a dance crew called Soul Brothers. And there I went again with my mind taking the scenic route to nowhere. Anyway, I toured with them in the early 1990s when my record came out. The Soul Brothers were three guys from Los Angeles who danced for my label mate, Def Jeff. They had appeared on the TV show In Living Color and had insane street cred. When I kicked off a college tour, I asked Jeff if they could roll with me as my dancers to fire up the crowd. They were cool cats who loved to smoke weed. Let me put it this way. If there was such a thing as the Snoop Dogg Marijuana Olympics, these guys would win the gold medal. They knew what they were doing and burned a lot of incense to try to hide the smell. A few years after I retired from rapping, <clears throat> I uh, didn't get signed for a second album, I got a call from the Soul Brothers. They were going to Washington, D.C. for the Million Man March and were going to swing through New York City on their way back to Cali. 
They needed a place to stay and asked if they could crash at my apartment for one night. Of course, I said. They showed up on a Monday right before I was heading to work, so I told them to make themselves at home. I think they took that literally because when I got back from work, they had taken all of my family pictures off the wall and replaced them with photos of Bob Marley and Malcolm X. I could smell the incense they burned for a week. Today, the church was buzzing with anticipation. I pulled myself back from my soul brother reminiscences and focused on being present. There were people from all over the country for the one-day retreat. They all seemed to be searching for something we all want. Happiness, meaning, and spirituality. You could just feel it in the air. I tried to get comfortable in my seat. The festivities started off with a lecture by Sister Rebecca. She's one of three New Skeet nuns. The nuns live down the mountain. They're like sorority sisters to the monks. They attend all the services and share in virtually all of the retreats, events, and functions. The nuns came to New Skeet a few years after the monks did. Their story is similar. Originally, there were a half dozen or so in a convent in Indiana, and they went looking for something a little more extreme, like a monastery on a mountain. They heard about the New Skeet monks, so they came here and stayed. They've also gained some fame with the way they support themselves. They bake cheesecakes and sell them all over the world. At least that's what the word on the street or the mountain is. Sister Rebecca stood at the podium at the front of the church. She looks like Aunt B from the Andy Griffith Show. Like Aunt B, she has mad spunk. As soon as she started talking, I got drawn in. Her message resonated. Treat yourself gently. Don't talk angry to yourself. We're all searching for peace, she said. But peace is already within. We simply need to work on our spirit. She was explaining how we need to recognize emotions and feelings of fear. I immediately thought of Lenny. Damn him. Maybe he is my lesson. Maybe the monks planted him here as a distraction. But thankfully, Sister Rebecca reeled me back in with her words. And from there, I started connecting the dots. Sometimes we get lost emotionally. So that makes awareness and mindfulness like the GPS. If we're aware of how we're feeling, it helps us process emotion to make better decisions. It gives us direction. To me, awareness isn't the same thing as gut. Gut, instinct, and educated guesses can help guide us forward, but being aware will rein in the emotional side of decision-making if and only if we are accepting of our feelings. If we can work gut and awareness at the same time, magic can happen. And then at one point, I looked up and Brother Gregory was standing right in front of me. He handed me a basket of what looked like Wonder Bread. I smiled and sort of put my hand up, indicating a no thank you for the snack. I wasn't hungry. And besides, it was before noon, so I can only have fruit. Brother Gregory leaned down real close to my ear. It was blessed at last night's vigil, he said. I quickly grabbed one and popped it in. Tasted like Wonder Bread to me. I grew up on the stuff. I swallowed. 
At that point, I think I was supposed to reflect on Christ's sacrifice and look forward to his return. And I have to say, as far as sacrifices go, his was pretty epic. His entire life sounds like a sacrifice. It's rather ironic because it seems like today, most people try to avoid sacrifices. It was a great service this morning. Love the message and the blessed bread spoke to me as a symbol of being welcome as I am. As we all left the church, we started to get bottlenecked at the entrance. 60 people or so standing in and around the church. It was like a receiving line after a wedding ceremony. Just as I squeezed outside, one of the guests came up and gave me a big-ass bear hug. He did it on sneak attack. And it was a hug like I'd just gotten back from war. They attracted some interesting people to their treat, and this guy was par for the course. He was about six foot two, an African-American fellow, bubbly and seemingly high on life, but the guy was basically spooning me, standing up. There was no escape. Brother Christopher, are you wearing new cologne? He asked, taking a big whiff of my neck. Oh, I'm so sorry. You have me mistaken. I'm not Brother Christopher. I'm just Jesse, I said, and I'm not wearing any cologne. Just Jesse. Ah, the new monk. And then, that's when he kissed me. He leaned in and planted one right on my cheek. Sound effects and all. He didn't stop there. He whisked his lips around my face to the other cheek and kissed it again. But this was no European double cheek air kiss. Nope. This was the real deal double cheek kiss. He pulled me back from his kiss, or should I say, our kiss. No, I think his kiss is more accurate, and he was still holding onto my shoulders. My cheeks must have had wet stains on them, and that's when I explained I wasn't a monk. But he didn't seem to care. Funky up here, isn't it, just Jesse? The vibes? The air? The smells? The smells? Just Jesse. Walk with me, vibe with me, and smell with me, he said. How could I say no to that offer? We walked by my room and he stopped, and then he sniffed. You smell that? What? Orange peels. I've never smelled that up here before. There's something brewing. Can't you just smell it? What the fuck? Does this guy have super sensory smell? We get some distinct smells up here if we allow ourselves to breathe, just Jesse. Now I was thinking maybe you can get some unique super smelling powers from being around the dogs or something. We walked over to the dining room together. Our time has ended, just Jesse, he said as he found a seat next to one of the monks. Nice guy, but I wasn't wearing any cologne. Breakfast was silent again. It reminded me of car trips with my parents when I was young. The first one to talk loses, mom would declare. Every time I'd yell as loud as I could, I lose. I didn't think that was appropriate today, so I just decided to lay low. I met brother Peter at lunch, sorry, dinner. He's the monk who lives in an assisted living center but comes to the monastery for some events and services. The monks told me he was 
quite the talker, so I tried to steer clear of him. I was warned if he said, come spend some time with me, that meant I could be in for a few hours of conversation. I got sucked right into the reading room where we sat facing each other after lunch. Brother Peters are probably approaching 80, but he looks like he's in his early 60s. That's a theme with the monks here. They have a real youthfulness to them. As I get older, that's the one thing I want to hold on to, youth. I recognize we can't trick time, but if we act young, think young, and play young, it can have an effect on how we deal with aging. It slows it down. Ah, Jesse, I've heard a lot about you. We haven't gotten the chance to acquaint. Good to meet you, brother Pete. It's interesting that a fellow with your background would be interested in our life. Well, I thought that, what are some of your goals? What draws you to the monastic life? When I was deciding if this life was for me, it was a different time, a much different time. Things were different back then. But you know what doesn't change, Jesse? The heart. It's the heart that doesn't change, but times change. Yes, they do. But the heart remains the same if we allow it to. If you ask me, I'd say he's still got his wits about him. Well, you see, I said, let me tell you a little bit about the monastery. Thanks. I think I have to. It's important that we acquaint in the event you decide to make this a career path. Career path? Pull up a chair. Come spend some time with me. Fortunately, we got interrupted just as those words came out of his mouth. A car was stuck in the snow and they needed an extra body to push it forward. I ran to my room, grabbed the coat, and bundled up. When I got out there, Lenny, the intern, was already behind the car pushing with no gloves or jacket. He looked at me with a, you live with a Navy SEAL and you had to go get a jacket on type of look. I think this asshole is intentionally trying to make me look bad, like we're in some kind of private intern competition or something and he's the only one playing. I swear, I'm trying to move past these negative thoughts and embrace Lenny for who he is. But I'm not even an intern. After we freed the car from the snowbank, I got pulled into the kitchen. Brother Gregory told me I was in charge of cleaning the dishes, all 300 of them from the retreat. The monks cleared out and left me with the plates, pots, and utensils. It was like I was the rookie on a sports team who was in charge of the laundry after practice. Can't wait to tell Sarah. Sarah. What did you do at the monastery, honey? Me. Dishes. Dog distractor. Oh, and I walked up and down the hill for hours. And while I was scrubbing a pot for the second time because it didn't pass Brother Gregory's inspection, I'm not even joking when I say I scrubbed it like a champ the first time, I overheard someone say, Plenty have missed heaven by 18 inches, the distance between the head and the heart. I like that. So I treated every plate like it was a push-up, every pot like a pull-up, and every utensil like a sit-up. I was trying to bang them out as fast as I could, harder, faster. I was crushing those dishes. And when I finally finished, Brother Gregory told me it was officially my job to do the dishes for the rest of my stay. Brother Christopher led the retreat in the afternoon. 
We were in the church and he started with 20 minutes of silent meditation for the group. I find it's easier to meditate with a room full of people. I'm not sure why. And then Brother Christopher talked about the pressure we put on ourselves to succeed. We spend so much time worrying about things that may never happen, he said. And then he shifted his discussion to suffering, and that really got my attention. He said adversity is the great activator of spiritual awakenings. Suffering is the great accelerator to going inward. In the presence of dying, we discover our deepest life. Death, sickness, and loss pull us into a new moment and new way of thinking. When you deal with tragedy and it doesn't rob you of joy and peace, it's a great gift for others. I have to say, for someone who doesn't go deep, that's some deep shit. I've learned a lot about myself when I suffer, but my kind of suffering doesn't compare to what Brother Christopher was talking about. My suffering has always been self-inflicted through endurance races. In 2006, I entered the USA National Ultramarathon Championship. I adjusted my goal from winning the race to just completing the 100 miles in less than 24 hours. I raised money during my training and received over $1 million in donations, which only increased the pressure to finish. I gave myself 90 days to train, and I trained like a machine. I always tell people that when you have a big goal, the work necessary to accomplish it has to become an obsession. It has to become a part of your daily lifestyle and remain that way for the duration of the goal. With that mindset, I trained twice a day, every day. It was an obsession. At night, I did research, reading articles and watching videos about achieving goals. Most of what I found had the same five themes. One, have a specific date for your goal. Two, have an accountability partner. Three, put the goal in writing. Four, have a detailed plan to accomplishing your goal. Five, execute your plan. The research helped me maintain my obsession, but all of that knowledge went out of the window at mile 75. My ankles were swollen the size of grapefruits. There were six toenails floating around my socks and blisters appeared on my feet that looked like the purple grapes you can find at Whole Foods in the produce section. In that moment, I could have had my goal tattooed to my forehead and it wouldn't have helped me. Fuck those goals, blogs, and self-help videos. They weren't going to run the last 25 miles. As I tried to keep running on the 1.1-mile dirt loop in Grapevine, Texas, I was struggling. But the short loop provided an opportunity for me to see the other runners during the race. And one of those runners competing was Pam Reed, a legend in the world of ultra running. She's famous for not only completing the Badwater race, the hardest race in the world, but winning it. As Pam passed me, we started to chat. Well, as much as one can chat while running their 76th mile. I'm not feeling it today, she said. This is my last lap. I'm going home. No, I explained to Pam I was running for charity and needed her help. I knew she could provide a wealth of information when the shit hit the fan. And truth be told, the shit was already flying around. 
I was in trouble. But I knew she'd seen it all. I needed her with me for the balance of the race to coach me through the pain. Thankfully, she agreed with a smile. Just keep moving, she said. Block it out of your mind. It's not going to kill you. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. I listened to her. I kept moving, one leg at a time, loop after loop. The pain will last a week, Pam told me, but you'll have the memory forever. At mile 84, she saw the self-doubt creeping back into my bones. My legs were like jello, and I truly wasn't sure if I could finish. I wanted to quit. She looked me in the eye as I was about to utter the words, I don't know if I can make it. No matter what, she said, keep advancing. I crossed the finish line 22 hours and 30 minutes after the race started. It landed me in a wheelchair for three days, but I finished. I'd have never made it without Pam's advice, guidance, and support along the way. And that experience of suffering has helped me in so many other facets of my life. The memory has helped me cross many other finish lines. And I know that isn't the kind of suffering Brother Christopher was talking about. But what he said makes a lot of sense to me. I get it. Suffering can give us power. Day 6. Mr. Sarah Blakely. When it is obvious that the goals cannot be reached, don't adjust the goals. Adjust the action steps. Confucius. When you're alone for an extended period of time, all the concerns around work, schedule, and people you're pissed off at go away. And the important things rise to the front of your mind. I really miss my kids. And of course I miss my wife. Just thinking about her reminds me of a few nights before I left. I headed over to a restaurant called 10 Degrees South with my friend and trainer, Mark. We were meeting Sarah there. The three of us planned to have a nice dinner while my kids were with my parents. We love the restaurant. The food and decor are South African, which make it a fun and tasty place to go. And it's not far from our house. It's in Buckhead, just off of Roswell Road. When Mark and I walked in, we saw Justin. He and his wife own the place. Justin is an ex-professional soccer player who's got gorilla strength. And when he saw us, he ran over to pull me into his clutches. He squeezed me like my son Laser squeezes the toothpaste. There's nothing gentle about it. My guess is he's broken numerous ribs with that hugging technique. After our gorilla greeting, he walked us through the bungalow-inspired dining room over to the indoor patio. We sat down and waited for our waiter. And then I felt it. You know that feeling when you can just tell someone is looking at you? Yeah, that feeling. I had it. Eyes were on me like a heat-seeking missile. I looked up from the menu and scanned the dining room. There she was. A woman, perhaps a recent college grad, was laser-focused on me. She had wavy blonde hair, a pair of slender tan legs, and piercing blue eyes staring. I quickly turned away, trying to play it off like I was looking for Justin or something. I looked over at Mark to see if he saw what I saw, but he was reading his menu. He was in his own little world. 
I kicked him under the table. Mark, I said like a ventriloquist. Table 12. You think I know the table numbers? Whatever you do, don't look now. But over there, I said, I think she's checking me out. Who? Where? I gave him the slightest nod with my head and guided him to the location with my eyes. Mark turned his chair around like he was positioning himself to see a performance of Hamilton. He definitely would fail as a private investigator. So blatant. And then he quickly turned back around when he got caught in the act. And this young lady kept her eyes on me the entire time. She wouldn't quit. Did someone clone Kate Upton? Mark said. Holy shiznit. And then he whipped back around to make sure she was still looking. Oh, yeah, she was. She's checking you out, man, he said. Dang. We were both baffled. Every time I looked up, she was still staring. This woman was like the antithesis of Medusa. Instead of turning people to stone, she could turn them into jello. Her stare went on for an hour. Okay, fine. I lied. But it was like three very, very, very long minutes. I must say, it felt good to be checked out by such an attractive female. I guess that's what it feels like to be swiped right in public. And when you're 48 years old, you got to take what you can get. It was a nice ego boost. Harmless, but nice. And then she stood up and started walking toward our table. Her eyes were still laser focused, but now accompanied by a huge, friendly Georgian smile. This is bananas, I thought to myself. What is she doing? What if she propositions me? What if Sarah walks in when I'm just chatting her up? Should I not talk to her? But isn't that rude? She got closer and closer until she was standing right next to our table. Mark grabbed his water and quickly filled his mouth with it. Excuse me, the young lady said. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but can I ask you a question? Sure. I mean, sure. And then she paused for a moment. Are you? Are you married to Sarah Blakely? What? Mark's water squirted out the sides of his mouth, and then he covered it with a napkin. Um, yeah, I said. I am. Oh, my God, she said. I love her. I love what she does. She's such an inspiration. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. I can't believe you're Sarah Blakely's husband. Yep, that's me. I thanked her for the kind words about my wife and told her that Sarah would have loved meeting her. She gushed a few more times before telling us that she had to run to meet her friends at some club called Sanctuary. She didn't even drop an invite. So rude. And then just like that, she was gone. Mark busted out laughing. Fuck off, I said. The reality is, I'm very comfortable having a wife who's in the public eye. I can see how that could generate a lot of insecurity, but I take a lot of pride in being Sarah's biggest fan and cheerleader. Sure, there are times when it feels weird to sit at a dinner event where everyone wants to talk to Sarah way more than me, but it's fun to watch your star shine bright. That's what teamwork is all about. A big part of marriage is sharing in each other's successes, and I picked a great teammate. 
About 10 minutes later, Sarah walked through the door. I immediately told her about what had happened with the woman checking me out. She thought it was hysterical. And then our waiter stopped by to fill Sarah's water and told us about the specials. I love the food there, but I always consider it a cheat day. Sarah, on the other hand, thinks it's her healthy meal of the week. There have been many nights when I've seen her take down an entire box of Cheez-Its for dinner. She defines healthy as the plate having something green on it, like a sauce. When we were ready, Sarah ordered sweet ground beef curry topped with savory custard. Mark went with the 18-ounce bone-in ribeye, and I got butternut squash ravioli. As we waited for our food to be delivered, we talked about the topic on all of our minds. What was I going to do at a monastery? The three of us kept chatting until our food came. After we finished up, the waiter stopped by and offered some dessert. Justin's mom makes the desserts. They're called Die Delights, and everything she makes is fantastic. We've never had a bad one. They're insanely good. The waiter asked Mark and me if we wanted anything, but we passed because we were planning to get a run-in later. I love the fruitcake, Sarah said with a smile. You're splurging, I said. I love it. Splurging? What are you talking about? That thing is going to have like 18,000 calories. 18,000 calories of fun, she said. Plus it has fruit in it, silly. It's healthy. God, I love my wife. I've learned so much from being around Sarah. That's another reason I miss her so much. She makes me better at everything. I feel like we're Carl Malone and John Stockton to each other. They were two skilled professional basketball players who made each other's game better. They played knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses and used it to their advantage. Sometimes I'm the point guard giving her an assist and other times she's passing the ball to me down low so I can score. And sometimes with Thelma and Louise. Except we don't drive off of cliffs. But one of the things I love most about Sarah is her story and determination. Growing up, Sarah always wanted to be a lawyer, but she failed the LSATs twice. So instead of heading to law school after college, she decided to go to Disney World and try out to be goofy. Of course she did. When she arrived, she was too short for the job. Minimum height is 5 feet 8, and Sarah is 5 feet 6. So they asked her to be a chipmunk instead. After a short stint at Disney, Sarah accepted a job with an office supply company called Danka and sold fax machines door-to-door for seven years. One night before heading out for a party, she didn't like the way her own butt looked in white pants. She took a pair of scissors and cut off the feet of her pantyhose to avoid panty lines and have a smoother look under her clothes. Voila! Her invention and big idea was born. Still, having a big idea and turning it into a big reality isn't nearly the same thing. Here's where having experience can be a dream crusher. People have great ideas all the time, but they have just enough experience and have seen just enough failure to start to believe their chances of failing are too high. Sarah didn't know enough to think her chances of succeeding were low. Besides, failure was never a big thing for her. 
At the dinner table growing up, Sarah's father had a weekly ritual where he would ask her what she failed at that week. Maybe she had tried out for the school play, cheerleading, or a sports team. When she'd tell her dad how poorly it went, he would give her a high five. Whether she had succeeded or failed wasn't important. All that mattered was that she tried. That ritual changed Sarah's definition of failure, and failure became tied to not trying rather than the outcome. Over the course of the next two years selling fax machines, Sarah worked on developing her new idea after work, at night, and on the weekends. She took $5,000 she had set aside in savings to start the company. Since she had never taken a business class, she operated on instinct and gut. Instead of using her entire budget on legal fees to patent her product, Sarah bought a book on patents and wrote her own patent. She used bold colors in her packaging to make her products pop off the shelves. She spent 12 hours a day in department stores promoting her products for two straight years. It worked. The name Spanx came to Sarah while sitting in traffic in Atlanta. She knew that Kodak and Coca-Cola were two of the most recognized brands in the world and that both names shared a strong sound. She figured it must be good luck. She changed the KS to an X at the last minute because she heard that made-up words are easier to trademark than real words. When she launched her product, she began cold-calling buyers in department store chains and got nowhere. She eventually got a meeting at Neiman Marcus in Dallas but her sales pitch wasn't going so well. So Sarah called an audible and asked the buyer to follow her into the bathroom. This was a first for the buyer, but she was a good sport. Sarah put the footless pantyhose on in the bathroom and did her own before and after. The buyer said, I get it. I'll try them in seven stores. Today, Spanx has expanded way beyond just the shapewear that made them famous. They now have a cult following for their leggings, activewear, swimwear, bras, apparel, and her latest invention, arm tights. Sarah somehow just knows what customers want. It's fun to watch. She's an inventor at heart and holds several patents. But what she's most proud of is Spank's greater mission of elevating women. Regardless, what I miss most about her is her unconditional love for her family, friends, and children. I went to check out the library this afternoon, and as I headed back to my room, I had to pass the kitchen to get there. And I spotted a jar filled with chocolate cliff bars. Josh the cook must have picked them up today. I used some bionic counting skills and immediately realized there were 11 bars. One for each monk, Lenny the intern, and me. I was famished. The fruit and soup diet had me craving these bars. Maybe the monks don't even know about them. Maybe Josh just put them out. Maybe monks don't even like cliff bars. All kinds of thoughts were flying into my head. And honestly, my hand went into the jar to grab one. Just one. But I sinned. I took all 11 bars back to my room and ate three before heading out. 3 p.m. Simple manual labor helps keep your mind clear, they say. And they're right. It does. I don't mind doing the work. It's just 
I don't know. I'm having a hard time articulating my feelings. This afternoon, I scrubbed the church floors with a single scrub brush, along with Lenny the intern, on our hands and knees. And those floors were D-I-R-T-Y. There's nothing like monk dirt with all the work boots clomping around, all the people from the retreat, and the incense burning twice a day. I tried talking to Lenny to plot out a strategy for the floor, but he didn't say a word. How do people do that? Just not respond. Even when I'm in a disagreement with someone, even if I'm pissed, I respond. I say something. But talking to Lenny is like speaking Braille. Lenny, you want to start at the back and I'll start at the front? Nothing. As I started to clean, I seriously wondered why I came up to the monastery in the first place. Sure, I'm learning, but time is going by so slowly. I have to start listening to my wife. Just like my mom, she's virtually always right, which makes sense because Sarah's a mom too. She told me I just jump into things without thinking. And my mom used to say, be happy with what you have. I should listen to both of them. But instead, Billy the bully was in attack mode. I mean, maybe I should have just stayed with my mom for a couple of weeks instead. I thought I was going to a monastery like the ones in Tibet. Instead, I got dog whispers and jeans and sweatshirts and scrub brushes. I kept grinding the bristles of the brush to the floor, hard. If I was going to be cleaning the floor, I at least wanted to do it well. There was a point when I was scrubbing that I looked over at Lenny, who was scrubbing like his life depended on it, and said to myself, if he says one word to me, I'm going to make him eat the brush. Not very monkish, but I was annoyed. I don't know why I get myself into these types of situations. I moved a Navy SEAL into my house, for heaven's sake. I went to live in a monastery filled with German shepherds. What's next? Alligator wrestling? A nudist colony in Antarctica? Dancing with the stars? Why do I keep looking for something I don't have? I think it's because I don't want to miss out on life. I mean, we only get one shot at it. So why not try to create as many memories as possible? I rolled over so I was sitting on my butt and looked up at the iconic portraits on the wall. Moses looked like you see him in most paintings, old, with a long white beard and holding two tablets with the Ten Commandments. He seemed to be looking back at me. What's the matter with you, Moses said. Did you come all this way for nothing? In my ear. He talked like Jackie Mason. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have come. A mistake? So that's the lesson you're going home with? Never go to a monastery? Something like that. Don't be a putz, Moses said. The lesson is in your hand. There's nothing in my hand but this stupid brush. Exactly. While I was looking at the brush, the realization hit me like a Jackie Chan kung fu kick to the side of my head. The fact that I wasn't being tested by the monks was a test in itself. This wasn't supposed to be some magical, spiritual journey. I wasn't supposed to levitate or reach enlightenment. I was supposed to scrub the floor and wash the dishes. I was supposed to learn by being a part of the community and by doing what they do. Billy the bully faded away. 
It was in that moment I shifted gears and understood that sometimes we're just supposed to experience things, to allow them to happen naturally and be present for the moment. Stop worrying about things like whether my son scores at his soccer game and just appreciate the fact he's healthy enough to be in the game. Floor scrubbing took three hours, and I must say, it looked fantastic when we were finally done. Like the ice at Madison Square Garden right after the Zamboni finishes making its rounds between the first and second period. I'm proud of the job we did. I stood there for a moment admiring our work. It felt good. I felt good. Afterward, I took a walk and did some soul-searching. I'm here for the experience, I told myself, and I have to remember that. I'll never get another opportunity to give myself an extended time out and live at a monastery. I reminded myself of the two types of moments, the ones we can't control and the ones we create, and started to celebrate the fact that I'm creating this memory. So I need to focus. I'm going to try to absorb everything I can from the monks by participating, observing, and really trying to get to know them. I'm going to try to be part of the community as much as I can. I'll try to have fun, too. I need to be strategic about this. I'm going to try to find out everything I can about this place and somehow figure out how to stop the noise in my head. Just because I'm staying in one of the quietest places on Earth doesn't mean the noise between the ears stops. It seems like mine never stops. The idea of going home early still has some oxygen. The internal enemy is alive. The bully in my head, he still whispers to me, it's time to go. At the evening service, the cliff bars got their revenge. My stomach was like an overstuffed washing machine on full tilt. It was growling so loudly and I could feel everyone in the congregation looking at me. I should have known a monastery is the wrong place to mess with karma. I'm sorry. 11 p.m. About two hours ago, I think it was 9 p.m., I went with Brother Stavros to clean the dog pens. Every night, he walks over to the training center to let the dogs run outside so he can clean. Tonight, he asked me to join him. It was freezing and pitch black out as we walked the 200 yards from our sleeping quarters. Stavros didn't bring a flashlight. He navigated the trail like it was the middle of a sunny day. No issues. Seal would love this guy. I can clean the pens if you want to play with the dogs, I said. Nah, he said. You should get to enjoy the dogs. Connect with them. Great. I was instructed during my time as a distractor to always greet a dog in a non-threatening position with your hands low to the ground, making a fist. So when one of the dogs came over to greet me, I did just that. Not only does that calm the dog, but there's less flesh on your knuckles in the event you get bitten. As soon as the dog reached me, she bypassed my fist and made a mad dash for my nuts. One of the side effects of being up here alone is it has made me super horny. I think the dogs are picking up on it because she stuck her nose in my groin and sniffed me like a security dog checking for bags of cocaine at the airport. Stavros pulled her back and instructed me to hand her a treat. I did. She gobbled it in one bite. 
better a treat than my nuts. And then she took one last whiff of my nuts before Stavros put her back in the crate. I'd already had my fill of dogs this evening after the first one, but we stayed with them until about 10.15 p.m. and then headed back. When I got to our building, I saw Lenny's door slightly open and heard some chanting coming from his room. I tiptoed into my room and wedged the meditation chair under my door handle to create a homemade lock. I'm not going to let anyone get me up here. Day seven. I didn't learn this in college. An ounce of practice is worth more than tons of preaching. Mahatma Gandhi. I was talking to some of the monks today about happiness again, but they were really trying to get my perspective on it. They wanted to know what I thought. I said something like, I believe happiness is a totally pure emotion. They were curious what I meant. So I told them two stories. It was 1985 and I was on the couch of my living room hanging out with my friend Myron. He was part of my crew, a two-man breakdancing crew. We got together every weekend and performed our routine wherever we could. One day I said to him, let's go to Washington, D.C. and perform on the street. There's no way those kids are as good as us. And it was true. Kids in other parts of the country were at least six months behind people breaking in New York. This is where shit was invented. So there was no way they'd be better than us. By the time other kids saw stuff on MTV, we were already on to the next. The idea had come out of nowhere, but like most good ideas, those are the ones to jump on. So we convinced my older sister, Jill, who had recently gotten her license, to drive us down there. All we had to do was offer to pay her for a ride and her silence. Under no circumstances could she tell mom. She liked the plan. So the next morning at 7 a.m., we piled into her car and hit the road. Breakdancing had become my full-fledged passion by my sophomore year of high school. I used to record shows like Soul Train and movies like Flashdance and try to learn every move. I watched in slow motion on my VCR and practiced in front of a mirror. Even my parents supported it. How many parents would let their son empty out the garage and fill it with cardboard boxes, a boom box, and mirrors to practice breakdancing instead of putting their cars in there? My parents were cool with it, but I couldn't tell them we were on our way to D.C. While my sister drove, Myron and I strategized on how we'd perform our routine. We kept trying to perfect the plan and come up with other ideas to make our act even better. We also had to navigate. We had maps and my dad's road atlas to help figure out the best routes. But with each mile, doubt started to creep into our minds. What if nobody shows up? What if we suck? What if people laugh at us? And eventually, six hours later, we completed the four-hour journey. We were nervous as hell, but it was too late to back out. We found the parking lot next to a bank in Georgetown and set up shop. We had a huge boombox and mixtapes that we recorded off the radio, commercial breaks and all. And then we hit play. We started doing our three-minute routine. But like I said, we didn't think the plan out too much because once the first three minutes were up, we weren't sure what to do next. 
So I'd do my thing and point to Myron. Then he'd do his thing and point to me. And then I'd do my thing and point to him. <laughs> you can tell where this is going. But then a crowd started to form as we danced. After 30 minutes or so, I took off my hat and passed it around. The money started to pile up. When we were done, we took a 10-minute break and then started up again. And eventually a new crowd would come and watch. We kept doing it all day. My sister just stayed there and watched. She was part of every crowd. Eventually, though, we got kicked out by the manager of the bank. He said we weren't allowed to be doing this in the parking lot. We collected $280 that day. And after we paid my sister her fee, gas money and bought lunch, we were left with $82. It was almost all singles and change. We each earned $41. I gave Myron his cut and he counted it out one by one. And once he was done, he came running over to me and gave me the biggest bear hug ever. Jess, we are fucking rich, he yelled. It was the most amazing feeling ever. I gotten over my fear of performing in front of people. We were doing something that we loved and we were rich. In 1985, $41 went a long way for a teenager. We couldn't stop smiling the entire drive home. It was pure bliss. And when we pulled into our driveway back on Long Island, I looked over at my sister and thanked her again. How far do you think it is to drive to Texas, I asked. The monks really liked that story, but then I told them this one. Fast forward 20 plus years. I was sitting by the pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel and the sun was shining. I had a free day and had just ordered a big lunch. My friend Orlando and I were making plans for the evening when my phone rang. It was my marquee jet partner. I picked up the call and he told me to sit down. I was already sitting in a lounge chair. Warren Buffett's company wants to buy our company, he said. Our company literally had changed the aviation business. Over the last nine years, we had identified a market of people who wanted to fly privately a few times a year, clients who had the ability to purchase 25 hours of flight time instead of chartering a plane, signing a five-year contract, or actually owning their own jet. We had done $5 billion in sales, had hundreds of employees, and always dreamed of someday selling our company. Okay, then, I said to my partner, let's do it. We were selling our company to NetJets, part of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. It was incredible. And then I got off the phone and looked at Orlando. I told him the news. He couldn't believe it. He was so excited for us. When I was done telling the monks the stories, I posed this question. If you asked 1,000 people what would make me happier, A, driving to D.C., breakdancing all day, and making $41, or B, selling a company to NetJets, Berkshire Hathaway, what would people choose? My guess is all 1,000 people would answer B, and they'd be wrong. That day with Myron was one of the happiest of my life, a real high. The obvious lesson is that money won't bring you happiness, but everyone already knows that. For me, it's more about happiness being a choice. I prefer to look at happiness as a lifestyle, not a goal. The monks liked that. 
they liked it a lot. But here's the rub. As much as I love the lifestyle that includes new challenges and adventures, if I keep seeking these out to acquire more happiness, is it problematic that the lifestyle I live on a daily basis, the one that exists right in front of me, still needs more feeding? Happiness should never be insatiable. So today marked my one-week anniversary here, and what I've learned is, this isn't just a monastery. It's a freaking business school. I got a chance to speak with the three nuns. Man, these are smart nuns. They started a cheesecake business with $1,000 in savings. They went to six local restaurants in the beginning and asked them to carry their cheesecakes on a trial basis. Now they're world famous and bake 20,000 cakes a year. They make and sell them at their home and ship them all over the world. If you buy in person, the sales process works on the honor system. You walk in, nobody's there. You take a cheesecake out of the fridge, put cash in an envelope, and slide it through a slot. As a serial entrepreneur, I love the way they bootstrap their business. The monks are amazing bootstrappers too. They have three main revenue streams. They sell about 50 puppies a year at $3,500 each, have the dog training program that allows them to house six dogs at a time, charging $2,500 per dog each session, and they smoke cheese. Cheese, I tell you. But in addition to their primary revenue focus, they also write best-selling books and have retreats on the property. And it doesn't end there. They have a marketing department, they're on social media, and they have a lovely gift shop that keeps the register ringing. Of course, they also have expenses to look after, like the cook, the maintenance man, and everyday living. But they definitely make enough money to keep the lights on. They're in the black. It's a super efficient operation, and young entrepreneurs could learn a lot from their infrastructure. They each have ownership of their own division, but know the roles of the others in case they have to fill in. It works like this. One monk is in charge of each vertical. Brother Gregory, the guests, activities, and the gift shop. Brother Mark, kitchen and services. Brother Thomas, dog training program. Brother Luke, Brother John, dog breeding. Brother Ambrose, cheese. Brother Stavros, the church. Brother Christopher, oversees the whole thing. One team, one dream. And what I love most is that they are completely self-taught. They learned all of this on the fly. No experience necessary. I always say experience is overrated. It takes too long. Start the process and figure the rest out. If you wait too long, someone else will beat you to the punch or that bully in your head will talk you out of pursuing your idea. I was excited by everything I learned. So excited that I sat down with Brother Christopher to talk strategy. I had a list of ideas I thought could be moneymakers for the monastery. You guys are the experts, I said. Brother Christopher smiled. I think you have an opportunity. Since you're an authority in your industry, you can leverage that credibility and expand well beyond breeding and training. The obvious extension would be to sell leashes and collars and dog toys, but that income is not recurring. Let's set up a line of dog food and vitamins for everyone who buys a puppy. 
if each dog lives on average for 10 plus years and we get them on a monthly food plan, it will add up. I quickly took out a pen and did the math for Brother Christopher. 50 puppies a year, multiplied by 12 months of food, multiplied by 10 years, etc. It becomes quite lucrative and it never stops. This would be a great way to add an additional revenue stream for the life of each dog. Plus, I already have the name, Man's Blessed Friend. He liked that. But I knew he needed more convincing, so I told him this story. Recently, my friend in Atlanta asked me to meet with the founder of a company called No Foods. He told me they make a line of grain-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, everything-free breads, pastas, waffles, and cookies that he said were delicious. He told me they were raising money and thought it'd be a fit for me given my lifestyle. I explained that I really don't invest in anything outside of my own projects, but after listening to my friend's hard pitch, I agreed to a meeting only, no strings. At this stage of my life, I have a very simple formula. I want low aggravation and high reward. If something has a super high return but comes with a lot of aggravation, I'm not interested. That goes for investments, friends, travel, everything. So I agreed to meet under the condition this potential investment will come with little to no aggravation. He agreed. The founder, Steve Hanley, showed up with a bread box filled with products. Since my son eats gluten-free, I tried almost every gluten-free product on the market. When I bit into the sliced bread with an avocado on top, the whole notion of aggravation went away. I wanted in. The more I learned about the product, the more I liked it. It had very few ingredients, which made it way easier on your digestion. I knew all the ingredients, and it was tasty and nutritiously superior to anything I'd seen on the market. The one potential knock was there were no preservatives in the foods, which would greatly impact the shelf life of the products. This product could go bad quickly. While everyone thought that was a big negative, I thought it was actually a big positive. God didn't make food to sit on a shelf in a plastic package for two years, I told Steve. This message may actually resonate with our customers. After our second meeting, I was so impressed, I moved Steve's entire team into Spanx's office. They took over the second floor and used the kitchen as their new products lab. After some diligence, it was now time to decide on the investment. I put Steve in touch with my team of advisors. I was certain they would love this opportunity. One of the best things I did when I could afford it was hire experts. Some of those experts sit on a small investment committee that oversees all of the deals Sarah and I make. That is a serious upgrade from my old investment team, me. Steve, send all the info to my team to evaluate, I said. A day or two later, I get a call from my lead dog. Jesse. I have a recommendation on the no foods investment, he said. Great. How much do you think we should put in the deal? Actually, nothing. I think you're nuts to invest in this. Wait, what? The CEO has no experience in the food business, none. He also has zero marketing background. I mean, 
He's never done anything like this. How's he going to get all the manufacturing and sales off the ground? He had a point, but then I asked this question. Have you ever actually met Steve? No. Have you seen the fire in his eyes? No. Have you seen his passion for making this work? No. Wire him the money. Again, you are the business plan. If I would have told someone in my 20s I was going to start a private jet company with no money, no experience in aviation, no rich friends, and no airplanes, they'd have laughed me out of the room. If you marry your dreams with drive, urgency, passion, and a burning desire to finish what you start, you can do anything. I summarize my idea to Brother Christopher in two sentences. There's reoccurring revenue for you guys while also being able to improve the dog's lives. If you find supplements that you truly believe in, they can help the dog's health. It's a win-win. Let's keep the lines of communication open on this, Brother Christopher said. While I was speaking with Brother Christopher, I felt pumped up, animated, and alive. It's like my words and actions were coming from another place, a pure place. These are cues I look for in myself when talking business and or ideas with other people. Just as I was clearly able to see it in Steve Hanley's eyes, I could feel it inside of me when talking with Brother Christopher. That tells me, regardless of what I do in the future, I should stay connected to my passion. 6 p.m. Sundays are help yourself to supper nights, which is another way of saying leftovers. Brother Christopher made pasta and left a note that read, up for grabs. I grabbed. After dinner, I watched the news with the brothers. We all huddled around the small television the monks have in the reading room. It is for Sunday evening news updates. Mostly, I watch the monks, watch the news. And like all great bullies, Billy came out of nowhere. I started working up the courage to announce my plans for a departure. It sort of felt like getting psyched up to ask a girl out back in junior high. I wanted to ask her, but I didn't have the courage to say it, not out loud. Actually, it was probably more like working up the courage to break up with the girlfriend. But then the monks were smiling and laughing, making me feel part of the group. It was nice. And during TV time, the monks invited me to go on a hike with a few of them tomorrow. It felt good to be included, and I was excited to get off the monastery. But it squashed my plans of letting them know I was thinking about leaving. After the invite to hike, I couldn't tell them. Still, I'm going to book a return trip to Atlanta soon. Day 8. Off Campus in this day and age, we are dangerously out of touch with the non-human world around us, leaving our ears dulled and our vision blurred. The Monks of Nooski. It's hiking day and we're going off the property. Getting off the monastery has me fired up. We're leaving soon. I was just in the dining room and a couple of the brothers were getting their packs ready. Everyone was fired up. Fired up in a monk way. Smiles and shit, but you can feel the energy. We'll leave in 10 minutes, Stavros said. Be ready. Roger the hat. He asked if I'd like to hike, 
I told him about Mount Washington and how inspirational of a climb it was. He must have seen the excitement in my eyes because he started getting excited too. He told me they hike every Monday and how some of their hikes have been extremely grueling. This guy is 70-plus years old. There are people half his age who think walking to the fridge is grueling. He must have some crazy monk hiking strength. This is going to be great. Fifteen minutes later. I walked up to the parking area, but there was only one small car in the lot. Brother Stavros was already waiting and told me to hop in the back. And then he said that Lenny the intern, Brother Mark, Brother Thomas, and Brother Thomas's dog would be there shortly. He was kidding, right? Five adults and a huge dog in this tiny car? He wasn't kidding. As I turned around, I saw them coming up the hill. It seemed like I was the only one concerned about the amount of room in the car. We piled in. Brother Mark popped the trunk and yelled, up in the trunk, and his dog jumped right in and laid down. Brother Mark took the front seat. Lenny sat next to me in the back, and then Brother Thomas came around and in through Lenny's side. It forced Lenny into the middle. We used to call that riding bitch growing up. But I was pretty sure no one would find anything humorous or entertaining with me sharing that tidbit. Lenny squished in between us in a weird yoga position. The car was worse than turnies. Dog hair everywhere, old maps on the floor, mud all over the seats. The car looked like it hadn't been washed in years. Because it hadn't been washed in years. With five grown men in the car, it didn't smell that great either. Whatever, man, I thought. We're going hiking. Brother Stavros took off like someone just waved the green and yellow flag at the Daytona 500. Go! He flew down the driveway and accelerated into the first right turn. Maybe monks have some type of force field that keeps them from getting hurt in accidents. Last I looked, I didn't have one. But honestly, I didn't care. I was dying to get off of the monastery grounds and see some of the real world. For the last seven days, I've only been able to walk to the mobile homes and turn around. And right on cue, the two wild dogs went bonkers as we whizzed past the mobile homes. 20 yards later, we hit the main road and the barks faded from earshot. Stavros wasn't slowing down. He went from Daytona to Le Mans down the mountainous curves. I'm exaggerating, but each time he'd take the curve in the road, Lenny the intern, in a downward pretzel position, would slam into Brother Thomas or me. But the only thing that mattered was we were going for a hike, and there's no way God would let a car full of monks with an intern and me get into a car crash, right? When we hit the straightaway, sort of a country route, I started absorbing the surroundings. I wanted to soak them all in. And everything was a landmark for me in case I'm able to someday run off of the property. Stavros kept flying down the narrow road. We passed through a town that had a gas station, a school, and a Rite Aid. And then Brother Thomas told me we were going to stop at the Rite Aid on the way home because Lenny needed eardrops. Eardrops? Poor guy's been just about stone deaf for a week, he said. Wait, he's been deaf? 
Lenny, the intern, is deaf? That's what's wrong with him? He's not a serial killer? He just can't hear? Holy crap. I felt bad for a moment. I'd misjudged him. But then I wondered, why eardrops were the solution? The guy can't hear and they want to get him eardrops? How about a hospital? How about before the hike? This is insanity. Five more minutes, Brother Stavros said at a red light. Are you ready, Jesse? Yes, sir. We finally arrived at our destination. It was called Batten Kill River. Our guide greeted us as we arrived. His name was Bo, and I learned that Bo hikes with the monks every week. He has to be 80 years old and looks like he could be a love interest of one of the Golden Girls. But I have to give it to him. He was prepared. Bo pulled out a backpack that would put Dora the Explorer to shame. He had duct tape, purification pills, a first aid kit, a compass, and flares. Where were we going that we would need purification pills or flares? Oh boy, this is going to be intense, I thought. After we all gathered around, Bo pulled out a map to show us where we'd be hiking today. I got tiny butterflies floating around my stomach as the map unfolded. It was almost go time. And then finally, he pointed at the 2.5-mile paved road on the map. When we get to the top of the road, we'll eat here, he said. Turn around and come home. Wait, what? We're hiking up a paved road? I didn't say that out loud, but I was thinking it. Why did he have all of these safety stuff if we're going up and down a road? It was impossible to get lost on a paved road. What's next? Climb up an escalator? After the initial surprise, I got over it. Enjoy the process, I told myself. It was fairly warm out, so I packed light. I figured we'd sweat going up the mountain. I mean, hill? I knew from my Mount Washington experience the importance of layering up, but I didn't think that was necessary today. We started heading up, which I figured would take a total of two hours. But about 10 minutes in, I realized at the pace we were going, we'd be out here for five hours. Meanwhile, Lenny the intern took off like it was a race. It was like he's mad that I got so much attention about Mount Washington and he had something to prove. I thought about going after him and leaving the monks, but I couldn't do that. Stav and Bo were super slow, so I rolled up with Brother Thomas, Brother Mark, and his dog. About five minutes up the hill, Brother Mark came to a stop, turned to me, and said, Go ahead a bit, and please, don't look back. I have to yellow the snow here. This gave me an opportunity for some one-on-one time with Brother Thomas. Of course, I've seen him every day since training the dogs with him, but this was a great opportunity to really get to know him. He's 33 and the youngest of the monks. I was really curious about what he misses most. He said the freedom of saying, hey, I want to get Chinese food tonight. I totally get that. I miss that too. One thing I'm struggling with is the idea of freedom. I do have freedom, but I don't really have freedom of choice up here. Many of the things I have access to at home, I don't have here. A stock fridge, a car, a microwave and bicycle. 
While part of me likes this simplicity, I'm also missing many comforts from home that I take for granted. I couldn't do this full time. Like all the monks, Brother Thomas pledged all of his belongings to the monastery when he came. His only possession is a driver's license. Makes me wonder, if I'm a cop and pull a monk over for speeding, would I give him a ticket? Brother Thomas's car and everything he owned was turned over to the monastery. Now if he wants something, he goes to petty cash, or for bigger purchases, it goes to committee to decide if it's necessary and approved. One of the vows all the monks take is poverty, meaning the non-attachment to things. Just within their means. Sounds similar to SEAL. He perfected the minimalist lifestyle. After he stayed with me, it inspired me to clean out my garage and closets to get down to 30 items. Liberating. Not a single day has gone by where I said, wow, I really wish I had a second bicycle pump. It decluttered my mind too. It freed up energy. It's like I didn't have to spend any thought on what I was going to wear that day. I just put on what was hanging in the closet. I think the monks have all of those same freedoms. We kept climbing the hill. The monks must take four vows. Number one, poverty, the non-attachment to things, just within your means. Number two, chastity. People are expected to have matured within their sexuality. I asked Brother Stavros if he felt deprived of sex. He said he's not deprived because he chose this life. Number three, obedience. You agree to cooperate with the order of the community. It's about respect to the moment you're in, responsibility for one another. Some communities have an abbot where the buck stops. Nuskeet doesn't any longer. They have a prior, Brother Christopher, who's been voted into term. But everyone has input, and it's more by consensus or majority. Number four, stability. That you stay in one place. That's why the cemetery is right there. Does everyone get along, I asked. I'm going to live with Thomas, Stavros said behind me. I'm committed to him and the others. Because of that commitment, why wouldn't I want to be at peace with him? Every Friday at 7.15 p.m., the monks have sharing. You have five minutes to discuss anything that's on your mind with the others and what may have happened during the week. It's also a time to clear things up if you're pissed at someone. And at the end of the five minutes, there's a chance for the other monks to respond. That seems like a really great system to me. I made a mental note to mention this to Sarah when I get home. We can both relate because being an entrepreneur is lonely. If something breaks, you have to deal with it. But up here, it's a community. If the toilet is clogged, they share that responsibility eight ways. Do guys ever quit, I ask? Just say, enough is enough? One brother left and married a girl in town, and others have left too. But it's rare, he said. To become a monk, the process can take two to three years. First, you're a seeker, and then you have a six to 12-month candidacy when you live at the monastery. And then, psychological evaluations and references are done. Then, the candidate's asked to come in as a novice. If they're received, they get a new name. And then, monastic profession. Full step of commitment to the vows. So what about the hair? Cutting off the hair goes back to Roman days. 
If you were in someone's service, you would shave your head. That way, if you ran away, they looked for the ball guy. Now, it's a token of rendering service to monastic life. That made sense. We kept heading up the hill. Why aren't any of the drawings on the wall in the church of blacks? There is, Stavros said. Moses the Black from Skeet, Egyptian. And there's a trend to not represent people totally accurately, but to use depictions. That's why most have the same olive skin. At this point, Lenny the intern was a mile ahead of us. Since Lenny couldn't hear, I realized there was no way to call for him. Brother Mark, Brother Thomas, and I got to the top of the mountain, hill, first and looked everywhere. We waited for Bo and Brother Stavros, and a few minutes later, they made it up. The road flattened out at the top of the hill, and it looked like a perfect place for local high school kids to drink a few stolen six-packs of beer. Where's Lenny? This is against protocol, Bo said. No hiker can hike alone out here. It's not safe. He pulled out a whistle from his jacket, blew it, and then started yelling, Lenny! Bo. Lenny is deaf, I said. I told the group I'd go on a one-man search and recovery mission to find Lenny. I went off the road and about a mile down the steep, snowy mountain. And then I finally saw Lenny about a quarter mile ahead. I double-stepped my way and caught him in about five minutes. Yo, I said, we got to stick together. Lenny just looked at me, so I used my finger to point up. Let's go. Once we were all back together, we had a quick lunch. It was really nice to be out and away from the monastery. After we finished, we headed back down. There was a lot less talking on the way down, but it was comfortable. We all just enjoyed the nature. When we got to the bottom, I offered to ride home with Bo. I liked my chances of survival better with him. But on top of being old and cautious, Bo drove like he was in England on the wrong side of the road. It might have been safer in Stavros's car. We stopped at Rite Aid for Lenny's ear medicine. And I have to say, I never realized how much fun a Rite Aid could be. I felt like Charlie in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. This was the first civilization I've seen in months. Okay, days, but it felt like months. There were real humans at Rite Aid and they were walking around like they had lives to lead. There were newspapers, candy, good soaps, products. I don't know what to do with myself. It was all so glorious. They have aspirin, I said to no one, and Band-Aids. I saw an older woman look over at me. I think she thought I was mental because she kept a safe distance between us. I didn't care. I grabbed a method foam soap pump and said to her, I love this soap. That's when she ducked into another aisle. I didn't want to leave. I bought a newspaper and chocolate. Seriously, it was like being at Disney World for the first time. And I didn't care how long the lines were. I could have stayed there for hours. I guess this is a great example of how much we take for granted. I mean, seriously, I never thought I'd be grateful for a Rite Aid. Normally, I'd try to avoid going there. It's like some of these chain pharmacy stores actually train their employees to go slowly and make customers wait. Today, though, 
I loved it. I want to go back. On the drive home to the monastery, I held on to my plastic bag like a nine-year-old holding on to his bag of Halloween candy. It was mine. It was all mine. I wasn't going to let go. I was grateful for soap. But why don't I feel like that every time I leave a pharmacy? 8 p.m. So, the diagnosis is back, and Lenny can hear. The eardrops didn't work, so the monks took Lenny to a clinic. Brother Stavros told me they drained about a gallon of wax out of each of Lenny's ears. How can you let a gallon of wax accumulate in your ears? Didn't he ever hear of a Q-tip? A washcloth? After he got back, I saw him in the reading room and had my first real conversation. Where'd you go to school, Lenny? UNLV. Cool. Well, what'd you study? Books. Um, do you like this place versus the Indian reservation? Hard to say. Okay. Well, what do you plan next? Undetermined. Are you staying here long? Undetermined. Lenny's lips didn't move when he spoke. Maybe he studied ventriloquism. Are you happy up here? Is that a trick question? Joy is fleeting, he said. Or should I say, happiness is fleeting. Huh? Silence. It wasn't going well. Maybe I should ask it like this, I said. What are you looking for, Lenny? For the first time, he stopped looking at my head and stared at me with his dark eyes. He didn't say a word. Religion? Direction? I asked, trying to help him along. Or are you not sure and you'll just know when you know? I'm looking for all of the above. And then he went back to his computer and pretended I wasn't there. I think I liked Lenny better when he couldn't hear. Or do I have some deep-seated desire for Lenny to like me? That's an underlying theme in my life. I want to be liked. Is that an insecurity or an asset? Day 9. Broken or breakthrough? Breakthroughs happen when limiting thoughts and behaviors are challenged. Fabian Fredrickson. I woke up this morning feeling sluggish. It wasn't unrest. It was more like restlessness. Perhaps it's the expectations I had coming in. Expectations are tricky and often set us up for disappointment. I wasn't motivated to go see the sunrise. I don't know why. And as I lay in bed staring at the ceiling, I kept thinking about Sarah. She'd said something before I left that seemed rather profound. But now, I wasn't so sure. Two nights before I left for the monastery, I was out to dinner with Sarah, and we were chatting about the different things I might be doing up at the monastery. There was a lot of excitement and anticipation of the unknown. Neither of us had a clue about what living with monks would look like. And then I asked Sarah how long I should stay. Stay until you have a breakthrough or you're broken, she said. It sounded like great advice, and I consider her an expert on this topic. She told me the first time she remembers being on the edge of a breakthrough or being broken. It was when she was 15 years old and saw her friend get struck by a car and killed. Her friend was riding her bike on a bridge in Florida when it 
played out before her very eyes. It obviously was a traumatic experience for her. And at the time, she had no idea a breakthrough was even possible. Around the same time, her parents were getting a divorce. She says that nearly broke her for good. But when her dad was leaving the house for the last time, he handed her a series of Wayne Dyer motivational cassettes. And this was her breakthrough. Sarah started listening to the tapes every day. It helped her deal with the tragedy of her friend and the difficulty of her parents splitting up. Sarah listened to the self-help tapes constantly, over and over again. She couldn't get enough. She listened to them so much that her friends in high school started refusing to get into her car because they couldn't take listening to them anymore. She credits Wayne Dyer CDs and the inner work she did as a big part of her success. The gap between breakthroughs and being broken is so narrow that sometimes it's impossible to see. What I'm dealing with now is nothing close to what Sarah went through. But it's a different kind of mindfuck. Sarah was dealing with real shit. When I put it in that kind of perspective, it makes it easier. That is, until I wait five minutes and get all up in my head again. Perspective is such a beautiful thing. But the key is to never let it go when you're holding on to it. My grip on perspective isn't as tight as it should be. I'm not sure if I'm closer to a breakthrough or being broken. It feels like neither. This afternoon, I walked four miles up and down the road. I've been able to stay consistent in getting in around 10 miles a day. Usually, I do three miles between breakfast and chores and do the rest in the afternoon after dinner. While my phone doesn't get a signal, it still is a function that accurately counts my mileage, so I've been bringing it on my walks. I stayed to the far right of the road because some of the snow melted last night, making the path rather muddy. And I was just walking like normal when I heard a ding on my phone. And I felt the vibration. When I looked at it, I noticed two texts had found their way onto my phone. And I had one bar of service. One bar. I moved from the spot I was standing and the bar went away. Wow. There's one spot on this isolated 500-acre property that gets cell service? And I just found it? I immediately went back to it and the one bar reappeared. I started typing a text to my wife. Me. I love you. I miss you. I miss the kids. Don't forget the kids have soccer today. As soon as I hit send, I saw the three little bubbles forming, indicating that Sarah was texting me back. I was so excited. I literally felt like the professor just fixed the transistor radio on Gilligan's Island. I couldn't wait for her to text back. Sarah, sweetie, today is Tuesday, not Sunday. Are you okay? Me, no, it's Sunday. Are you okay? Sarah. Um, I'm okay, but I'm looking at a calendar. Are you sure you're okay? Really? It's Tuesday? I started counting on my fingers and she was right. I'm in the land that time forgot. Time exists only on clocks and calendars. It has no worth at the monastery. Me. How was soccer on Sunday? Sarah. Funny you should ask. 
I actually thought it was Saturday on Sunday. Me. <laughs> so, no soccer? Sarah. Sorry, no soccer. What have you been doing? Me. Washing dishes, scrubbing floors, and training dogs. Sarah. What? How are you holding up? Me. The monks have been great. Nuns, too. Also, I met a spiritual intern who I thought was trying to kill me, but it turned out he had a gallon of wax in his ears. Sarah. Nuns? Me. Cool nuns. Sarah. Are there any other kind? Tell me, did you bring enough clothing? Me. Too much. I've worn the same thing every day. Sarah. What? I'm not surprised. Me. I haven't even showered yet. How are the kids? Sarah. They miss you a ton, but they're all doing well. Question. Do you want to come to L.A. this weekend with Laser and me? I'm taking him to Disney. I think it's enough already up there, love. Me. Disney? That's unbelievable. Of course I want to go. But I don't know. Sarah. We miss you, but we want you to do what's in your heart. Me. Let me see what I can do. Maybe I'll just come home tomorrow. Sarah. Okay, honey. Just let us know. Me. Love you. Sarah. Love you too. And then I saw the bubble on my screen. She was still typing. Sarah. If you are coming home, please take a shower. Winky face. So today is Tuesday. I'm not any closer to a breakthrough, but it felt good to text with Sarah. She put a smile on my face. I have friends who travel all of the time who tell me it makes their marriage stronger. It's because they spend time away from each other and really appreciate the time they do have. That makes sense to me. But right now, I really wish I was home. I've missed them enough. So, I took Sarah's advice and took my first shower. I hadn't really felt the need until now because you just get re-dirty the next day. But the dirt was sticking to me. I was gross. The shower was super small and the shower head in my bathroom was installed for someone the size of an eight-year-old. I felt like one of those yoga masters who can fit inside of a suitcase. There was an old plastic chair in the shower, so I sat on it to get low enough to let the water fall on me. Man, did it feel good. But I still can't kick it. I'm homesick. I miss my wife, my kids. I'm ready to leave. But is that the bully talking or the truth? I'm going home tomorrow. Day 10. Honest Moments. The first big pitfall is to let society define what happiness is. Brother Stavros. I got up at 6 a.m. It was my last day, so I wanted to do it right. And I've been making a habit of getting up early and stepping outside. My breath made giant puffs in the frigid air, but the cold didn't bother me. There's nothing quite like watching the rising sun. I stood there, taking it all in knowing that I'd be waking up in my own bed tomorrow. I stayed there a little longer than usual. It was as if I was hoping the sun would have an encore. But deep down, I knew the credits had already begun to roll.
I briefly looked for Brother Christopher when I got back. I wanted to ask him to call me a car service, but I didn't look too hard because I also wanted to go for one last walk. It was starting to warm up a little bit, so I hit the road. As I was heading back up the hill, Brother Gregory whizzed around the curve in his car. He was coming directly toward me, fast. We made eye contact as I jumped to the side. He gave me the thumbs up, and then he was quickly out of sight. I stood there in the snowbank, thinking, feeling, knowing, and then it hit me. Remember tomorrow. The voice inside my head was screaming louder than Lenny. It just kept saying the same thing over and over. Remember tomorrow. Remember tomorrow. Remember tomorrow. It's one of the mantras I live by. It's the way I beat up the bully in my head. And in that moment, I knew I had to remember how tomorrow was going to feel if I pulled the ripcord too soon and went home. Instantly, everything changed. When you come to a point when you have to make a key decision, remember how that choice will make you feel tomorrow, and the tomorrow after that, and the one after that. You want to drop out of the marathon at mile 18? Okay, that's fine. But remember what it's going to feel like tomorrow when you're left alone to think about it. You want to get drunk and dance on the table at your holiday party? Cool. But remember how it's going to feel tomorrow when you walk into the office. And right there on the side of the road, I was saying to myself, remember what you're going to feel like tomorrow if you quit too soon. When I climbed Mount Washington with my friends, there were times during the hike we all wanted to turn around and call it a day. We were tired, cold, and hungry. As we continued to climb, my friend Nick would say, it's not an honest hike yet. We have to keep going. What he meant was we still had more work to do. We had to be honest with ourselves about our effort. Yes, we were on the mountain, but we had not exhausted every ounce in our souls. Only by going past the point when we truly thought we had to stop would it be an honest hike, complete or incomplete. It has to be honest. I still had more effort to give at the monastery. It wasn't an honest trip yet. Immediately, I felt rejuvenated, knowing I was staying longer to push myself. Making that commitment to myself, where there was no turning back, felt empowering and gave me a second win. I was all in. On my walk back to my room, I came up with this. You can read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and listen to 115 Vince Lombardi quotes. You can study Awaken the Giant Within and go to 10 Tony Robbins lectures. However, the only way to truly get better is to close the book, turn off the internet, and go out into the world and stick it out. When you want to quit, get uncomfortable and remember tomorrow. We spend so much of our lives trying to avoid pain. We're all wired to seek comfort, and I love being comfortable. However, the real growth comes when you step outside of that comfort zone and tap into your reserve tank. That's where you see what you're made of, and that's often the place you feel most alive. And that's the other beauty of remember tomorrow. 
when you truly lay it all out there today, tomorrow is even better. Now, the truth is, learning by doing can be a lot harder than learning online or from a book. When you immerse yourself in something like I did with Seal and now the monks, there can be times when you want to just pack up and go home. It takes mental toughness and fortitude to complete a new experience. But the experience also needs to be honest, and that's on you. I'm the only person who can say if my stay at the monastery is honest or not. And I know in my heart that it's not. Not yet, but it will be. I've heard that grit is the best indicator of future success. Well, this is becoming the ultimate test of my resilience. It's not like other challenges I've done in my life. Strangely, I like pain, cramps, and a little blood trickling down my shin. It reminds me I'm alive. And sure, a photo of me looking busted up, sweating, and on the verge of a collapse competing in an endurance event looks pretty gritty hanging on my wall. But I truly like that feeling. I'll tell you what I don't like. Being away from my family, slowing down, left alone to think and reflect all day, doing chores, and not having the comforts of my regular life. So for me to stay here, take some grit. The easy thing would be to go home, to tell myself I stuck it out for a couple of days and packed my bags. But that's what my internal enemy has been singing the last 10 days, and he's got a whole choir backing him up. I signed up for 15 days, and that's what I need to do. If I didn't, I wouldn't be exercising my mental toughness muscle. That'd be like saying it's okay to not finish what I started. One time, I asked Seal if he ever quit something because he was tired. I don't quit when I'm tired, he said. I quit when I'm done. Regret can hurt just as much as physical pain and sometimes last longer. If I had cut my monastery stay short, I know I'd have regretted it long after I left. It's easy to get caught up in the real-time moment and emotions, but that's short-term thinking. When you fast-forward and project the future feelings of your decision, you often get clarity and can fight the quit demon. A few years ago, I was doing a 30-mile stand-up paddleboard race around Manhattan. The competition started at Chelsea Piers, headed up past Columbia University, and then crossed over to the East River before ending down by Brooklyn. The currents were incredibly unpredictable and brutally challenging. At times, you could paddle as hard as humanly possible and not move 12 yards. And when you stop to rest, you get pushed 40 feet in the opposite direction. When I showed up, I knew I was in trouble. The competitors looked like Jess Spicoli on steroids, Hawaiian surfer dudes with super aquatic endurance. They had hydration systems attached to their deck pads. Goos and power bars were duct taped to their boards and intricate navigation devices were installed on their aerodynamic stand-ups. I had nothing except for the board I purchased online one week before the race. It was around the same time I got the idea to enter. When I got to the starting area, I immediately noticed my paddleboard was way shorter than all the other boards, way heavier, and definitely not aerodynamic. Shit. 
To make my board lighter, I decided to put all of my supplies, water, food, sunscreen, and life jacket in a canoe my friends Mike and Rob Young rented. I figured I'd be better off having them haul it than carrying it myself in a knapsack for 10 hours. Just stay close to me, I told them. You'll be my crew team. As soon as the race started, 100 paddlers took off and spread across the Hudson in a frenzy. I was headed 30 miles directly into the wind. The currents were super strong. It was hot, like 101 degrees hot. And my board was built for someone shorter than I am and for cruising around the recreational lake. I was fucked. About a quarter mile into the rough sea, I turned around and the Young Brothers, my crew team, were nowhere to be seen. I knew at that moment I had to get through the whole race on my own. I wanted to quit. I didn't, though, because of my motto, remember tomorrow. If I quit, I knew I was going to hate the feeling the next day and probably a month from then. I had to gut out 30 miles with no water, food, or sunscreen. I broke the race into many smaller pieces and goals and began to chip away. Just keep chipping away, I repeated to myself. Nine hours later, I finished. Are there times when quitting is the right thing to do? Of course. But quitting just because it's easier is never the right decision. It only takes a minute to quit, but the moment will replay in your mind tomorrow and the tomorrow after that and the one after that. Mental toughness is an art form, but like any art form, it takes practice. It's a muscle that has to be exercised consistently. Meditating, praying, quieting the mind, manual labor, and being present are difficult for me. But I know challenging myself is going to pay big dividends. If I quit today, I'll feel lousy about myself tomorrow. The rest of the day felt different, better. I spent a lot of time with Brother Mark. The plan has been for me to rotate my morning chores every day with a different brother. That way, I can get to know each of the monks more intimately and learn what each one does to keep the monastery afloat. I've already worked with Thomas in the dog training center and tending to the dogs at night, with Stavros cleaning the church, with Brother Mark cleaning the dishes and Brother Gregory preparing the guest house, and I'll be with Brother Ambrose smoking cheese in the next day or so. I'll also be spending time with other monks at the grooming and breeding center. Brother Mark is really friendly. It's like hanging out with an old friend. He leads the prayer services and is in charge of the kitchen. While Josh the cook comes in to prepare several meals, Brother Mark often cooks and cleans on behalf of all as well. Brother Mark looks like he's a 40-year-old tennis pro at a fancy country club with piercing blue eyes, a fit build, and an amazingly friendly disposition. As it turns out, Brother Mark is a health nut, so we hit it off right away. He was fascinated by the fact that I've only eaten fruit until noon every day for the last 27 years. Isn't that too much sugar, he asked. I explained that the sugar in fruit is one of the most misunderstood concepts as it relates to diet. We spent hours talking about the principles of Harvey Diamond's book, Fit for Life. 
Fruit is the perfect food if eaten correctly. That means on an empty stomach and eating it with no other food. The less energy you use on digestion, the more energy you have for everything else, I explained. I'll have to try it, he said. After my time with Brother Mark, Brother Stavros told me to follow him upstairs to the library. The monks have accumulated thousands of books over the last 50 years and have integrated a sophisticated system of logging and managing all the books. In fact, they use the same system that the Library of Congress does to manage their inventory. As we walked through the rows of books, it was fascinating to see the categories in the collection they had amassed. Religious books, business books, diet books, travel books, you name it, they had it. It was a great day. Ironic that my breakthrough came via something I've known all along. My effort has to be honest. Now it feels like I've gotten a second win, but I'm not going to sprint to the finish. That's not very monkish. I'm going to stay focused on being present. Think about my breathing and stride to wherever the finish line might be. And you want to know how intuitive the monks are? I was sitting at breakfast this morning and we were talking about the decision process to become a monk. One brother turned to me and said, it's really very simple. Decide that you want it more than you're afraid of it. Day 11, lunch with the nuns. God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. Mother Teresa. I watched the sunrise again, but this time, it was as if someone had turned on a snow machine. It was coming down from all directions. I quickly retreated to my cell because I wanted to get ready for my big day. I was invited to have lunch with the nuns, something I never thought I'd ever say. I shook and kicked off the snow as I entered my room. I wanted to jot some stuff down, so I started looking through my backpack for a pen. I lost mine overnight somehow. As I rummaged through my bag, I found a piece of paper. I forgot I brought it. Written on it was a morning passage from the Dalai Lama I copied down before I left. My plan was to recite it the first thing every morning. Every day, think as you wake up. Today, I am fortunate to have woken up. I am alive. I have a precious human life. I am not going to waste it. I'm going to use all my energies to develop myself, to expand my heart out to others, to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. I'm going to have kind thoughts towards others. I am not going to get angry or think badly about others. I'm going to benefit others as much as I can. At breakfast, Stavros offered to drive me to the nun's house because of the storm. Due to his driving, I wanted to say, it's okay, I'm going to walk. But when I looked out of my window, I decided to roll the dice and take the ride. It was snowing really hard. He told me he'd meet me in my room about 10 minutes before I was supposed to arrive for my lunch. When he walked in, he was wearing a heavy winter coat that looked like he got it from Sir Edmund Hillary. It must have weighed 200 pounds. I was wearing a light ski jacket. When he saw me, he asked if my coat was a moon jacket. He was mesmerized by the technology of it. 
He couldn't believe that man was able to make a jacket so lightweight and keep you so warm. Is that special ordered from NASA? No, Stavros. I actually just got it from REI. What's REI? Oh, I'm sorry. That's a store that sells outdoor clothing and gear. And that little parka you're wearing can keep you warm? Yes, it's a down coat. It's amazing, just amazing, all these advances. I thought to myself, I can take a picture on my phone and text it to someone in China, and they'll get the exact image in 0.01 seconds? And he's marveling about a lightweight jacket that keeps me warm? These guys are really behind the curve. The snowstorm smacked me in the face as we walked up to the parking lot. He unlocked the car door, and I quickly jumped into an old Subaru. This wasn't the car we drove to the hike, but it had the same vibe. It's just a car. Very basic, like a floor and a motor. That's it. I don't think they opted for any of the upgrades at the dealership. None. It's kind of like riding in a bumper car. Brother Stavros told me to lock the door. Manually. The front seat was adjusted for a monk who was five feet four, so the bucket was as close to the windshield as the manufacturer allowed. Either that, or one of the monks illegally slid it more toward the dashboard to give a Dwight Howard-sized guest legroom in the back, like six feet 11 inches legroom. I doubt the Charlotte Hornet Center was a guest here, so I assume it's just positioned that way for now. Whatever the case, my forehead was touching the windshield. But the monks have been preaching gratitude, and I was grateful for the ride. My knees were in my chest, forcing my balls into my stomach. It wasn't pleasant. I reached back with my right hand and tried to recline back to give myself some relief. And as luck would have it, Stavros chimed in, Oh, the recliner lever has been jammed for several years. In that moment, it hit me. There's a children's book here somewhere. The Coat in the Car. Stavros was fascinated by my coat and the modern-day technology of it, and I was fascinated by the simplicity of his car. It made me wonder, are these guys missing out being so far behind the times, or are they actually keeping ahead, from an intellectual standpoint, by not keeping up? I bet if I lived up here, I'd learn something new from Stavros every day. I stayed jammed against the windshield for the entire ride to the nun's house. I wanted to be on my best behavior because having lunch with nuns is scary. Nuns aren't scary, but the possibilities of offending a nun seem limitless. Sarah once tried to get me to go to etiquette school because of my table manners. I don't think I'm rude or uncouth, but I just see eating as the same thing as the gas station. Fill it up, unleaded. As we approached the nun's house, I wished I'd taken the etiquette course. I wasn't worried I was going to mess up the lunch. We'll call it aware of the potential dangers and comfortably cautious. My views on mealtime have already shifted in my short stay here. I've noticed how special it is at the monastery. We eat at the exact time every single day. That involves sacrifice because the meal and the time together takes precedence over everything else we're doing. There are no excuses to not show up. It never gets pushed back. Mealtime is set in stone, and attendance 
is mandatory. And all of that is important. It's been said that family dinner is one of the best things you can do for a lasting marriage. I made a mental note to incorporate more family meals when I get back. And some prayer. When the monks say grace, it's a form of gratitude. That small thanks every day is powerful. I want to implement it at home. When I was in my 20s, I wrote 10 handwritten letters every day to thank people. And then I mailed them. So many wonderful things have grown from those letters. But most importantly, I could feel gratitude. It flowed daily. And inversely, the time we have at the monastery before the meal is more productive because of it. We know it has to get done by a certain time. So I'm learning to appreciate mealtime much more and trying to get as much out of it as I can. But as important as mealtime is for the monks, you'd think it gets a little boring after 50 years with the same people. But not for them, though. It's a moment of the day to come together, be present, and enjoy. I got dropped off in front of the nun's house. It felt like I was in middle school and my dad just drove me to the movie theater. I waved goodbye as Brother Stavros peeled out of the driveway and fishtailed onto the snow-covered road. I turned around and looked at the house. It was built in 1971 by the nuns. I was told they took a woodshop class in town to learn how to use a bandsaw and frame a house, etc. I've read that the number one thing to accomplishing a goal is choosing a goal that you deeply desire. I had amazing respect for the nuns for taking the initiative and accomplishing their goal. The house oozed of passion. Sister Cecilia greeted me at the door with her dog. I put my hand down low with my knuckles facing the dog's mouth just as I was taught. The dog sniffed my hand and then my ass. Apparently, he or she approved because the dog lay down for a belly scratch. I obliged. Sister Cecilia gave me a tour of the house and bakery. It felt like a very nice bed and breakfast, warm and inviting. There was carpet and it was super clean. Attached to the house was a fully equipped and operating bakery that looked like it belonged in any town USA. When I asked her where she was from, she said, I'm a Hoosier. Sister Cecilia is one cool nun. Two young women from the Divinity School at Yale joined us for lunch. They're staying with the sisters for a few days, and I saw them at the service this morning. One said she was from Oregon. Oh, you're a duck. Sister Cecilia paused and looked over at me like I'd sinned. I guess she only knows the Big Ten. Before we got started, the two young women stood across from me in the dining room as we waited for lunch. I guess they're nuns in training or prospective nuns. I wasn't sure what to call them. But one of them seemed really angry. The other was sweet and angelic. I think the nice one was named Debbie. Since we were alone, I tried to make small talk. I figured they had to be friendlier than Lenny. But I wanted to be careful. I haven't seen my wife in over a week and have been sequestered with a bunch of 40 to 70-year-old men around the clock. I felt like these two gals haven't been around any men either. So I wanted to be clear about my intention, or maybe I should say lack of intention. I didn't want there to be any confusion I was attempting to flirt. Hey, I'm Jesse. I'm married. 
I said, grabbing a glass of water off the table. And of four kids. How are we all doing today? Good? Hi, Mary, Jesse, the friendly nun in training said. What are you doing here anyway? The angry nun in training chimed in. I'm what you call a guest, just visiting. And then Debbie started asking questions in a rapid-fire machine gun way. It was like she took the vow of silence, and I was the first human she could talk to. I couldn't keep up. Have you found God? And I'm also curious, what authors inspire you? You can learn a lot about people that way. Have you surrendered your life to the Lord at a micro level? How long have you been here, and what have you learned? I've learned a lot, I said, trying to catch up. I learn every day. Like what? I felt like I was on stage at the Miss America pageant. Like this was my final question to see if I had a chance at winning the crown. The way these young women were looking at me made me feel like I was being judged on my answer. I needed this to be good. The irony in the word, present. They both looked confused. I needed to avoid a Miss South Carolina response. If you're present in doing a task, it's like receiving a present. There's joy in everything we do, and being present is an integral part of it. Sometimes it can be difficult. Our minds like to wander. But if I just say out loud what I'm doing, I can always bring myself back to center, to be present. Like the other day, I was washing dishes and my mind was all over the place. I just said, I'm washing dishes. And instantly, I was right back to where I needed to be, washing dishes. I'm not sure I'm following. Can you explain? We all have had moments where we are here, but not present. We missed a basket in our son's basketball game because we were checking Facebook. We live in a world where we can watch real-time events unfold all over the world live, yet we can't focus on where we are right now. I get that. What else have you learned? The nice one asked. That there's no lid to happiness. I can always improve. Can you feel religion and God all day? Well, actually, I said, there are really only two things going on up here, prayer and labor. Religion and spirituality are a big part of it, but prayer is only in the morning and night. In between the two services is labor. So you only get the religious element twice a day, but that's only technically speaking because it does surround us. When the monks work, do they feel like God is steering them? I don't know, I said. Ask them. But I don't think so. I think they're just working. But they're doing God's work. No, I said. They're selling puppies to keep the lights on. I'm kidding. Well, sort of. I think they're in constant contact with God and searching for God's will. But the one thing I've noticed is that they have extreme passion for every task they do everything. I assume that's because it's their place. They're cutting their own grass. The other thing is nobody says no to the commitment to the community. Everyone is at dinner. Everyone is at the meeting. Everyone is at prayer. Is this experience everything you thought it would be? Interestingly enough, no, I said. Most of the spiritual traditions I assumed about the monastery aren't true. Not even close. My expectations were way off the mark. It hasn't been a series of mountaintop experiences where I felt free to explore my spirituality 
unobstructed by the hitches of daily life. It's a grind up here, too. Everyone is expected to contribute in a series of tedious duties. But there's regularity to it, and the monks hold that regularity sacred. There's really not much room for deviation. But it's been a great catalyst for personal transformation for me. I've learned that spiritual time doesn't have to be carved out. I can explore the spiritual life when I'm doing mundane, trivial work. The spiritual GoPro is always on the record setting. My greatest realization up here came when I was scrubbing the church floor. What was it? Every task is important. Every moment has purpose. Well then, what are you looking for? I'm not really looking as much as I'm experiencing. And we'll see what I get. I'm picking up valuable tips along the way. For example, the brothers know they have to live with each other, so they want to live in peace. How great is that? They've allotted time every week to communicate with each other and sort out any issues. It sounds simple, but an effort needs to be made. I'm going to institute that with my wife when I get home. It'll just mean more peace. Isn't that great? I don't want peace, the angry one finally chimes in. Well, the opposite of peace is turmoil, I said. You want turmoil? No. I want truth, she said, pounding her fist on the table. Debbie giggled a little. She seemed really sweet. How about you, I asked. What are you looking for? I've been trying to find a purpose, Debbie said. I'm looking for a sign, but I don't know because I keep waiting. I'm super focused on looking for it, but I just haven't found it yet. Maybe by looking for one thing, you miss out on everything else, I said. I've realized that just experiencing instead of having expectations and searching can sometimes be better. Just then, the three real nuns walked into the room. We all sat for lunch. I looked around the room and the realization I was eating lunch with three nuns, two nuns in training, and three German shepherds finally hit me. The only interaction I've ever had with a nun is watching Sally What's-Her-Name in The Flying Nun, a television show I watched as a kid staying home from school when I was sick. Or fake sick. Same thing. On the menu today was fish, which I don't eat, salad, polenta, and cauliflower. The polenta and vegetables were good. One of the sisters had heard I'd partnered with Warren Buffett in the jet business. So she told me she wasn't a fan of his. But I'm pretty sure she was talking about Jimmy Buffett. It's just a hunch. And then Sister Rebecca told me about a friend of hers who said she only had three years of work left. And then she was going to retire and do what she really wants to do for the rest of her life. Sister Rebecca felt bad for her because she already was doing exactly what she wanted every day of her life. Imagine all the time my friend lost not doing what she wanted to do. I agreed. So I told her a story about a friend of mine. He's turning 53 and is going through something of a change in his life. Getting older can be a rude awakening. All of a sudden, the years have gone by and you haven't done nearly what you hope to do. And the older you get, the faster the clock ticks. My friend was in one of those melancholy, what have I done with my life moods. So I said to him, what if I gave you $10 million? What would you do? That's easy. 
I moved to California first thing, he said. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to give you $10 million. But if you want to move to California, do it now. Really? Yes. Save up six months of cushion, move, and figure it out. Otherwise, you'll live with massive regret. Did he move to California? Debbie asked. Nah, he's still talking about it. People are always waiting for something to happen before they change their lives. But they have it backward. When you change your life, big things are more likely to happen. One thing is for sure. If you keep waiting for someone to give you $10 million, nothing is going to change. The nuns and monks have it right. They made the big change in their lives years ago. And you know what would happen if someone gave them $10 million? Nothing. They wouldn't do a damn thing differently. And they'd stay perfectly happy. The takeaway is that money isn't the life changer. Quicksilver cash might upgrade the things in your life, but it does little to alter the course of it. Change costs no money at all. The younger you make decisions to live life on your terms and do what you love to do, the more fulfilling a life you'll live. And it's never too late. After the main course, lunch got weird. Debbie, the nice nun in training, announced she was confused. She grew up in the Georgia Bible Belt and had been told to dress modestly and to wait until she was married to have sex. But she's been hooking up with guys and wasn't sure how to balance it all. And then she asked, how do you women deal without sex? That's when I offered to leave and Sister Cecilia agreed it was probably a good time to go. Before I left, I surprised them with a gift of Atlanta Hawks t-shirts. Sister Patricia held hers up and asked for a medium. And then she asked who Millsap was. She thought it was an unusual name. I explained it was his last name and his first name is Paul. We wear our last names on our jerseys. Isn't that self-centered? If it's a team, why not only wear the team name and de-emphasize the individual? That made sense to me. Anyway, Paul, she said, he sounds religious. I'll have to check on that one. When I got back to the monastery, a great surprise was waiting for me. Under my door was a New York Post. Josh the cook snuck it in for me. He's hopefully going to do it every day. We sort of made a side deal. The deal was he'd try to get me a paper and I wouldn't die of boredom. Look, I'm over the hump of wanting to quit, but it's still not easy to be completely isolated. And I was looking forward to reading it. But Trump was pissed at someone. A white supremacist killed an African-American on Ninth Avenue. Terrorists killed four people in Europe. I threw it out before I even got to page six's gossip. The day-to-day -day madness is not something I'm missing. In fact, I'm beginning to enjoy being away from it. Day 12. Fitting in. To find happiness, you must be exposed to things. Happiness is out there. It's your job to look. The Monks of Newski. 
When I walked outside to the church this morning, Lenny the intern sprinted past me. He stopped underneath the tower and begged Luke to let him ring the bells. Luke obliged. Lenny put on the huge protective headphones and started to wail on the bells. I slipped into the empty church and sat at my usual spot. The bells sounded louder than normal. I give Lenny credit. He played them like he was an iron maiden. Way to go, Lenny, I said when he entered. And I got my first smile from him. He looked truly happy. After service, the two of us headed to breakfast. We didn't talk, but just walking together is a dramatic improvement in our relationship. When we entered into the dining room, Reza and Verna, the German shepherds, stood at attention. They do this every time they see Lenny. I didn't get it. Not before today. Lenny's maybe the most antisocial person I know. But the dogs love him. I'm one of the most social people I know. And the dogs pay me no mind. I was starting to think Lenny was some kind of secret dog whisperer. We were allowed to talk at breakfast today, so I asked the monks if they could have dinner with three people who were alive, who would they choose? They immediately threw it back to me, but I was prepared. I told them how I was recently at a dinner party with 10 couples and was asked that very question. Most of the others at the party had already said the obvious choices, Gates, Oprah, Buffett, Obama, Musk, etc., But when it was my turn, my three choices were rappers. A few heads were scratched because they couldn't understand. But the reason I chose them was because these guys had an impact on me when I was 14 years old. And they changed the trajectory of my life. So I wanted to meet them and thank them. I wanted to ask how they mastered their craft and what their creative process was like. My angle was coming more from personal impact. That night, driving home with Sarah, I thought about it. Why not actually do it? So the next day, I invited 10 of the most influential artists in my life to my house for dinner. And six weeks later, they were all seated around my dinner table. My friends all asked me how I got them to come, and I said simply, I asked. Nothing happens without asking for it. Dinner was amazing. The similarities in their journey as musicians to mine as an entrepreneur were evident. For starters, they were so young when they started, they had no time to be scared. As someone starting out in business, getting over the fear of being embarrassed is one of the most liberating gifts you can give yourself. I don't like to be embarrassed. I don't think any of us do, but I'm not afraid of it. The dinner lasted well into the wee hours, and it was an incredible experience for me. I realized most people don't get to do something like that, so I felt incredibly fortunate. The monks loved the story and started throwing out the names of their wishlist guests. All of the people were religious leaders and philosophers. They were the men and women who helped shape their own personal development during their journey. Then I asked if they had any interest in meeting anyone famous, and Brother Christopher said, it doesn't matter what others are doing. It matters what you are doing. Amen. 10 a.m. So today's chore was grooming with Brother Luke and Lenny. 
After we ate, I did the dishes and headed out. The grooming center is connected to the whelping house where all the puppies are. I pushed open the door as I walked in and hit Lenny in the back. He was standing facing the wall, just standing there like he was frozen. It was like someone had put him in the corner. He didn't look well, so I immediately asked if he was all right. No, all the barking is messing with my mind. Make it stop. I'm not okay. I didn't know what to do. He looked like he was ready to snap. So I told Brother Luke he had better come quick and help Lenny. Luke tugged Lenny by the arm and pulled him into the grooming room. It was like a scene out of a soap opera. He grabbed them and shook the crazy out of them, at least for the time being. Grooming, I learned, is an all-day event. With the three of us in there and two German shepherds, Shems and Khan, it was like the number six train at rush hour. There was nowhere to move. There's a big wooden table the dogs climb up on with a brush, nail clipper, sprayer, and everything else we needed within hand's reach. We started with Khan. He jumped on the table. Plots, Brother Luke said to Khan. Khan immediately sat down. Apparently, the Nooski German shepherds are authentic. They speak perfect German. The monks keep a satellite radio in the grooming room, and Brother Luke flipped it on. Who knew? The dial was set to NPR. I'm not sure who was live, but it sounded like Terry Gross. And then Luke explained to us that the dogs love this station, and they also are into Gregorian chant music. Watching him with the dogs is like watching myself with my children. He's deeply connected and engaged. He loves them and enjoys caring for them so much. And the way the dogs respond to him is amazing. They love him just as much. Brother Luke doesn't raise dogs. He raises spiritual guides. But it was time to work, so he did all of the preliminary stuff like clipping and brushing while Lenny and I watched. And then he grabbed the electric filer and started trimming the dog's nails. Lenny and I were basically hugging each other at this point to give Brother Luke enough room to work. And since I was two inches from Lenny's face, I figured it was time to build on our relationship. I asked Lenny if he's a big fan of dogs. Obviously, I grew up with farm animals. But I thought he came from Vegas. And he was just flipping out a minute ago. When Luke finished Khan's haircut, it was Shem's turn. Our job was to keep Khan company while Shem got groomed. I wrapped my arms around the shepherd, but Lenny had like one finger on the dog and had moved as far away as he could. That's when Brother Luke started gushing about Lenny of how much the dogs love him. When we were done, Lenny couldn't wait to get out of there. Again, we went through the whelping room and there was a litter of pups. Brother Luke scooped one of them up and tried to hand it to me. I didn't want to take the puppy. What if I dropped him? What if he peed on me? What if he hated the way I smelled? But before I could say something, he was plopped into my hands. I held the little ball of fur close to my chest. The pup nuzzled in for the warmth. Its eyes were still closed. Their eyes don't open until they're six days old, so the puppy doesn't know who or what is holding it. Yet it's completely trusting. At first I felt a little uneasy holding the little fella. 
I was worried I was doing it wrong. But he melted into my chest and I began to pet him. Tonight at supper, we had blueberries for dessert. And when we finished, we all stood up to pray. Everyone had their heads down and eyes closed. Brother Christopher started to lead us. And as he spoke, I couldn't help it. I opened an eye to see if anyone else was looking. That's when I saw Lenny slipping Verna a blueberry underneath the table. And then he fed one to Shems. He's bribing them. When I looked over again, Lenny's eyes were closed. It was like he's been deep in prayer the whole time. Dog whisperer my ass. Later, we all gathered in the reading room where they had an extra TV set up. It was movie night. When I first heard about it, I got really excited. I was thinking, Animal House and popcorn. What a great night. The monks have been raving about it all day, too. Jesse, are you excited for tonight? And only a few hours until the show starts. And big night. It's movie night. I headed over there about five minutes early, thinking I should try to get a good seat. But most of the monks were already there. I could tell they were genuinely excited to step away from work and prayer and disappear into a good film. I sandwiched myself between Stavros and Thomas on a tiny couch. After a few more minutes, everyone had arrived and it was time to press play. I think you're going to like this, Stavros said. It is part nine, but you shouldn't have any problems following along. Oh, cool, I said. Now, I was thinking it must mean it like the ninth episode of a series, which is fine by me. I'm just excited to escape and get some old-fashioned entertainment. But then Stavros explained we were watching a 14-part series about Christianity. Wait, what? That's got to be like a lawyer watching Law & Order or a doctor watching Grey's Anatomy. Wouldn't they be tired of watching what they do all day? We started in November, Stavros added. We'll be done with the programming by the summer. Okay, this gives new meaning to binge-watching. It's going to take them over six months to finish this series, and once the opening credits rolled, I knew why. It was so boring. I couldn't follow the plot if there was a plot. Regardless, nothing was making sense. I tried. I really tried. I focused on the screen, but it was like watching a foreign film without subtitles. And yet, this is the only thing available to watch. Meanwhile, when I'm at home, I get frustrated sometimes with too much content. I spend an hour clicking around Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon, but never make a decision. It's like I go window shopping instead of actually consuming entertainment or something educational. I just keep clicking. But here at the monastery, it's like 1977. Growing up, we had basically three channels to choose from, and if we wanted to change the channel, we actually had to get up off the couch, walk to the television, and manually turn the knob. And if Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan was delivering a speech, forget about it. That was an eight-year-old's worst nightmare. Three stations and only one choice? That was frustrating. As I bounced between 2017 and 1977 in my head, I thought about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Strange, right? 
But in the fairy tale, Goldilocks tries three chairs, three bowls of porridge, and three beds. And each time she finds her third choice to be just right. She keeps trying until she finds something that works for her just right. Maybe I should be more like Goldilocks. Keep trying things until it's just right. After about 10 minutes of trying to follow the monk's entertainment choice, I looked around the room, and all of the monks were enthralled. They looked like my kids watching Finding Nemo. They were hooked. Even Lenny seemed entertained. He was sitting on the edge of his seat like he was watching the final episode of Homeland. I looked over at Raisa and Shems lying on the floor. The two dogs looked back at me like they were asking for help. They were just as bored as I was. I smiled. And then they both slowly got up and walked over to me. They laid next to my feet. Raisa turned her neck and looked up. I rubbed her belly. And then Shems, not wanting to miss out on any of the affection, positioned himself to get the dual belly rub going. Would Sarah kill me if I brought a dog home? Day 12 is a wrap, but I feel different, like I have a new perspective. So here I was, fully aware of the contrast that took place on this day. It started with me talking about having 10 influential rappers at my house for dinner, and then witnessing two of the most mundane activities that occur at the monastery, the grooming of the dogs and the wildly boring viewing of the movie. Could I really be content with the mundane? Could I find enlightenment and value in similar activities once I got back to Atlanta? Day 13, 35,000 decisions. When you talk, you are only repeating what you already know. But if you listen, you may learn something new. Dalai Lama. Monotasking has become second nature to me. I enjoy washing dishes and cleaning floors. It's amazing how much better my production is when I focus solely on one task. There's no race anymore. I finish when I finish. I finish when the job is done. That's one thing I'm picking up here at the monastery. The monks have eliminated most of the self-imposed deadlines that we all put on ourselves daily. Rather, they've shifted their focus to emphasize the quality of their work. They finish when their job is thoroughly done, and then, and only then, are they finished. That attitude favors a no-cutting-corner style, and the end result is always much better. Everything around here is improving for me as well. I know when to stand, kneel, and sit during service. I'm starting to learn the prayers and find myself singing along. It feels good to sing in church. When I get home, I want to have the family sing together on Sundays. The monastery is beginning to feel like my second home. Yesterday. A visitor asked me when the service started, and after I told them, they said, Thank you, brother. That's right. Brother Jesse, at your service. I'm in the groove. I'm feeling monktastic. I'm also thinking super clearly, and a new wave of creativity has hit me. I think I know why. The average American makes something like 35,000 decisions a day. 
I read somewhere that we make so many decisions, it can cause a condition called decision fatigue. Ever wonder why late in the game, your quarterback decides to throw a pass into triple coverage? Or just before bedtime, you decide to let your kid have a candy bar? Or after a hard day's work, you think it's a good time to tell your significant other they might have put on a couple of pounds? Decision fatigue. It hits us all. But here at the monastery, virtually all my decisions have been removed. I eat when the monks tell me to eat. I eat whatever they serve. I don't have to choose from a lot of clothing. I've only worn two outfits. We don't realize that our daily decisions take up so much space in our heads. There's no room left for creativity and more productive thought. With most decisions off my plate now, my brain is flooded with clear thoughts. I went to my room today and organized my entire life into a few short lists. I broke my life into four buckets, family, work, personal, and wellness. And then I filled each category with what I want to accomplish. I saved them on my phone. I also feel like I'm reconnected to my gut and the forces re-entering my body. My instincts are starting to come alive. I'm glad I stayed. I spoke with Saturday on the monk's landline. It was great to hear her voice and get an update on the kids. You know, just the usual four young children carnage and chaos. I feel bad she has to pick up so much slack while I'm gone. I'm going to have to figure out a way to make it up to her. Right after we spoke, I meditated again. Drum roll, please. I made it 20 minutes without looking at the clock. My mind only wandered a few times, and I was able to immediately bring myself back. I went up to Brother Christopher after service today. He spent much of his time talking about anxiety and worrying. While listening to him throughout my journey, I've realized how tense my body was. And this wasn't just in the moment. It was all the time. My shoulders have always been really tight, and I've tried everything from chiropractors to professional masseuses walking on my back. Nothing has ever worked. Today, for the first time in years, that pain and tightness went away. Thank you, I said to Brother Christopher. Your words really resonated with me. I don't have so much to worry about in my life, but it seems like I still worry. Well, most of us feel overwhelmed. It's usually with things of no real significance, he said. What do you mean? We think about things that may happen, everything that can go wrong, and we obsess. Most of the concerns are self-imposed. I started to go through the checklist of worries on my mind. What if my kids don't do well at school? What if I get sick before the marathon I've been training for? What if my hair doesn't grow back? So is it possible to not be anxious, I asked? Well, we all know super-inspiring people who live in the midst of tragedy but still live with peace. Pope Francis, who lived in the slums of Argentina, and concentration camp survivors from the Holocaust are great examples. They know suffering deeply, but were not robbed of peace. Wow. Is there a formula or a blueprint that allows us to be peaceful without turning off our heads? Yes, he said. 
meditating on scripture, grounding us against whatever threatens us in life. God's words can speak to us and touch us personally if we read a passage multiple times. I'm not at all religious, but his message still made sense. We kept talking and I learned that 90% of the things we worry about never come to fruition. That isn't a very good return on your investment. Obviously, the answer isn't not to worry at all, but we need to keep in check the things out of our control. If we spend too much time worrying about things that might happen, we'll miss out on all the things we can improve in our lives. I also spent time with Brother Gregory in the monk's gift shop. It was just like two old friends chatting. And then Brother Thomas popped up out of nowhere. I've come to realize that monks might be world-class hide-and-seek players. They're always popping up out of nowhere. I thanked them and told them how it's been an amazing experience for me so far. You all have been so welcoming to me, and I really appreciate it. It's been amazing to watch the love that you guys have for each other, the sense of family, and the tremendous work ethic. Well, thank you. No, thank you. You followed your heart and created the life you wanted to live. And with no focus on money, ego, or competition, you've been able to find deep happiness, love, and gratitude. That is a powerful lesson to take home. We've gained more than we gave, Brother Gregory said. We'll miss your energy. It made me feel good. He gave me some meditation and prayer books and how to be your dog's best friend and the art of raising a puppy, two of the monk's best-selling dog training books. He put them in a bag and handed them to me with a warm handshake. A few hours later, Brother Christopher popped his head into my room to check on me. The prayer service wasn't for another two hours, so he asked what I was going to do until then. Think, I said. I'm comfortable being alone. I sat between Brother Christopher and Brother Stavros for our nightly meal. I'm leaving the monastery tomorrow because I committed to do a podcast in Manhattan. So it was like my last supper. They told me they were impressed I made it this long. I am too. 13 days, 120 miles up and down the driveway, 50 hours of religious services, meditating an hour a day the best I can. Brother Christopher told me that someone had come up to the monastery for a planned stay and only lasted six hours. The visitor told the monks that the silence got to him, and if he stayed there any longer, he might freak out. They weren't even sure if he unpacked. It makes me think back to my first day. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I thought there'd be 50 bald monks walking around in robes and sandals in complete silence. Right before I went to bed, I asked Brother Stavros what he missed most about life on the outside. He said, the screened-in porch in Georgetown where he grew up. 50 years and the only thing Stav misses is a porch? Wow. He said he can still smell the grass and flowers like it was yesterday. It makes me wonder what I'll miss in 25 years. The difference in how we perceive time is mad. 50 years in the monastery went by like a shot for him. For me, the two weeks feels like a year.
I recently told Sarah that I wanted to throw a big party in August for my 50th birthday. I explained that when I turned 25, I had a big bash in New York City as I thought 25 was monumental, and now I wanted to do the same. Think about all that happened to you in the past 25 years, all that you've accomplished in that time, Sarah said. Honestly, sweetie, I don't think I've accomplished anything. I want to do so much more in my life. My biggest enemy is the clock. Well, what have you enjoyed the most over those years? The challenges, adventures, and doing things with the people I love. Honey, then put as much of that on your plate as you can over the next 25 years. Time is going fast. Load your plate up with the things you love to do. Roger that. Anyway, I'm excited for tomorrow. I'm not packing for good because I want to come back to the monastery and see how I feel. New York City, here I come. Days 14 and 15. Reentry. Back to the madness. In the midst of movement and chaos, keep stillness inside of you. Deepak Chopra. In the morning, right on time, Alfredo came to pick me up. Alfredo is our regular driver when Sarah and I are in New York. He's been with us for so long. We would mourn if he ended up switching careers or moving away. We love him. He drove up the driveway going about two miles per hour. Alfredo never drives at two miles per hour. As he got closer, I could see his face through the windshield. He was looking around like he had just driven through some magical portal and entered into a mystical land. It was like he just found himself in a Disney movie, enchanted and lost in his own world. I waved, but couldn't get his attention. Once he parked, I rolled my bag over. Man, he said, opening his car door, is anyone alive up here? This is how it is all the time, I said. We're in the boonies. Nah, man, nah, he said. This isn't the boonies. This is the loonies. Did you bring any smoothies? He flashed the smile of a drug dealer and popped the trunk. I threw my bag in. When we got in, he pulled out a bag of four grown man smoothies. I finished the first one before we even buckled up. I've been trying to convince myself that the monastery food was great, but after a few sips, I remembered how much I love smoothies. Alfredo slammed the shift into drive and pulled out of the parking lot. I silently gazed out of my window as we drove away. It was pleasantly quiet with the only sound being the snow and branches that crunched underneath our tires. As I gazed out the window, I began to feel a little sad. I'd walked the monk's private road dozens of times, but now, as I was leaving, I realized just how beautiful it was. Eventually, Alfredo broke the silence. How long have the monks been here? He asked. When I told him, he was shocked. Impossible, he said. Come on, man, 50 years? As we got to the bottom of the hill, we rolled past the two mobile homes and the dogs went nuts as usual. Alfredo stomped on the gas and we peeled out of Monk Road. Immediately, I spotted two bike riders, and it was like seeing the ocean for the first time. I couldn't believe it. Humans, real, non-monk, 
humans. I kept my eye on them until they disappeared from view. The plan was to stop at my Connecticut house on the way back to New York City to pick up my friend Mike Young. Mike is a movie director, and he's like family to us. Last April, he asked if he could stay with us for a short weekend in our apartment in Manhattan while looking for a place to rent. He was shooting a film, and his production company was in the process of finding him a spot to bunk while filming. I'm not sure what happened to the rental because he stayed in our apartment for five months. My son Laser thinks Mike is his real uncle. Mike's also a stand-up comic and one of the funniest guys I know. He once told me this joke. Guy's on a job interview and the interviewer says to him, what's your worst attribute? And the guy says, I'm brutally honest. And the interviewer says, I don't think that's a bad attribute. And the guy says, I don't give a fuck what you think. I was really looking forward to seeing Mike. I needed a laugh. The farther we got away from the monastery, the more I realized I was back in the world I'd left. As I watched the trees, mile markers, and road signs flash by, a feeling of inner happiness came over me. I felt different, lighter. I could see my reflection in the window, and there was a smile on my face. I was proud of myself for sticking it out and being open to such a different experience. Eventually, we pulled into my driveway in Connecticut. Alfredo and I had said very few words to each other. And that's not usually the case, and he was looking at me oddly. You okay? he asked. I don't think I've ever been better. Mike piled into the car and we headed to the city. It was great to get caught up, but as soon as we hit the interstate, Mike pulled out his phone. He started scrolling text messages, emails, and social media. I was watching him try to do all three at once. Then he started making phone calls on speaker. He kept firing through his emails as he talked to a manager about upcoming gigs. He was doing nine things at once and none of them like a monk. You should try monotasking, I said. He wasn't listening, just texting and carrying on a conversation on speaker. You could get a headache watching him. Actually, I kind of did and then laughed as he continued texting. I really started to notice the traffic when we were about 20 miles outside of the city. We were bumper to bumper and everyone was late for something. I imagine everyone was thinking about their next stop, next meal, or next whatever. You could see it on the faces of the drivers. The traffic only got worse. New York is like an ant farm. We climb all over one another. It took us about an hour to get to my hotel in Midtown. After Alfredo dropped me off, he was taking Mike to a friend's apartment further downtown. I wondered if he'd stay there for five months. The New York City sidewalks felt like one of those conveyor belts for people in airports. I stood there watching people and pets glide by, some coming, some going, everyone on the move, everyone gliding. I was about to grab my bag when, bam, I got blindsided, pow, knocked right to the ground. And when I looked up, I saw a middle-aged guy in a suit looking down at his phone. We just went shoulder to shoulder, and he didn't even look up. It was like he was a bumper car at the carnival and just kept going, 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 and going. 
Wow, I said to myself. Was I ever that guy? For dinner, I got takeout from Rosa Mexicano. I ordered two meatless entrees, a main course vegetable plate, an order of the guacamole that they're famous for, and three corn on the cobs. I had the television on ESPN while I was stuffing my face. I was eating like a gorilla. I couldn't stop shoveling food into my face. My pace didn't slow down until I started on corn on the cob number three. Meanwhile, I found myself clicking from ESPN to Sports Channel to Yes and back to ESPN. But after 14 days without it, TV felt like an invasion to my senses. The announcers were talking about trades, games, stats, and highlights at a rapid pace. I snapped it off and enjoyed the rest of my vegetable plate in silence. I wondered how quickly I'd slip back to my bad habits. How long would it take for my old life to swallow me whole? It might have already. By nine o'clock, I was exhausted. I sat in the comfortable chair in my hotel room and began to meditate. As I started my rhythmic breathing, I could hear every sound, a distant car horn from the street, footsteps in the carpeted hallway, a faint electronic buzz coming from the clock on the table next to the bed. Soon, I heard nothing but the rush of air in and out of my lungs. Every day at the monastery, my meditation practice became stronger. By the end of 14 days, I was able to clear my mind for 10, 15 minutes, even more. I think about how an entire generation of kids has been prescribed drugs for ADHD when many might be better off if they learn to meditate. Now, I know some kids need the medication that doctors prescribe, but all medication has a potential downside. Meditation has no downside. Worst case is you'll miss 15 minutes of television. The next morning, I woke up early without an alarm. I slipped out of bed and went to the bathroom. In the mirror, I got a good look at myself for the first time in two weeks. I must have lost 15 pounds at the monastery. With my scraggly beard and emaciated body, I looked like Tom Hanks in Castaway. I washed my face and brushed my teeth. And when I made my way back to bed, I instinctively went to cover my ears. The bells. And then I looked at my phone. Yup, it was 7.15 a.m. Wow, I have an internal clock. My thoughts shifted to the monks filing into the church. I wondered if they were looking over at my empty pew. The hotel I was staying at wasn't far from Central Park, so I decided to walk the six-mile park loop. It felt right to walk, not run. The bellhop opened the door, and I re-entered the chaos. There were beeping taxis, dump trucks backing up, and a street noise soundtrack playing in the background. It was coming from everywhere, surround sound. Almost every single person was on their phone. I guess I've noticed that before, but never as clearly. Now I was on high alert for someone to bump into me. I navigated my way to the opening of the park without any more injuries. On my walk, I popped into the old building where Sarah and I used to live on Central Park West. As I did, I saw Carlton, one of the doormen. Hey, man, I said, how are you? Can I help you? Carlton asked. 
Nah, I said. I'm here just to say hi. Hi to who? To you, I said. Hi, Carlton. Um, hi, he said. It dawned on me that he had no idea who I was. He never seen me bald or with a beard. It's Jesse. Holy shit, he said. I didn't even recognize you. We chatted it up for a bit, and then he asked what I was doing. He wanted to know if I was okay. He kept asking, are you okay? Are you okay? And the truth was, I felt great, really great. After about five minutes, I took off and went to see my friend, Brian Freed. Brian's been one of my closest friends forever. Sarah calls him one of my super friends. I used to run with a group of friends in the park every Wednesday, and we called our group the Wonderful Wednesdays. But Sarah called us the Super Friends, and he's part of that crew. I hadn't seen Freed in a while, and I was really looking forward to catching up. I wanted to share my experience at the monastery. It was a nice five-minute walk to where he was waiting for me in the sheep meadow where we planned to meet. When I saw him, I strolled up with a big smile, but he gave me the Heisman. He was deep into a conversation on his phone. One second, he mouthed. Love you, brother, but I have to take this call. Brian was a finance guy, but wasn't happy. He quit and started his own specialty contracting business. He had no prior experience or expertise in his new trade, but he followed his instinct and had the confidence he'd figured it all out if he just started. I'm super proud of him for that. He called me up when he was first putting the business plan together. I want to call it Elite Closets. You're only doing closets? No, we're going to put in cabinets, shelving, and lots of other stuff. Name sounds like you only do closets. Yeah, I guess it does. I've been thinking of making a change. I suggested Woodmasters, so to not pigeonhole him into just the closet company. He agreed, and Woodmasters was born. And from the looks of it, they were super busy. Even from a few feet away, I could tell he was putting out a fire. Then he rested the phone between his neck and shoulder and whispered that he'd be off in a minute. I sat on the bench and watched. He paced back and forth. It sounded like he was arguing with someone. Finally, he motioned me to come with him. I got up and we started walking the lower loop. Eventually, he ended the call and stopped to give me a hug. Wow, he said, stepping back and looking at me. Are you okay? I'm good, man, I said. I'm good. You look kind of scrawny. His phone rang. He looked at the caller ID and picked it up. I'll call you back in 20, he said and clicked off. As soon as he hung up, the phone rang again. As I watched him, I was looking at so many of our lives. That's how we operate? all day long. As far as picking a place to re-enter the human race after a monastery stay, Manhattan might not have been the best choice. In no time, I felt the peace I accumulated leaking out of me like steam from a radiator. And I wasn't helping matters. My podcast started at 2.45 and I was pitching a business idea to Samsung on a conference call at 1.30. And in between, I wanted to go for steam. Too much to do, but the steam was non-negotiable.
Once Brian and I completed the lower loop, we said our goodbyes. Alfredo picked me up with Mike Young in the car around 1.15 and we headed to the bathhouse. I figured I'd take the Samsung call in the car to give me the most sauna time possible. But the call went late. And by the time I got off, it was after 2 o'clock. We're going to have to speed sauna, I said to Mike. The Russian and Turkish baths have been around since the 1890s. It's now owned by two Russian guys, Boris and Dave, who had a fierce argument years ago and have had nothing to do with each other ever since. Rather than sell the bathhouse after their fight, they decided to divide the club into two groups. If you buy a membership with Dave, you can't go on Boris Days. And if you buy one from Boris, you can't go on Dave's. If you're neutral, like me, you just buy day passes and you can go anytime. The place is dirty, but it's what I like to call clean dirty. Just clean enough to pass code. The bathhouse is really one of a kind, and over the years it has drawn its share of celebs. Frank Sinatra was a regular customer, as was John Belushi, who once said it was the only place he could find peace. It's down in the basement of an old tenement building. There's no air. And once you check in, they give you paper shorts to wear and topless women walk around, but it feels totally normal. Today, you're just as likely to be sharing a sauna with a Ford model as with an 80-year-old Russian Jewish guy or a Brooklyn boxer looking to lose weight. Like Belushi, I go to the bath just to get away from the rat race for a while. Plus. I like to play a game to test my mental toughness. I pretend the sauna is a competition to see who can last the longest. Now, I'm not talking about your average Equinox or LA Fitness sauna box. They call the hot sauna at the 10th Street Bass the Russian Radiant Heat Room. It feels illegally hot. New York state law stipulates that a sauna cannot be over 175 degrees but the one at the Russian and Turkish bass seems at least 20 degrees hotter. It's so hot that when you exit the sauna, you have to walk in slow motion to the door or your skin will feel like it's burning off. Mike and I walked into the radiant room in our paper shorts and the scorching heat immediately attacked our skin. Holy shit. It's hot as fucking here, Mike said. There were two other dudes in there a super fit actor guy who looked like he belonged in a soap opera role and a thick Russian with tattoos, a beard, and a felt hat. He was wearing a hat. Right away, I knew who my competition was for the who will leave the sauna first game. I was right. After about six minutes, the actor guy started mumbling and poured a bucket of ice water over himself. It didn't help. He was out the door moments later. I wasn't really worried about Mike Young either. As expected, a minute later, he said, Yo, Jay, this is brutal. I'm going to go jump in the cold plunge. Which left just me and the Russian. Mano a mano. This Russian dude was focused. He was staring at his feet in silence as the sweat dripped like a hose from his forehead. It was like the bathroom faucet was leaking from between his eyes. Drip, drip, drip onto the wood bench of the sauna. He was unwavering. 
just staring down at his sandals. I tried to meditate and get my mind off of the Russian and the heat. I wanted to win. But meditation in the radiant room was impossible. I'm not sure if a master monk could have handled the heat. It felt like my eyelids were melting. Meanwhile, the Russians started grunting, rhythmically, like doing some type of tribal sauna breathing technique to extend his time. It sounded like it was coming from a place of strength, not weakness. I needed to pull some type of maneuver. I was going to lose. I figured I couldn't stand more than two more minutes. I better try to get him out of his trance soon. So I went for it. Pretty hot, huh? I said, trying to get him out of his zone and bring the heat to the forefront of his attention. He stopped grunting and looked right at me. With his felt hat and beard, he looked like he should be riding a camel in the Sahara. Nah, my friend, it's not pretty hot, he said with a Russian accent. It's fucking hot in here. This guy was a sauna beast. How long do you stay in here, I asked. Until I can't fucking take it anymore. Got it. Well, can I ask what the hat is for then? The hat? Oh, it's so the fucking roots of my hair don't burn off. The roots of your hair? Yes. The heat will rise. Your head is up high. Your fucking roots are on your head. No shit, Vladimir Einstein. The Russian guy looked down after that and the sweat rained off his body like a tropical storm. Fuck that, I thought. I headed for the exit. I was out. I lose. I got a ways to go yet. An hour later, I was doing the Spartan Up podcast with Joe DeSena, the CEO and founder of The Death Race and The Spartan Race. The races include obstacles with the lengths varying from three miles to a marathon. They also hold a series of races on military bases. Joe's a trainer, fitness expert, and best-selling author. He's an animal. He's competed in ultra marathons and other long-distance events. One year, he competed in 50 ultra events and 14 Ironmans. Joe's extreme? I love extreme. We met at a small restaurant on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I got there about five minutes early and Joe was already setting up. When I entered, he walked up to greet me carrying his kettlebell. He placed the kettlebell on the floor before he almost hugged last night's Mexican food out of me. The guy carries around a 45-pound kettlebell everywhere he goes. He even brought it on a trip to Japan and had a kung fu master train his one-year-old son. He told me he does it as a reminder of how comfortable his life is. Once he was situated, it was go time. As we began the podcast, Joe asked me the questions I think everybody will be asking about my stay at the monastery. Why did you go? What did you miss the most? What was it like? What did you get out of it? It turned out Joe was a great interviewer. He asked a lot of straightforward questions, but he got into the nitty-gritty of mental toughness and drive. He could see how this adventure was outside of my skill set since it focused more on slowing down than toughing it out. After an hour, we wrapped the interview and I was on my way. 
In no time, I was back in Alfredo's car heading north. I punched New Skeet Monastery into the GPS. It told us the trip would take four hours and 22 minutes. I was heading back for my last day. Day 16. I'm going home, Mother Munker. Cowards never start. The weak never finish. Winners never quit. Unknown. I got back to the monastery late last night, late in monk time. By 10 p.m., all the monks were asleep. Monasteries are pretty quiet all the time, but at night, it's disturbingly quiet. It must be clear consciences. In some ways, it felt like I was sneaking in because it was so serene. I was tiptoeing around the place. When I was in high school, my friends would tell me stories about sneaking into their houses when they got home late at night. There was no sneaking in my house. It didn't matter what time I came home, as long as I came home, and my mom was always waiting up on the couch. All personnel had to be accounted for. I think it was about 10.30 p.m. when I finally got settled in my room. For my first two weeks at the monastery, I was already in bed by that time. But in just one and a half days away, my circadian rhythm was back to its old routine. It's not like I was bouncing off the walls like a kid with cake breath jacked up on Coca-Cola. But I was a little fidgety. I packed for the morning. This time, I'm leaving for good. Since I never really unpacked, it didn't take long to stuff the few items I had lying around into my bag. All the fruits and vegetables were gone, so one whole suitcase was basically going home empty. I don't know why I didn't leave from the city yesterday. Maybe I wanted to make sure I'd gotten from the monastery what I needed. Maybe I needed one more day to make it feel more honest and say a proper goodbye, of course. That was necessary. When I sent out the social media blast for book suggestions before I came up here, one of the books someone mentioned was A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I had already read it, but a long time ago. At night, I had to use a reading glass because of the poor light in the cell. But I read the book twice more during my stay. Frankl wrote it in 1946. He had survived the Auschwitz concentration camp mostly by figuring out what his why was. Most of his fellow prisoners who gave up their will to live had lost their why. Frankel speaks of identifying a positive purpose and creating strong imagery around that outcome. It's a life-changing book, and the lessons can be applied to any life and circumstance. If your why is big enough, the how usually emerges. A big why crushes smaller obstacles every time. I remember when Brother Christopher first asked me about my why. Why was I at the monastery? I didn't have an authentic answer. I didn't want to tell him it was only about writing a book. But now, having spent two weeks with the monks, maybe I have a deeper why. For a good portion of my stay, I was figuring out my why, which I think is perfectly acceptable. But I'm not sure if I'd have gotten as much out of it if Brother Christopher hadn't posed the initial question. It echoed in my thoughts throughout my stay and made me push harder. I think it's a question I need to continually ask myself. Why? In business, you ask how and how much. 
rarely why. But without a strong why, we're lost. And the why often hides itself. My wife always reminds me that most advertisers talk about the what of a product and not the why. This is a vacuum and it does X, Y, Z, but they don't ever really talk about why you need it or why it was created or why it's different than everything else on the market. It's the why that makes the customer more invested in your product and more emotionally connected. But no one needs to ask me why I'm going home. This morning, after service, I took pictures with all of the monks. We hugged it out, and I must have thanked them 37 times, and they kept thanking me. I took photos with everybody except Lenny. He doesn't do photos, he told me. As a going-away gift, I gave all the monks Atlanta Hawks jerseys. They tried them on and pretended to shoot hoops. Hilarious. It looked nothing like a game of basketball, more like they were swatting flies. And then I spent about an hour cleaning my cell. I swept, mopped the floor with an old towel, and washed the garbage can. It looks exactly like it did two weeks ago when I arrived. Before I left, I wanted to make sure I said goodbye to Josh the cook, too. Josh was amazing and really did me a solid smuggling in newspapers. When he reached his hand out to shake before I left, I slipped $300 into his palm as a thank you. At first, he refused it. But after I explained he could use it to treat his young daughter to something, he obliged. Money, money, money. I've learned that money can be a real awkward instrument. It changes relationships. When you don't have any, you can be perceived one way. And when you have a lot of it, you can be perceived in another. It can be intimidating and defining. My mother always used to say to me, don't ever borrow money and don't ever lend it. It will only cause problems. If you want to gift it, that's fine. But remember, it's a gift. She could not have been more right. Her one exception to the lending rule was to family. Lastly, I pulled Brother Christopher to the side. I really wanted to thank him for everything he'd done. He made my experience. I gave him the best hug I could, and I felt a spiritual connection to him. But there was something I also really wanted to ask him. So, I said, after I get home and talk with my wife, is it okay if I call you up and put our name in for a dog? Of course, he said. You'd be a fantastic dog owner. Any shot we could get bumped up on the waiting list? You know, as a friend of the monks? Nope. Yeah, I didn't think so, I said. But without asking, you'll never get. You'll be hearing from me. Love you, man. <sighs> okay, then. It's time to close this journal and walk out of my cell for the last time. This is it. I'll write more when I get on the plane. Two hours later. We got to the airport terminal around 11.35 a.m. I felt calm. I'm excited to see my wife and kids, but it feels very peaceful in and around me. 
That is until I realized I'd turn my phone off when I meditated in the morning. So I flipped it back on and walked into the airport. Once it powered up, the emails, texts, and social media alerts started coming through in rapid fire, one after another, nonstop. It was actually too much, so I flipped my phone to vibrate and kept walking. Once I checked in, I made my way over to security. I put a cheesecake box and pancake mix I got from the nuns on the moving black conveyor belt and walked through the x-ray machine. That's when the TSA agent stopped the belt. What's in the paper bag, he asked. It's cheesecake and pancake mix. Cheesecake, huh? Pancake mix, hmm, so you say. From where, he said. The nuns in Newski. You visited the nuns of Newski? Yes, I lived with the monks for a couple of weeks. I'm just leaving now, I said in a soft, almost biblical tone as I stared deep into his eyes. The change in his attitude was remarkable. It was almost as though he wanted to kneel. Go right by, sir, he said without even checking the bag. The cheesecake moved through the x-ray machine without interruption. I could feel the other TSA agents and the rest of the people online looking at me with reverence as if I were a, a priest. I felt all wise and shit. I had a beard and shaved head. I looked apart. As I got to the other end of the conveyor belt, I was met with smiles and offers of help. Funny. Just saying the words, Nooski, transform me from a potential drug smuggler to a holy man. The security people treated me like I might be able to help them get into heaven or something. Nooski. The words are magical. Back at Kate's office. When there is no vision, there is no hope. George Washington Carver. I'm heading back to Hachette Book Group. Kate is reading my diary while I take an extended lunch break. She told me to come back in a couple of hours. It's been two and a half. I have no idea what she's going to say or think. But the one thing I've got going for me is it's honest. The diary is the most authentic version of my experience. When I get back into the building and up to the fifth floor, I see Kate sitting in the conference room. Okay, then. It's the moment of truth. I push open the door as she turns to look up at me. She's smiling. I take the seat across from her, and the diary is sitting in front of her. It looks like she's read the whole thing. I wait for her to say something. Anything. But nothing comes. It's like she's gathering her thoughts. I keep waiting. If we're playing who talks first loses, you aren't going to win, Kate. I'm trained in silence. <laughs> I think it's great, she says. There's a lot we can do with this. Really? Yes. Just like with Seal, I think people are going to want to live vicariously through you, your experience. They're going to want to uncover some of the benefits you received from going, things they can apply to their daily lives. What do you mean? Well, whenever someone mentions they read Living with the Seal, they usually comment about the 40% rule, she says. When you think you're done, you're only at 40% of what your body is capable of doing, I interrupt. 
That's powerful, she says, and it really resonated with readers. I agree, and I've heard that reaction too, I say. If people can access that extra 60%, it can make a significant impact on their life. And just knowing the 60% exists can be the difference between finishing and not finishing. Exactly, Kate says. So we need more of that. I get it, but I feel like this book isn't as funny as Seal. Not every book has to be funny. It has to be genuine, she says. And I think we need to give the reader what you learned. Like monk wisdom? Yes, she says. Like what you learned from being up there or perhaps things you already knew that this experience strengthened. What we need to do is offer something that readers can apply to their daily lives. You know, like the overall takeaways. We want the reader to be able to feel the way you felt when you left the monastery. And things like Remember Tomorrow are great. I really like that one. That's why people are going to buy your book. And it's your job to deliver. Roger that. Part 3. 10 Real-World Benefits 1. Hashtag, it's not just a hose. There's nothing so fatal to character as half-finished tasks. David Lloyd George As I left Kate's office, I thought back on my trip. One of the biggest takeaways from my experience is how much effort the monks put into the small things. Things like making their beds, doing the dishes, and Sweeping the floors were given maximum effort. There's an old adage, how you do anything is how you do everything. It's the small things you do during the day that build your character and grit. It's the small things you do that are indications of what you're becoming. As I mentioned, there are various studies pointing to the fact that grit is the number one indicator of future success. So if we could all be a little more gritty, then we'd all be a bit more successful in all the buckets of our lives. Well, how do we do it? When I got home from the monastery, I was playing with my son Laser outside in our backyard. I had a freezing cold hose flowing and was trying to spray him as he ran back and forth. Ten minutes into our game, Sarah yelled for us to come inside for dinner. After one last spray to the face when my son wasn't looking, I dropped the hose and ran toward the house. I had a full-blown conversation in my head as I headed inside. I told myself it was okay to leave the hose lying on the ground instead of cleaning it up and putting it on the hanger. I'll just do it later, I told myself. No big deal, right? Wrong. That isn't just a hose. That's a reflection of what I am to be. By leaving the hose on the ground and telling myself it's okay and I'll do it later, I'm really telling myself, maybe someone else will do it for me, or it's okay to not finish what I started, or I'll put it off until tomorrow. I'm basically creating an environment in my head that says, it's okay to be lazy. It's okay to not be a finisher. It's okay to put things off. Those little moments happen multiple times a day for us. It's these small things that the monks excelled at. There was not an ounce of laziness or procrastination at Newskeet. By consistently doing things you may not want to do, you create an environment in your head that says you're okay doing hard things. 
you're training yourself to go through obstacles rather than let them deter you. The other side of the conversation in my head was saying, Jesse, pick up the hose, roll it in a circle, and put it on the hanger. Finish what you started. Complete the task. You're a finisher. How you do anything is how you do everything. It's not just a hose. So I marched back outside, coiled the hose, and put it away properly. I felt good about myself. The backyard looked clean. My shit was in order. I stood there for a moment, admiring my backyard. And then, splat! A perfectly thrown water balloon delivered from my son smacked me in the head. Well played, laser. Well played. Two. Hashtag 28,470 days. Time is what we want the most, but what we use worst. William Penn. One of the first things I became aware of on day one at the monastery was my relationship with time. I had hints of it on Mount Washington, but sitting in my cell on the first night, I quickly figured out that I was going to be there for a total of 1,286,000 seconds, and it freaked me out. I realized I had a lot of time on my hands. Or did I? The average American male lives to be about 78 years old, and I'm 49 at the writing of this book. That means, if I'm average, I have about 10,495 days left. Since I sleep roughly one-third of those days, I really have 7,871 days. That's nothing. That's only 29 summers, and I love summers. When we think about relationships, we often think in terms of people. How is our relationship with our parents, friends, spouses, kids? We rarely think about our relationship with time, and for many of us, myself included, that relationship is often out of balance. I started to do some math, and it put time in perspective. My parents are 88 years old, and I see them about four times a year. Well, if they live to be 92, I hope they live much longer, then that would mean I only have 16 more times to see them. That's unacceptable. When you put time in perspective, you realize what's important and you reprioritize things. I immediately booked a flight to see them. The monastery was a huge hourglass for me. When you sit in your cell for hours at a time with silence and no distractions, you realize how slowly time can go. But when you live in the big city and live super fast, you often look up one day and your kids are all grown. And that's when you realize how fast time has gone. How many days do you have left? How do you want to spend them? And whom do you want to spend them with? As I get older, these are the questions that become more and more important to me and I continue to gain an appreciation for urgency. If you can't live longer, live deeper. Italian proverb. Three, hashtag the best have a process. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Dwight D. Eisenhower. While I was shadowing the monks at the dog training center, it became eminently clear I was around greatness. 
The monks of Nuskeed are among the best in the world at dog training. It's not up for debate. And watching it firsthand was fascinating. The dogs arrived for their first day of training as complete misfits and left valedictorians of doggy school. One thing I knew before I ever stepped foot on the monastery was, if you're surrounded by greatness, take notes, pay attention, and ask questions. I learned this by accident. 25 years ago, I assumed what it took to be a great musician was different from what it took to be a great chef or a great gymnast. I didn't think there was a blueprint for greatness, but I was wrong. In 2001, my partner and I started a private jet card company called Marquee Jet. It wasn't easy, but we grew the company to the largest private jet card company in the world. And despite the success, the greatest gift the Marquee Jet ever gave to me was being around so many people who were the best in the world at what they do. We flew all-star athletes, the most successful entrepreneurs, and world-renowned doctors. I spent hours up in the air with them chatting and picking their brains. I'd always ask them about their daily routines. What do you do first thing in the morning? Or how do you manage your time? I wanted to gain insight into what makes the greatest in their fields tick. It was during these discussions I uncovered several traits that so many of these industry leaders had in common. For starters, Virtually all of them develop the process that works best for them over time. Seal has a process. Warren Buffett has a process. The Rolling Stones have a process. And the monks definitely have a process similar to all of the other greats I've ever interacted with. Here's a glimpse of theirs. A. The monks get up early. The day started before sunrise. By the time I greeted them in church for the morning service, most of them had already tended to their dogs, meditated, and reviewed their tasks for the day. When I asked Brother Stavros why they do this, he told me the one race he always likes to win is the race against the sun rising. Like so many of the greats in every field, mornings are magical for the monks. When I got home, I started getting up around 5 a.m. and going for quiet jogs. There was never anybody outside in my neighborhood in the early morning. I take pride in what I was doing and say to myself, there are 7 billion people on earth and I'm the only one up and on these streets? Beat the sun, beat your competition. Try it. B, the monks have a plan. Every night before they went to sleep, they wrote a plan for the next day. They were organized. They prioritized the important things that had to get done first and focused on completing those tasks until they went on to the next. There was no guessing as to what had to get done that day. Every day had a plan and the plan had to be executed. I hear this theme a lot. A goal without a plan is just a wish. C. The monks are efficient. There was very little dilly-dallying during the day. Time was sacred. I didn't see any small talk or chatter around the monastery. The monks executed with a focus that was laser sharp. I think about all the time I spent in the gym talking to my trainer or walking around thinking about what I have to do next. If I added all that wondering time up, it'd equal weeks of wasted downtime. The monks maximized the day. 
D. The monks don't get flustered. When Brother Stavros's car got stuck in the snow, there was no panic. Nobody called AAA to come help. The monks circled everyone up and we pushed the car out of the snow. While it may not seem like a big deal, it's the way they approached the problem that struck me as noteworthy. They were calm and deliberate in all their problem solving. Nobody was mad, upset, or frustrated. They had to fix the problem and worked as a team to get it done. One theme I've seen in so many of the great entrepreneurs, parents, and coaches is they don't panic. They operate well under pressure. Four, hashtag happiness test. Happiness isn't something you experience. It's something you remember. Oscar Levant. Within the first 30 minutes of stepping foot on the monastery, Brother Christopher asked me if I was happy. And I felt pretty confident that happiness was not one of the things I was searching for at the time. I had it already. I am happy. A friend recently told me that I was the happiest person he'd ever met. But Brother Christopher also said something that resonated. He believes too many people, wittingly or unwittingly, constrict their happiness. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was no lid on happiness, he asked? Yes. Yes, it would be. So he got me thinking. How do you lift the lid on happiness? Just after he'd won the Nobel Prize, Albert Einstein was staying at a hotel in Japan. When the bellboy brought up his luggage, he realized he didn't have any money. So he found a piece of scrap paper and wrote his theory of how to have a happy life. He handed it to the bellboy as a tip. The note read, A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. In this day and age, living calmly is a lot easier said than done. What I learned from the monks is that you can find calmness during your day and small doses of calmness can open a door to happiness. And with all due respect to Albert E., I think that you can pursue happiness just as you pursue success. Not too long ago, I was preparing for a speech I had to give. I was basically writing it in my head while I ran 10 miles. Somewhere around mile three, I started to wonder if there was a scale to gauge happiness. There are myriad ways to measure other key areas of our lives. Weight is measured by stepping on a scale. Income measured by a tax bracket, an IQ test for intelligence, but there's no simple way to quantify happiness. With each stride, the idea developed. We spend endless hours doing things that make us happy, but invest much less time working on changing the things that make us unhappy. I'd much rather watch a football game, which makes me happy, than tackle difficult issues about myself which can make me unhappy. So later that night, I was on stage in front of 1,000 highly successful people. These were folks who owned their own businesses and had a high net worth. On paper, this pool of people would most likely check the happiness box. So I posed this question. Think about all the buckets in your life, your health, your relationships, work, finances, etc. everything. Now, on a scale of 1 through 10, with the Dalai Lama being a 10 out of 10 on the happiness scale and the 
guy who's at rock bottom being a one? What is your happiness number? After 30 seconds, I said, no need to put any one person on the spot. Let's do it this way. Everyone who is a seven or less, please stand up. Remarkably, almost everyone in the room rose to their feet. A thousand highly successful CEOs and industry leaders scored themselves a seven or less. A seven out of 10 sounds pretty good, right? I said into the microphone. But if your child came home with a 70 on their math test, that's a C minus. If your number was a six, that's 60% and that's an F in the most important bucket of your life, happiness. I was shocked how so many people in the audience initially seemed perfectly content with a seven. They didn't realize they were going through life under-indexing in this category. What's amazing about this test, however, is not just score, but what you identify by doing it. When you take this test, your brain automatically starts at a 10. It wants you to be happy. Then it immediately subtracts the two to three biggest things in your life that are making you unhappy. Try it. The issues contributing to your unhappiness literally appear in your head automatically. It can be anything. Being overweight, having no money, an unhealthy relationship, a crappy job. The first two to three things that pop into your head are the things blocking you from being happier. Remove one, and your happiness grades out at a B. Remove two, and you go to the top of the class. Identifying what keeps you from being happier is the first step. When you begin working to remove the obstacles, you are taking the next steps to an A+. I already knew what made me happy, family, working out, challenging myself. But by meditating, monotasking, and otherwise clearing the clutter in my mind, the monks taught me how to see what made me unhappy. Too many distractions and intrusions, infringements on my time, and that showed me what I needed to change. Identify and improve. Identify and improve. It's kind of simple if you just allow it, but it starts with the one question Brother Christopher asked me. Are you happy? Five, hashtag dodge the arrows. Do it over and over again until it becomes part of who you are. Unknown. Interestingly enough, one of the best things I learned at the monastery wasn't from one of the monks. It was from a dog. Remember when I was trying to distract Rainbow while she was being trained? Like most of us, Rainbow was easily distracted when she started her training. Her natural inclination was to react to whatever stimuli she encountered on her path. A squirrel runs by? Every fiber in her furry body wants to dart after it. Another dog? How in the hell can you expect her to pass that up? Her reaction is instinctual. But not all instincts are helpful. Brother Thomas trained Rainbow to completely ignore the interferences coming her way that may distract her from her goal. I'm training the dog to block out the noise and keep going, he explained. This isn't unlike our own lives where most of our goals get shattered because 
We don't block out the noise. We're not trained to ignore the distractions. We listen to naysayers. We get pulled in multiple directions and sidetracked by trivial things. And ultimately, if enough of those distractions pile up, we fall short of our goals. In my life, I call my distractions arrows. And I didn't realize how bombarded I was by them until I stepped away from it all. I realized how under attack I am daily. On any given day, I'm dodging unessential requests for my time, my own negative thoughts and life circumstances, and they come from all directions. I find that many of the personal requests we get are one-sided agendas. People who want something from us. Don't get me wrong, I've been on that side of the equation and imposed on people to help me get ahead in life. I know the importance of making connections. And I also understand the importance of helping those behind you on the ladder to success. But if you say yes to too many of those requests, it takes time away from your goals. The arrows also fly toward us in personal challenges. Say you're training for a race and your training plan calls for early morning runs. Well, it's cold in the morning. It may be snowing. It's dark outside. Those are all arrows. Those are reasons to not get out there. It's important that when these arrows appear, you acknowledge them for what they are. One of the keys to accomplishing a big goal is to avoid the obstacles. Dodge the arrows. Lastly, there are the arrows that come at you as part of everyday life. Your toilet overflows, the car won't start, the boss is being a dick again. Though these distractions might be unavoidable, they don't have to deter you from your goal. Sometimes the arrows are things that you don't have. You want to take a vacation, but you don't have the money. You want to start a business, but you don't have the experience. Or you want to take a class, but you don't have the time. These type of arrows stop you dead in your tracks, but they don't have to. Rainbow doesn't stop walking because she doesn't own any food. She just keeps on going and has the faith there's food somewhere down the line. When I watched Rainbow walk with Brother Thomas, there was no denying she was happy. Her whole body sprang with purpose. But learning to not react to something so instinctual took practice and wasn't easy. If you have a goal, don't get caught up in the distractions. You have to shut off all the noise coming at you to be successful. Rainbow had to train like a dog, and so do we. Six, hashtag go where you think best. Thinking, the talking of the soul with itself. Plato. I really believe thinking is a lost art form. Today, we get answers on demand from Google, Siri, and Alexa. If you're listening to this in audio format, Alexa probably just turned herself on. But many of us don't invest any real time into thinking. Yet, giving ourselves time to think is one of the best investments we can make. And there's no risk. The night at the monastery when Brother Christopher told me to think for the next 12 hours, I was at a loss. At the time, my thinking was a scattershot process that took up too much of my mental energy. I was overwhelmed. But over the course of two weeks, I thought about thinking mostly because I was forced into it. 
there was little else to do. I found myself alone for a lot of my stay, but in the real world, I have to find time to be alone and I have to find a place I'm comfortable alone, a place where I like to be alone. If I don't exercise my thinking muscle, it goes away and I don't think clearly. My wife thinks best in her car. We live two miles from her office, which is a 10-minute drive, but Sarah has created a 40-minute fake commute so she can think. I wonder if she thought of that idea while driving in the car. She set up cameras in her vehicle so she can say all of her thoughts out loud while driving and not worry about forgetting them. For me, it's running or walking. I recently calculated I've run almost every day for the past 25 years, almost 36,000 miles, which is like walking around the circumference of the earth one and a half times. That's like 9,000 hours alone. It's when I do my best thinking pounding the pavement or the path or the track. Without it, I don't think I'd have had nearly the same success in my life. It's like a forced meditation for me. That's why I choose to run without music. I can clear my mind by listening to my footfalls. And usually within a few miles, I'm in sync with my body and spirit. I'm totally focused and in stride with the world around me. Everything is clear. I've come up with stuff like Halloween costumes for the family, written entire speeches for speaking engagements, solved work problems, figured out the best way to make amends, and created new ideas for business ventures, all while running. And as soon as I finish, I immediately write them down in one notebook. Putting it on paper declutters your head and frees up energy. I've learned that when you're in the zone, stay there. If you're thinking clearly, then keep it going. Extend the session. That's when it's time to go for a longer run. One day, not too long after I got back from the monastery, I called Turney and asked him how he was doing. We went back and forth for a bit, and then he launched into how he was battling writer's block for an article he was working on, how nothing was coming to him, how he couldn't get the words on the page, and that his day was a big fat zero. He was defeated and felt like he couldn't recover. Attorney, I said, where do you come up with your best ideas, solve problems, figure things out? Where is that? Um, he said, on the toilet? Well, then, I said, sit on the fucking toilet. He called me 30 minutes later and said, problem solved. Brother Christopher and all the other monks made me think about thinking. It's a skill, a craft and in art. It can be worked on and improved with practice. We all have an opportunity to become better thinkers. Go where you think best and spend more time there. Seven, hashtag monotask. The successful warrior is the average man with laser-like focus. Bruce Lee. The first time Brother Stavros asked me to wash the dishes, it was right after the retreat. And I wanted to know what the record time was for cleaning them all. Work with your hands and pray with your heart, he said. Wait, what? I had no idea what he was talking about. And I had no time for riddles. I had dishes to do and records to break. I flipped on the water and grabbed the sponge. 
The monks had served lunch to over 100 people, so I started flying. I was washing, drying, and washing, drying, and stacking like a one-man car wash assembly line. Dishes, pots, glasses, whatever they had, I was washing it. I would have washed a monk if he were standing next to me. Every time I thought I was making progress, another monk came in with a handful of dirty dishes. Then I got a cookie tray stuck, wedged in between the sinks. It was messing with my record pace. Plus, my lower back was killing me. And while I was doing the dishes, I was thinking about my afternoon chores, the time I had left, how cold it was, etc. I was doing it wrong. I wasn't doing it like a monk. During my stay, I wondered how the monks have such great energy and effort. They're so efficient in everything they do. The answer is they monotask. That's how they do it. And they do it with perfection. The monks do their jobs with zest, but only one dish at a time. Each dish is done like the world depends on it. Maybe it does. They're completely singularly focused. There are no distractions. They don't increase their effort. They increase their concentration. A task is never a race, and there's never a finish line. There is only now. Me? I'm all over the map. I don't get the same effort. We live in a world of to-do lists. We're overwhelmed, short-circuiting, and it becomes so intimidating to get things done. Sometimes, I don't know where to start, and the natural reaction is to do everything. Let me try to get it all done, but I'll leave a task with a promise. I'll get back to it later. When I take on a task, I want to finish it as quickly as possible so I can tackle the next. For me, everything is a race. I thought what was important was doing as much as I could in a day. I was focused on the quantity, not the quality. The monks live in a world of quality. No task is left half done, and each task is done to the best of their ability. Monotasking brings better effort, results, and satisfaction. When Brother Gregory brought in another load of dishes, I asked him how many more I'd have to do. You only have to do one, he said, just the one you're holding in your hand. For most of my adult life, I've tried to be an excellent multitasker, but not anymore. Nope. I try to monotask multiple times a day. Eight, hashtag make a contract with yourself. When there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. African proverb. As we were hiking up a paved road and talking, Brother Thomas told me the four vows all of the monks take when they join the monastery. Um, definitely not giving up sex was my first thought when he mentioned the chastity vow. But it made me realize the importance of establishing and honoring your own non-negotiables. And the monk's strict rules gave me the idea to have my own set of vows. So on the last night at the monastery, I decided to write a contract with myself a list of how I wanted to live my life. I read it to myself every morning and it's been helpful in guiding me during the day. This exercise takes only a second and the benefits are long-lasting. Here is my contract with myself. 
I'm going to thank God first thing in the morning. I'm going to show appreciation for having this day. Today, I'm going to be the best version of me that I can be. I'm going to try hard at whatever it is I do. I'm going to be present and patient. I'm going to be a teacher to my kids. I'm going to be a good son, brother, and friend. I'm going to be giving to my wife. I have signed many contracts in my life, but never one with myself. It feels good to write one and even better to keep it. Nine, hashtag experience is overrated. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Soren Kierkegaard. It turns out the nuns built their home in 1971. They took a woodshop class in town and learned how to construct a house. They also made many of the desks and tables they use on a daily basis. When I asked how they accomplished all that without any experience, Sister Cecilia said, necessity is the mother of invention. You know when you hear someone say something and it feels like they knocked it out of the park? Well, at that point, I was looking at Sister Cecilia like she was Aaron Judge and she just drove one deep over the center field wall in Yankee Stadium. Wow. No truer words have been spoken. Necessity is the mother of invention. And the monks went into the dog breeding business without any practical experience. In fact, the only experience they had collectively with dogs was Kier, the original dog they had as a pet. And yet, they were able to grow into one of the most renowned German shepherd breeding programs in the United States. And they went on to become world-famous dog trainers and the authors of multiple New York Times best-selling dog training books. All of that without any experience. They're not the only ones. Richard Branson, Thomas Edison, Colonel Sanders, Rachel Ray, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, and Oprah all have something in common. They became incredibly successful in fields in which they had no experience. I could give you example after example of people in business, sports, and life who succeeded spectacularly without experience. My wife, Sarah, is another great example. How did they do it? Well, maybe the most important ingredient to their success was they didn't waste time thinking they couldn't succeed. Negativity stops dreams. It's like the antithesis of a dream catcher. Even if you're not brimming with confidence, try to keep your thoughts positive. I like to have the end of the movie, my goal, in my head, and then fill in the script as I go. Even if the script requires rewrites, the goal stays the same. Act as if you're going to succeed, and chances are you will. The monks didn't walk around saying, I don't know anything about carpentry. I don't know how to breed dogs. What they said was, it's a good idea to have a monastery and breeding dogs would be a good way to make money. And then they just went about trying their best. Maybe the best part of having no experience is it's quicker than getting experience. If Sarah had gone to business school, studied the garment manufacturing business, and then taken a course in product labeling to come up with the name Spanx, It'd have taken her half a lifetime. And by then, someone else might have come up with the idea or 
she might have begun to believe the negative thoughts that everyone has in their heads. Instead, she just jumped in. When you immerse yourself in an idea you're passionate about and on full alert, every cell of your body becomes a fully engaged receptor of the stimuli that surrounds us. It's like when Seal had me jump into a frozen lake. I was instantly more alert than I ever had been, and my survival instincts kicked in and were razor sharp. The other thing about entering into a new business or even a relationship without experience, you engage your instinctual drive to survive. For the monks, it was do or die. When the monks started their breeding business, they read every book on dog breeding they could get their hands on, and then they read them again. They called breeders across the country and asked for help. They did the same thing when they started training dogs. I'm convinced one of the best ways to learn is to be self-taught. You can't get away with cutting corners or slacking off when you're both teacher and student. Experience is overrated. It takes too long. If you're moved to do something, do it. The last thing you need to worry about is you've never done it before. Most of us want to wait until we either have the right amount of experience or feel it's the right time to tackle something. That right time rarely comes. So yeah, when Sister Cecilia said, necessity is the mother of invention, I totally got it. 10. Hashtag build your edge. The past is where you learn the lessons. The future is where you apply the lessons. Unknown. When I left the monastery, Alfredo asked me how I felt. I assumed he was expecting a response like focused or calm or maybe even relaxed. But that's not what I was feeling. I'm proud, I said. As we drove away, I sat there strapped in the seatbelt and took a long sigh, and then I smiled, a proud smile. I knew I was going home successful. I put the challenge in front of me, tried to build on it, and hung in until it was completed. I was proud I had the courage to come to the monastery, stick it out, and give my best effort. Effort is the true source of pride, not results. I once heard a guest on my friend Lewis Howe's podcast say that every day he wakes up and tells himself, today, I'm going to try my hardest at everything I do. And then, at the end of each day before he goes to sleep, he asks himself, did I indeed try my best today? If the answer is yes to both questions, then he considers it a hell of a day. Think about it. We can't always control the outcome, the results, but we can always control our effort. I believe trying our best every day is a great way to measure success. The monk's daily effort is unrivaled, contagious, and super successful. Every day is about doing the best they can regardless of the task. Do you just want to make your bed? Or do you want to make your bed like a monk? There's a big difference between the two. Once I started to really understand the monk's determination, I started to feel a shift in my thinking. While I was at the monastery, it inspired me to make a pledge to spend as much time as possible around people who are focused on effort. I want to continue pushing forward this element in my life. Effort is everything. 
I want to be around people who don't cut corners and feel proud at the end of each day. I may not share all of the beliefs the monks have, but you can't question their discipline. Their energy is infectious and inspiring. And because of their effort, the monks have edge. Edge is an internal advantage. It's the right hook that your brain can use to knock out fear or that internal bully when it creeps into your thoughts. When you gain edge, it's like stamping a permanent I get shit done tattoo on your brain. You can always access it when needed. And you get edge by stepping into the unknown and by consistently doing things that are hard. My edge in life has primarily come through challenging myself physically. It's a different kind of edge than the monks. And I'm often asked why I like challenges so much. Maybe it's because I learn something about myself every time, or maybe it's because I'm an adrenaline junkie. But when I get a good look under my own hood, I'm able to use that experience for future endeavors. My past challenges have given me a confidence and swagger that I can't get from reading a book, listening to a speaker, or attending a conference. The challenges have taught me about accessing my own courage. The same courage it takes to start a business or quit a job or take any kind of risk. When I pulled up to the monastery, I had a nervous pit in my stomach. The same feeling I get before a big meeting or standing at the starting line of a marathon. I was scared of the unknown that was ahead. I was nervous of what could happen, what would happen. But I also knew that those same feelings meant a growth opportunity was on the horizon. And on the last day when I left, I knew I had gained another layer of edge, the monk's edge. This experience was an edge enhancer. Thanks, monks. Part 4. The New Beginning Adding to my life resume After I left Kate's office, I hustled to LaGuardia Airport. I wanted to catch the next flight back to Atlanta. The meeting with my editor was positive and productive, but I'm still not 100% sure I have a book. I'm missing something. And I need time to figure out what that something is. On the plane, I take out a pen in my diary and flip it to a blank page and start to write. Things I like about monks. One, monks do one thing at a time. Two. Monks don't rush. They do things slowly and deliberately. Three, monks don't cut corners. They do it completely. Four, monks do less, but do more. Five, monks remain calm. They don't panic. Six, monks are okay being alone. They thrive at it. Seven, monks study all different kinds of topics to enhance growth. Eight, monks devote time to sitting. Nine, monks smile. Ten, monks live simply. Eleven, monks don't waste time. Twelve, monks have a strong community and family unit. Thirteen, monks have a love affair with life. The plane starts to taxi and we slowly make our way to the runway. There's got to be a creative way to tell this story. I've got to find a monk-like way. 
The flight attendants make their final pass down the aisle, reminding everyone to fasten their seatbelts. I close the diary and put it under my seat. Eventually, the captain tells us we're next for takeoff. I have a lot of work to do, but I'm going to wait until I can go where I think best. The next evening, I'm on a run in our neighborhood. It's unseasonably warm, so I'm thinking 10 miles sounds good. As I run, I begin thinking about the monks. I wonder what they're doing. They're probably in the church singing to kick off the nightly service. Lenny's probably lighting the incense. I keep running. As my mind clears, I realize I'm focused only on the rhythmic beat of my feet slapping the concrete. Everything else has drifted away. It feels just like meditating. Then, out of nowhere, the conversation with Kate replays in my thoughts. And with it comes the structure of my book. I'll just write it the same way I told her the story. That's it. The Mount Washington adventure plays in my head. I see myself with Kevin the cop at the top of the mountain. That's it. That's it. Like most great spiritual journeys, this one starts on a mountaintop. I race home. Sweating, heart beating, still in my shorts and t-shirt, I plop down in my chair and begin to outline. I access my inner monk and monotask. My goal is to write every day and get one chapter done a week. I create a pie chart of my 24 hours in a day and carve out three to four hours for writing. In that time, the only thing I'm allowing myself to do is work on the book. My office door is closed, the phone is turned off, and so is my Wi-Fi. I remove all possible and potential distractions from my task at hand. And at first, it's just words on the page, a stream of consciousness, mixed up thoughts and stories told out of order. But slowly, a narrative starts to form. Sentences are cut, scenes are added, and the words on the page start to take shape. The rest of the day is given to running my business and dodging arrows. At night, when I'm not writing, I'm present with my family. It's one of my non-negotiables. I spend time with Sarah and the kids. We play board games and run around the yard like it's 1985. No distractions. And some of the time I spend with just me on the couch, watching the Hawks. It's my guilty pleasure. I realize that if I take just one hour of personal time a day for the next 30 years, I'll gain about 11,000 hours of me time. That's over one full year and a quarter of time. Imagine freeing up an entire year to do what you want. And each day I get up and go to my office. I'm energized for my goal and I'm committed to the process. I tell myself I'm going to make the book part of my daily routine for the duration of the goal until it's done. It's not a chore. It's a lifestyle. Sure, some days I feel like slacking off, but I have a post-it on my computer that reads, Remember Tomorrow. That always gets me through. And I'm ahead of schedule. I have the first 60 pages done in two weeks. Just as I start to clean up my diary, I realize my experience at the monastery might be able to help others. We can all access our inner monk, slow the clock, and remove the lid on happiness. 
We can become better listeners. We can get more out of life. And that means go out and do things, take chances. That's what I'm doing. But you'll have plenty of reasons not to. Kids, getting older, and I don't know what I'm doing. The excuses will pile up fast. But don't listen to those voices. Beat up the bullying in your own head. And once you make up your mind to take the chance, take it right away. Turney once told me that when addicts agree to go to rehab, the protocol is to immediately drive them to the airport. He said, statistically, that each passing hour when addicts are not on their way to rehab, the chances of them not going goes up exponentially. It's because addicts listen to all of the excuses about why they don't really need to go to rehab. I think the same thing happens to all of us sometimes. Once the moment passes, it's really hard to get it back. Urgency is our friend, and we should treat it as such. My 60 pages shrink to 40 as I cut whole sections that don't matter. It's hard to read your own writing and have an objective opinion. Some days I think it's good, and other days I think it sucks. But I need to stay focused on the task and not listen to the voice, Billy the Bully in my head, that's telling me to stop or it's not any good. The diary needs some more work, but I think it's important to keep it authentic. Authenticity over everything. I don't want to play with it too much. It needs to be a diary. I find opportunities to illuminate more and touch on thoughts that were in my head that never made it to the page. I keep going. One of the most asked questions I've gotten since returning is, have I changed? Into what? I haven't changed. I've expanded. I now have a collection of memories in my brain's photo album that I can access at any time. I gain insight I can draw upon at any moment. So sure, I've changed, but only in the sense of feeding my soul. Another important gift I took from my stay is patience. Now when I have to go to some lengthy engagement or something I used to think of as a painful waste of time, it's a walk in the park. I can sit through anything for three or five hours at a time now without hesitation. Long drives, no problem. Five-hour layover in Detroit, easy peasy. Catholic wedding ceremony, layup. I used to fight those moments every minute of the way. Now, I have a different appreciation for time. In some ways, this experience is similar to my experience with SEAL. Back then, I reinforced a mentally tough mindset. But with the monks, I learned to develop a peaceful, serene, no-worry mindset. I changed my spiritual diet. It helped me focus on what is truly important and realize that much of my worry is irrelevant. My experience enhanced all situations and allowed me to be present, and I can tap into it at any point during my day. Last night, my son had a fever, and we knew we were in for a long night. I'm so sorry. I can't stay with him because I'm leaving for the airport, Sarah said. Can you do it? Sorry? Why are you sorry? It was a walk in the park. I woke our son up every hour. I checked his temperature and made sure he was all right. I probably slept a total of three hours, but not once did I think about how bad it sucked. I was grateful that I'm in a position to care for my children. It's a gift. 
being a dad is what I signed up for, and that means anything that comes along with it. Fever is part of the process, and that's what I signed up for. But without my monk experiences, I probably wouldn't have been so carefree about it. I probably would have bitched and whined. And by this morning, I'm happy to report, my son is already feeling better. I take the next week to clean up my diary and write down all of my takeaways. It's the routines, habits, and mindset I learned. But it's a different kind of writing, so I have to change gears a little bit. It's not something I'm used to. I wrote primarily in a narrative form for my first book, and writing rhymes and jingles is a whole different skill set. But thankfully, no experience is required. So I just show up and write. Three weeks later, I finish. It's not pretty, but it's much easier to work with than 250 blank pages. The first draft of my book is done. The next day, I'm on my way over to the local country club where I have a meeting. I'm taking a break from the book to let it breathe. I once read that Stephen King likes to hide his manuscripts in a drawer for six weeks after he types the end. But I'm no Stephen King, and I have a deadline that doesn't line up with that timetable. I pull my car into the parking lot near the front entrance, lock my car, and head over. I have an appointment or a meeting. Actually, I'm not sure what to call it. It's more like an interview, I guess. One thing I'm sure about is that it's not a mission. But I was asked to be part of an entrepreneurial club that actually has a membership. I didn't seek it out, but when they contacted me, it sounded really interesting, something that might be mutually beneficial. Inside the building, it feels exactly like you'd expect a suburban country club to feel like. Elegant architecture and the smell of old money. The vested gentleman behind the front desk directs me to the meeting room. As I make my way across the red carpet, I can visualize how hopping this place must be in the summer. I can see kids running around in bathing suits and men and women in golf attire. But today it's fairly empty. I pass an older couple who smile at me, and then I see a couple of business guys looking guilty for not being at work. As I enter into the formal meeting room, I see Ted standing there, waiting for me. He's about my age and looks like he might have been a member of the Young Republicans Club in college. He's cleaner cut than cleaning products. I bet if you flipped him upside down, he'd make a hell of a mop with that perfectly parted brown hair. Or maybe you could hang him on your rear view mirror as an air freshener. And he's so proper with a firm handshake and pearly white teeth. I instantly feel like I know this guy. By know him, I mean, I know what he likes, and how he operates, and what he's looking for. The dude is all business. And he probably doesn't use the word dude. We sit. He explains how the club works and what kind of candidates they're looking for. They not only want to network across the country, they want to find synergies that help members succeed. It sounds like a I got a guy or girl network, meaning that if you're a member, then you'll most likely have a trusted contact in almost every industry. I've never been in a business club before, but the more he talks about the concept, the more appealing it sounds. Eventually, we start to go down some side streets with personal talk. Ted is a family man. He's giving off a high ethics and moral vibe. 
I like him. Once he concludes his pitch, he smiles, and then he nods his head slightly up and down. So, Ted says, can I see your resume? My resume? I don't have a resume. What do you mean you don't have a resume? He asks. Everyone has a resume. Well, I don't. I don't believe in them. He's looking at me like I just told him I believe the world is flat. He's so confused. And then after he gets over his shock, I tell him I don't believe in resumes in the traditional sense. I think it's more important to have a life resume, you know, like collecting moments, creating experiences, and doing more. I believe that's a real indication of who you are. He doesn't disagree, so I keep going. Did you know that the average recruiter scans a prospect's resume for only six seconds, I say? Six seconds. Six seconds to determine whether someone is qualified for the job. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's enough time to judge someone's life work. If people focus more time on having experiences, it'd give them more depth. It might even help them land their dream job. That's interesting. Yeah, what if we flipped the model upside down and spent more time on building our life resume? Well, Ted says, what's your first job experience on your life resume? Breakdancing, I say. I drove from Long Island to Washington, D.C. in 1985 and made $41. It was one of the best experiences of my life. This is clearly the first time he's ever discussed breakdancing in a membership meeting. I take him through the story of my friend Myron and me convincing my sister to drive across a few state lines to breakdance and make some money. I do it in under three minutes. Then I tell him I've only eaten fruit until noon for 27 years. I have the same friends from elementary school. I used to manage my favorite music group of all time, Run DMC. I ran 100 miles. I lived with a Navy SEAL for 31 days. And I just got back from a two-week stint at a monastery with monks. Monks who lived there for 50 years. Oh, I say. And I have a wife, four kids, and a lot of gratitude for life. Ted's mouth is open. He has perfect teeth. They must have cost his parents a fortune. Did you say you live with a Navy SEAL? Yeah, and wrote a book about it. And you've just come back from living at a monastery? Yeah, the monks I stayed with breed German shepherds and train dogs. German shepherds? Oh, and the nuns make cheesecake. They make cheesecake? Delicious. I'll have them send one for you if you like. You like cheesecake? Um, not really, but whatever possessed you to go live at a monastery? Have you ever read the book The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by Robin Sharma? It's the story of a lawyer who loses everything and finds himself. I haven't read it, but is that why you went there? To find yourself? No. I went there to find out how to live my life in a more meaningful way. Did you? What I found was that I already knew how to live my life in a meaningful way. It's like the wiring had been put in place the entire time. The monks just showed me where the on switch was. Don't get me wrong, we're not all wired to be monks. I went there to get a piece of the monks. It's like those DNA kits they can send to your home to find your nationalities, except this is different. 
I wanted to make Monk 10% of my DNA, not 100%. I spend the next 15 minutes telling him about my experience, and then I mention I'm writing a book about it. He's fascinated. He tells me he's always romanticized about taking some sort of spiritual sabbatical, but he just hasn't been able to find the time. He keeps firing questions at me, and then I hit them right back to him. This is why I think life resumes are more important, I say. Think about it. If you're at work, who do you want to sit next to at the lunch table? The guy who volunteers at a prison on the weekends and has a painting studio in his house? Or the guy who spent his whole life crunching numbers and analyzing the economy? Prison painter? I agree. And I also believe networking has become shallow, I say. Everyone is so concerned with connecting on social media, adding followers, collecting business cards, and shaking as many hands as they can at a cocktail party. But how strong is that network when you really don't know the people? Sure, coffee is great, but I still think you need to go deeper. That's why experiences are so important, especially experiences you do with others. Right now, I can call and count on people who I have deep connections with, not because I bought them a bagel and followed up with a thank you email. It's because I have true connections, moments, if you will, and experiences that will last a lifetime. If you ever climb Mount Washington with someone, they'll be your friend for life. And experiences like making a deposit in the bank. We can draw on it at any time. Ted stands up to shake my hand. I really hope you consider our club. We'd love to have you. I fight the urge to tell him, thanks, but no thanks. What's that old line by Groucho Marx? I'd never join a club that'd have me as a member. Something like that. As I walk through the lobby to the parking lot, my thoughts are clear. If you want to live like a monk, good for you. But do it at a monastery. If you want to live life in the outside world, Live it with urgency and build your life resume. Part of my why as it relates to the monastery was to add to my life resume. It's another experience, another adventure, another thing I can look back on and be proud of as I get older. I'm a believer in having a bucket list. Bucket lists are great. Meeting Mick Jagger is on mine. But I'm a much bigger believer in dropping the B in bucket adding an F to create a bucket list. The bucket list is a collection of things you always wanted to do, but maybe were too scared, felt the timing wasn't right, or maybe you believed you didn't have enough experience. They are the things that require some risk, some fear, and may result in failure. But those are the things that make you feel most alive. After many days of edits and reading the manuscript over and over again, I finally open up my computer and attach the document in an email to my editor. I click send. The email box vanishes from my screen. I grab my pen and walk over to my bucket list and cross off number 33. 33. Living with monks in a monastery. 34. Ride a bike across the country. 35. Learn sign language. 36. Black belt and Krav Maga. 37. Write a screenplay. 
38. A final thought. Here's what I want everyone who finished reading this book to do. Go to www.jessieitzler.com slash life resume and sign your name and list the one thing you're going to go out and do with urgency that you've been wanting to do but haven't found the right time. An experience that is out of your comfort zone and perhaps scary. And once a month for an entire year after my book publishes, I'm going to pick one person at random and compensate their adventure if they supply a proof of purchase. And the list has already started. One, Tony Duff. I'm going to take a stand-up comedy class. Two, Lisa Leshny, Heli Skiing. Three. Kate Hartson, take a fencing class. Four, Brian McDonald, I'm going to sign up for a trapeze class. Five, Sarah Blakely, I want to run a half marathon. Six, Laser Itzler, I'm going to camp out on Mount Washington in the winter. Seven, Mark Brown, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. Eight. Nine, ten. Acknowledgements. The monks of Newskeet reminded me of the importance of having a strong community. With its support, we can exceed our wildest expectations. I would like to take a moment to thank my community and tribe on this project. Tony Duff, Lisa Leshney, Jennifer Kish, Mark Edelman, Kenny Reisman, Mark Brown, Jeff Fortson, John Cornick, Mark Hodelich, Brian McDonald, Kate Hartson, Ralph Zetterstein, all those at Center Street Books, and Didi DiBartolo. I'm so grateful for your time and efforts. I also want to thank Josh the Cook for all the amazing meals and newspapers, and Lenny the Intern for sparing me. You kept me on my toes, Lenny, and I'm glad we became almost friends. A heartfelt thank you to the remarkable nuns of Newskeet, Sister Patricia, Sister Cecilia, and Sister Rebecca. I'm so grateful for how you accepted me into your monastery, for your wisdom, and for the delicious cheesecake. Obviously, this book would not have been possible without the welcoming love and support of the monks of Newskeet. A huge spiritual shout out to Brother Thomas, Brother Christopher, Brother Stavros, Brother Mark, Brother John, Brother Luke, Brother Peter, Brother Gregory, Brother Ambrose. Your warmth and hospitality went above and beyond what was expected. Thanks for making me feel so at home and thanks for all the bananas. Sorry about those cliff bars. Lastly, I want to thank my incredibly loving and encouraging wife, Sarah, for holding down the fort while I was gone. Thanks for letting me use some of my 36,000 free hours on this adventure and letting me fill my plate with what I love to do. I told her that this trip would allow me to be more present in our relationship going forward. I hope I was right. I'm so lucky to have you. Thank you for all your support on my quest to building my life resume. Hashtag, what's next? Jesse. 
This has been a Hachette audio production of Living with the Monks. What turning off my phone taught me about happiness, gratitude, and focus. Written and read by Jesse Itzler. Produced by Greg Cooler. Directed by Fleet Cooper. Recorded by Dante Hodge. Post-production by Ryan Jones at Listen Up Audiobooks. Living with the Monks is also available in print and as an ebook from Center Street, a division of Hachette Book Group. For more Hachette Audio productions, visit us at hachetteaudio.com. Thank you for listening. Text copyright 2018 by Jesse Itzler. Audio production copyright 2018, Hachette Audio, all rights reserved. Hachette Book Group supports the right to free expression and the value of copyright. The purpose of copyright is to encourage writers and artists to produce the creative works that enrich our culture. The duplicating, uploading, and distribution of this book without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like permission to use material from the book, other than for review purposes, please contact permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.